Mic check, mic check, mic check. Do you hear? Does everyone receive? I hear you. Beautiful. Biz, are you audible? I am. Hear you loud and clear. Very good, very good. Uh, smooth start. Very nice. Now we just need to wait until Good Things is in. Um, he's, he's only going to be here for about an hour. So I, th I, th I think we'll need to give him as much leeway as possible in the beginning because he has a limited amount of time. And then we will just simply move on from there. Uh, try to address as many topics as possible and also trying to stay within a reasonable, reasonable amount of time, which I would consider to be roughly about two to three hours. It probably won't be a very long space, but I mean, the subject of AI and what we are going to be discussing is so remarkably complex that I think it will take probably more than three hours. So <laughs> I'll uh, add good things to co-host. And Anthony's on as well. Yes, yes. Ah, it's going to be amazing. I'm very excited today because this is the first time that I'm hosting a space or I've put together a space addressing this kind of topic featuring people who actually have experience in the field. My own experience and my own knowledge is extremely limited and I can only do so much in order to accurately contribute. So I'm really happy that there are in fact individuals out there who have come here today to help explain and answer various questions that we will be asking. And, you know, of course, explain topics, right? I'm very excited, as you could probably hear from my voice. So let's get this started. Good things. Hey, nice to have you here, man. Thanks, Anthony, uh, Biz. Really, really good, to, uh, really good to see you guys here. It's cool. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Adrian. This is hey, actually... Yeah, likewise. <laughs> This is actually the first time I've heard your voice, Anthony. So, yeah, interesting. <laughs> oh, uh, no one's ever goes to my uh, YouTube channel anymore. <laughs> you have a YouTube channel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Had it for about 12 years. I started posting some videos early on of my artificial intelligence engines, which are on YouTube, of talking to Abraham Lincoln. Um, it's captioned under talking to dead presidents. Ah, that sounds interesting. So you basically took various recognizable traits and patterns and then materialized it as a machine and then queried the machine. Is that, is that what you, is that what you have done? Exactly. We developed a brain profiler, uh, which looked at the word vernaculars and probability usage of words. Uh, basically using a Flesh-Kincaid scale algorithm. And then uh, we could uh, determine what words were commonly used by specific uh, communications that they used, like uh, letters or books or anything that they had written. And we would insert it into the profiler. And then it would generate a chat model of their brain profile utilizing their word vernaculars. And then uh, the idea, the word Yaponda, uh, which I founded in 1999 was uh, a Greek word. It means life without death. Uh, it's because one of my friends was passing away of cancer. And I told him uh, we could use my AI engine to develop his brain model and we could actually store Jim on the uh, computer. Uh, and at that time, uh, we our, our model of our uh, 3D model of our image of the talking head uh, wasn't capable of being supported by a web interface. It wasn't until 2000, about a year after he passed away, that uh, 
that we were capable of being able to uh, put his head on the web and then people would uh, be able to log into the internet and go to our website at gaponda.com and talk to the virtual avatar of Jim Redgate. Was this ever featured on the BBC World Service? I distinctly remember something very similar being exactly. Explored. It was. It was. I, no absolutely. way, dude! I remember. Dude. I remember listening to this. I was like, I was learning English at the time, and I was listening to this. And I was thinking to myself, wow, if ever I get to speak to the person who made, it, who made this, no way, yeah. no way. Dude, that is so awesome. Massive fan, we were, man. I'm a massive fan then. <laughs> we were on all the news stations back then. Back in, um, we started off developing the engine in 1995. Uh, by 1998, we began uh, uh, putting it into from uh, the Java language into C. And then by 2000, we converted everything over to C Sharp and the .NET framework. And so we had a we had an engine model that could run an ASP.NET, and then uh, we were developing a backend web model. So in England, uh, there was a company called BioVirtual Corp. They were a division of British Telecom, and uh, we ended up buying uh, their algorithms for their terraforming three-dimensional modeling. From there, we could take two photographs and create a three-dimensional mo model of a person's head. Um, this had IK control points, uh, which are inverse kinematic modeling control points, which we could control the lip, eyes, and nose movements and uh, make nostril flares and, and mouth movements with phonemes that could actually match their speech patterns. And as you can imagine, back in 2000, the synthetic speeches were absolutely appalling. They were terrible. So everybody sounded robotic, no matter what, including Abraham Lincoln. But um, it's the best we had at that time uh, to try to create uh, synthetic models of biological hosts. So um, we, uh, we made about 700 avatars in our first year, and we stored them in a 1959 Motorola television set. Uh, which was called Live in My TV. And the, uh, the avatars, uh, basically, each avatar only takes up about 11 to 12 kilobytes. Uh, but the, um, the model that actually interprets the, the construct of their three-dimensional head was probably, I'd say, around 200 megabytes. So everybody would be interpreted in the same construct. So once we pulled their three-dimensional model into it. We added the synthetic voice and we connected the genetograph, which is their brain profile, to their image file. And then we could bring them back to life and, and make them become animated on the screen. So there we knew that we could store these people cybernetically forever. We could basically store them hundreds of years into the future where their great-great-grandchildren would be able to log into the internet and have fully cognitive conversations with the cybernetic self that they left behind. Uh, what we began to realize was uh, about 2000, I think it was 2001 or two, we started getting notifications from Microsoft that they were no longer going to support um, our backend architecture, which was based in DirectDraw. So we were forced to have to rewrite the software again and uh, in order for it to run in the new models. But even some of the new models that they were supporting would no longer be functional in the future again. And as we 
we kept trying to keep up with the changes in the hardware and, and software, we began to quickly realize that artificial intelligence that we were developing at that time would not survive because we would have to continue to change it every time operational changes and, and uh, uh, I, the uh, operational systems would change and we would end up not being able to run our software uh, in future. We couldn't predict where the future was going to be um, with someone's operating system. And if we couldn't be there to predict that, then our software would not be supported in the future. And we, we came to that conclusion finally. After about uh, four or five years, it wasn't until a few years later that we began to realize that we could actually freeze the operating system in time. And that's where we're working today with this new model in Kotlin Java. Uh, we're developing new artificial intelligence engine that's completely different. Um, if you go back to the first version in 1995 that I wrote, it was the world's first web-based artificial intelligence engine. Now I say that because um, Julia, which was written by uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Malden, uh, who was the founder of Lycos, the Lycos search engine, um, was only a C model. It could only run local on a, on a PC at that time. And then uh, uh, Dr. Richard Wallace wasn't until another six years later, until 1981, or, uh, 1991, I'm sorry, 2001. Uh, so uh, I released my first version, which was a natural language processing engine, but it had a back-end neural network. This was one engine reading a, a, a series of multiple uh, flat files, similar to CSV or a DAT file. These files had uh, different, uh, what's called conversational clusters built into the uh, flat file. Here we could uh, communicate with it using a natural language processor, but it could actually pool from a multiplicity of files. Whereas Julia or Joseph Weizenbaum's Eliza could only communicate with a single flat file that was loaded into the engine. Mine could actually load multiple flat files on the fly. And so we created a directory system where you could input a certain uh, conversation. And let's say that you discussed, uh, uh, you know, fire hydrants. Well, when you're thinking of fire hydrants, you're not thinking of mung beans and soya proteins. So we were able to break up each of the knowledge files into different categories. And when we mentioned it, we had a thing called a conditional population matrix, which allowed us to leap the input statement to the actual uh, flat file that had the data in it for that specific flat file. And they would load on the fly and the engine would respond. It wasn't until I think uh, uh, 2006 that we finally realized that we could run two engines. So we put two engines back to back. And one engine we called an NEP, which is a natural event processor. And the other one was an NLP or a natural language processor. So the NEP had a series of sensors that were connected to serial ports, 122 serial ports to to be exact. And then we took those serial ports and we connected them to sensors. And then we wrote a uh, scripting language, which would basically create serial outputs rather than verbal outputs. So whenever events input, just like my words were input into the conversation engine, the serial was listening. So if I, um, if I had a 
a hot temperature in the room, say it was, uh, you know, uh, 38 degrees or something, immediately the uh, engine while I'm talking to it would change its personality profile to kind of an exhaustive output and adapt to the environment, which would give me uh, uh, a verbal response. You know, wow, it's kind of hot in here. Can you turn on the air conditioner? So it was actually able to respond to its environmental conditions while it was conversing. And then we began to realize, well, wait a minute, if we can do two, can we do a hundred? And so we began building out these engine models. And I thought, well, we need to keep this engine model in a, in a uh, organized way. So if we want to build this engine model, we want to make it artificially intelligent. And then what we need to do is we need to look at the way the human brain is mapped out. So if we went into the human brain and we looked at every single component from the prefrontal cortex all the way to uh, the back and the medulla and the basal root ganglia, we can look at what each part of the brain, which has already been mapped out and already identifies exactly what the function of that part of the brain does, then we could name that part of the engine after that part of the brain. So if you had a brocus and a brobenaria or tra uh, tactioception in the somatosensory cortex, you could actually write the flat file to have input-output response exactly like that element of the brain, and they connect to what's called a memory cortex. So I wrote an engine that had the ability to generate the memories of each engine that was running on a single thread at that given time. So at any given time, we could have well over 100 engines all running at the same time on a single processor, all of them generating independent memories in their own file folder. So you had, uh, you know, like the amygdaloid nucleus in one folder you had the uh, you know, hypothalamus in another folder. Each one would generate memories based on conditions that were occurring to the input output of that engine. So uh, because it was doing this, we began to um, write a program that basically said, okay, I'm gonna take each of those memories that each one of them created, and we're gonna call that part of the program the memory cortex. And so that way, let's say that you have a tactioception, which is responsible for touch, sensitivity, uh, the, these type of modalities, not like hearing or seeing, but just vibration. And when you touch something and uh, it's hot, it creates a memory of something being hot. So the sensors would input that modality of memory and then write it to the engine. And then the engine would share it with the other parts of the brain that were, that were only designed to read from the tactioception. So you would have um, the intelligent communication part of the brain and the prefrontal cortex. And we would actually write all of the thought processes so that, that the background where memories were being clustered together for the construct of conversation would actually be generating its own conversational uh, construct so that it could create input output on the fly. So now we knew how to cluster the conversations together based on what the other parts of the brain were doing. So this became uh, a, a new program called SARA. Uh, SARA is an acronym, stands for Smart Anthropomorphic Robotic Hybrid Agent. And that's because a lot of the, uh, the uh, dorsal root ganglia and basal root ganglia in the back of the, uh, of the medulla were all responsible for uh, motor functions and motor skills. 
And so we wrote all the robotic controls in that section of the brain. So it could control uh, moving arms. And if you go back to uh, 2001, the book uh, Virtual Humans was written by Dr. Peter Plantek. He's a psychologist in Beverly Hills, California. He wrote the first book on uh, do-it-yourself artificial intelligence about my artificial intelligence engine, Yaponda. And in Yaponda, on page 11, uh, or in the Virtual Humans book on page 11, it uh, talks about uh, what he witnessed when he came into my lab at the Redgate Petroleum Lab in uh in Oklahoma, uh, he he came in and he took a tour to see my robotics lab and what I was developing at that time um, and said, wow, I've got to write a book about this. And, and some of you may know who Peter Plantek is. He was the uh, uh, senior editor for Wired magazine. And so uh, when he wrote the book Virtual Humans, which you can just type in Virtual Humans, uh, Dr. Peter Plantek, and you can see the book that was written on my engine, uh, Yaponda, featured Sara, which was the first AI engine with a multi-brain function that had the capabilities of uh, autonomous movement with full, uh, with full uh, conversational construct at the exact same time. And so now the AI engine uh, was, was evolving. It was becoming more than you know, if, if you look back at uh, James Doyne Farmer, uh, 1959, Dartmouth College with, uh, it was James Doyne Farmer, uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, let's see, uh, Joseph Weintraub and Joseph Weizenbaum. There were four people that were involved in this meeting. It was the world's first virtual human or, or, or artificial intelligence summit. And that was in 1959. And James Doyne Farmer said that between 50 to 100 years, a new group of organisms is likely to emerge. They'll be synthetic in the nature that man would have originally created them. However, they will change, they'll morph, and they'll grow into something other than what man had originally created them to be. He said the, the, the advent of artificial intelligence will be the greatest event since the emergence of humans. And then you fast forward to 1998, uh, from 1959 to 1998, and absolutely nothing had been done in the field of artificial intelligence. Now we began to realize when I first discovered uh, the writing of my first AI engine, I looked on the NASDAQ and I looked all over the internet. I looked everywhere and there was nobody developing a product with artificial intelligence. And I said to myself, well, wait a minute, if I develop something and this was based on my early work in uh, chipware development that I could build this engine model in Java um, that I began to realize that if I created a, a product that had artificial intelligence, then I would be the first recorded person to do so. So I literally began uh, in my first year writing it and then it just took on its own life and it began to change and grow and there are AI models out there, all based on the language YIML. So you have a YIML created in uh, 1997, which is Yaponda Intelligence Markup Language. And then you go to 19 or to 2001, and you have uh, uh, Richard Wallace and AIML for Artificial Intelligence Markup Language. Uh, so the 1998 Virtual Human Summit was held in Aspen, Colorado. 
And uh, it featured 27 of the top ranking scientists of the world. So you go from 1959, which was four uh, artificial intelligence scientists at that time that were top in their field. And then you go to 1998 and they're only, you know, less than a hand. There's less than 30 of us at that time. So 27 of us all sit in a room and I was the third guest speaker. And there I unveiled Sara uh, engine and, um, Dr. Harrison stands up and says, oh, my gosh. And, and some of you may know who Dr. Harrison is. He was the uh, professor of computer science at Berkeley and Soda Hall. Uh, stood up and said, oh, my God, now you have my attention. I can't believe I'm seeing this. And so uh, at that point time, it began making all the newspapers of that time and all of the uh, news channels and uh, we were global. We The news uh, showed Abraham Lincoln talking on the BBC, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, all were uh, broadcasting this new creation of uh, the talking avatar of President Abraham Lincoln. And that, that idea of generating Abraham Lincoln came to me in a dream. I was talking to Abe Lincoln in a dream. And I thought when I woke up, well, hell, I can build that. So I started creating a three-dimensional model of Abe Lincoln. And uh, my first one, I used MS agent and it was terrible. It, it was a flat uh, single dimensional model of using animation character sets. And the voice was really, really bad but it was the first attempt of it. And then um, I got to um, meet with the developers of AT&T Natural Voices and they gave me uh, all of their source code and we began integrating it into our uh, engine model. And then AT&T sounded so much better than you know Microsoft uh, Voices at that time. And uh, so we started using AT&T. So uh, by 2004, we were still using AT&T voice models with our uh, avatar engines. I think today on my PC, on the laptop that I currently am on right now, I probably have somewhere around 2,000 avatars of, and their brain profiles all stored in my laptop. And I can right now log into them and have conversations with them and talk to them. I even every now and then pull them up and and uh, say a few words and see how the engine is coming along. Anthony, um, I, I want to because I know uh, good things has because uh, you've got some time here. You got a couple hours, correct? Me, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I'm at okay. the lab now. And and I want to turn back to Adrian because I mean I, I definitely want to get in and I, I know Adrian has a uh, um, I've known Anthony for some time now. I as Basically, as a, as a, I guess I was in grade school. My my dad was a, a scientist as well, and, and research scientist. And you know, I kind of grew up in that household. So I'll get into my a little bit, but really want to turn it over to good things back to Adrian too. And then Anthony, I'd like to narrow down into some of this. Uh, really, thank you for sharing this. I know, I mean, I know you very well. I brought, you know, Adrian tasked me to find some guys that truly have built AI and know what it is and. You know that it's not the boogeyman and where we truly are and you know both robotics and chat gtp and all the buzzwords that you like to hear and see and uh, so we're going to address today some of those fears and what's reality what's coming uh so i'm going to turn this back to adrian and, and good things and I'll, I'll i'll jump in when when it's appropriate but i've got uh i think we're here for a couple hours so thanks guys yep 
dude, honestly, it's amazing. There's actually one thing before we turn over to good things. There's one thing I wanted to ask you. When you were describing that this that this is kind of this kind of took on took on its own life that has developed its own agency in a sense did it actually develop its own agency and if so did, when it developed this kind of you know life as you call it did it scare you did it, did it frighten you or um there were several ghosts in the shell that we found while op- while working on this design things that we couldn't explain that we constantly had to go back through the code and just scour through everything to find out why it had certain behavioral elements. And um, if an engine model in the brain failed, uh, just say one of the engines out of the several, out of the hundred that were running failed, then it changed the behavior of the model. And, um, and sometimes uh, the engine model would pick up back on its own and then uh, we would and then it would uh, join in with the rest of the other engines and then the behavior would uh, come back. And then we realized, well, this is basically the same thing that happens in humans. So a certain segment of the brain may have a different neurochemical at a specific time and this changes or alters their behavior. Um, if you were to take uh, the brocus out of the brain then you wouldn't have the use of verbs. You wouldn't be able to say a verb. I know that sounds weird, but the brocus has a responsibility of being able to put verbs in your speech. And uh, it was named after the brocus because of uh, a civil war wound that happened to a a young soldier named Brocus who was hit in the head with a uh, ball that literally lodged into a part of the brain and he could speak, but he could only speak without verbs. And this is uh, when they figured this out. We've uh, we've come to understand uh, that different parts of the brain that have specific responsibilities can actually short circuit and change your behavior. And so our engine model would do the same thing. It would uh, actually have part of it. That's when I began to change and create uh, different brain models in evolution, like the paleomammalian complex or the neomammalian complex. We could actually only say if we only energized 27 components of the brain at that time in evolution, then we could get a picture of how humans would have probably acted at that time in evolution when their brain was only developed that far. So um, we, we learned so much. And if you Take that uh, antage, you know, uh, curiosity killed the cat. Well, I'm the cat that got killed. I literally was so curious about everything that I literally tested every, you know, possibility of uh, how we could uh, create the engine model to create its own verbal construct. And when we learned that we could actually create its own verbal construct, then we began to say, well, if, it, if the verbal construct can actually generate itself, can the event construct, the natural event construct, build its own uh, res- input-output response? And it's exactly the same. There's no difference between a natural language processor and the natural event processor. Both natural event processor and natural language processing at the same time can alter and change behavior of the conversational cluster. If I call it ugly and say you smell and say bad things to the engine, there are 27 variants of, you know, like melancholy or anger 
or happiness and so on and so forth that have different levels and we change those levels which alter the output it doesn't mean that the color of the sky changed it just means the way it delivers the output to you uh, in a disrespectful manner or a kind and polite manner based on uh, how its input stimuli uh, uh, goes in for it to create to generate the output but but still keep in mind no matter what it has always been a scripted engine. Uh, even though it scripts its own component input output, we still wrote the rules which tell it how to uh, construct those input outputs. Kind of like, you know, as you're growing up as a child, you're taught specific things. And then when you get to a certain stage, you start putting things together yourself. And uh, that's kind of what the engine does which that leads us to artificial intelligence safety and how we can move forward to develop engine models responsibly. I really like that we uh, cut into AI safety a little bit there with that last point. And with that, I would like to um, head to good things. Um, welcome to the space, thanks for coming. I'm, I'm very well aware that you must be remarkably busy given that you know the dimensions, it's out there now. So yeah, thanks for taking the time to come here today and participate in this space. It's truly amazing. I swear every time we host some of these spaces, they tend to get better and better over time. And that's, that's the goal. Uh, I try to bring in as, uh, the best people as possible, but, the, uh, but the, at the end of the day, it still depends on the people. It's like, you guys are amazing. You guys are the best. So with that, good things. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Adrian. And it's fascinating to, to listen to um, Anthony talk about the work that he's done. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of folks that have been working in AI for decades and decades. Um, and, you know, I, I'm one of these folks who I came to AI relatively recently. So my, my background is basically I was studying computer science at the uh, University of Washington uh, starting in um, uh, about 2016. And so I was pursuing a graduate degree um, in computer science and focusing on artificial neural networks and AI. And um, at the same time, I was working uh, at AWS um, as a business analyst. So I was working um, on, on a software engineering team, but not in the software engineering role. Um, but got to, lo got to see a lot of um, you know, the, the products and, and kind of the development cycle um, that Amazon and AWS was um, was doing in from basically 2017 to 2019 and um yeah it's it's really interesting like the the seattle area in particular has a ton of uh interesting um ai work that's being completed by all the, the companies and and definitely within um uh university of washington so my experience is basically working on a uh on an AI, ai algorithm that was focused on um, applications and structural biology so I worked on a, a project called uh, Deep Tracer, where basically we took um, three-dimensional images of protein structures that were produced by cryo-electromagnetic um, microscopes, so cryo-EM microscopes. These are microscopes that are, you know, they, I forget how much they cost, but multiple millions of dollars. So there's not a, a lot of them in the world. Um, and so producing these images of, of these um, very important, you know, proteins that scientists are studying. Um, it's pretty expensive because there's not a, there's not a ton of these machines out there. And um, the process 
prior to, you know, some of the work that we did and, and the work that, um, that, uh, Alphabet actually, um, Google's parent company, um, has been doing, um, it was a very manual process. So if you wanted to understand, um, you know, the three-dimensional structure of a protein, you want to actually create an accurate model of it. It was a very manual process. Um, it involved, you know, some of the most skilled sort of people in the world. Um, and again, there's not that many of them. So the, the workflow, you know, it, it could take anywhere from like weeks to months to create a single um, model for a given protein. And the reason this works important is because to understand the function of proteins, you need to know what the three-dimensional structure looks like. It's called the, uh, the protein folding, or um, I believe it's called the folding um, problem. And so um, basically our algorithm, we used uh, an artificial neural network um, and then post-processing, just some kind of uh, uh, different sort of search algorithms that we developed to basically predict the three-dimensional structure of a protein using, you know, kind of like a, um, a very rough model that comes from the microscope. And, um, you know, essentially we could, our, our algorithm could get to not a hundred percent accuracy, but very good accuracy to where it would speed up the process like exponentially. Um, so what would normally take like several days to weeks to months, depending on the structure, um, our algorithm could do it in less than five minutes. And so um, it's a huge, huge leap forward. I was very fortunate, you know, to work on this project with this team. Um, we actually licensed the, the product to a couple very large pharmaceutical companies. And we had um, people using our platform from all of the major universities uh, in the United States, as well as uh, the top science labs. Um, and while I was working on this, um, the uh, the folks um, at um, I'm blanking on the name, but it's it's under the Alphabet uh, company. Uh, they produced a, an algorithm called AlphaFold, um, and this was a like a huge huge breakthrough um, in in this in solving towards solving this folding pro problem. And essentially, this work is is very important because once once we're able to understand at scale um, how things like proteins work, um, in addition to other macromolecules, but proteins are very important. Uh, basically, it's, it's, it's the starting point for being able to manipulate um, and control our natural world in a way that we never have been able to before. So it'll open up um, the ability to solve diseases that were pre previously unsolvable, but it will also open up the possibility, you know, to kind of uh, control life. Um, and so there's there's a lot of power in this technology. Um, there's a lot of good that can be done with it. And then there's definitely, you know, some bad that can be done with it too. So um, that's kind of, that's kind of what I've, what I worked on for a couple of years. Um, now, obviously I'm, I'm working for our company uh, MetaGood and we're, we're working in the blockchain space. Um, but AI is something that I definitely am still very passionate about. And um, you know, it's, there's no, there's no doubt about it. Like AI is probably, um, the technology platform that's going to impact human life more than anything else um, that we've seen in history. And, you know, with things like ChatGPT, um, now you've got consumers using AI um, at a scale never seen before. And that's a very um, important thing to think about because, um, you know, just like all of the, the applications that we use every day on our phones and on our computers, um, most users don't really understand sort of how things work underneath the hood. And, you know, 
basically AI runs on data. And every time you use a software application, you're providing data. And so we are actually, as users, we're, we're, we're making these algorithms more powerful. And, um, you know, they have these, these algorithms have the ability to manipulate us as humans. Like they're very good at um, achieving their goal, depending, you know, whatever goal um, the person who's programming the algorithm gives, gives uh, the network. It's very, very good at achieving it. So it's something that as, as humans, like we have to, we're going to have to grapple with because not everyone needs to or, or should be an AI expert, but we do need to, as you, you know, as users of these applications, just as people who are using the internet, um, be aware of like kind of um, the implications of our own usage patterns, like uh, as a whole. And also, you know, we need to, we need to be able to, to ask, you know, like understand and be aware of, of how we can be manipulated by these things because um, social media is definitely uh, a very manipulative uh, platform. Um, there's, there's a lot of good that, that I think it's enabled for human beings, but also there's a lot of bad. So I'll stop there, but um, really excited uh, that you, that you um, organize the spaces and, and really appreciate you inviting me. There's a burning question on my mind, Rick, since, since we've just referenced ChatGPT. Um, from what I understand, uh, ChatGPT as a, the, like the, the thing that we like to conceptualize as a neural network, the sum of its parts seem to have generated a kind of effect that allows it to create confabulations, as in it just makes stuff up in order to solve a problem, much like a, a child would to just simply say, here, I sweep to the room, but instead of actually sweeping the room, the child just sweeps the dirt under the rug. So that, that's what ChatGPT is doing in a sense. It's just, it's just like reward hacking, essentially, just like a human being would, any, any human being would do a similar thing at least like, multiple times within their lives and may even still do that into adulthood because, of course, you have to lie. The world is basically competitive peer, peer, you know, PvP, <laughs> if you look at it this way. But like, is, is this correct, that in fact this thing is to an extent thinking? Is that, is that correct or...? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize it that way. Um, so the way I've you know I've I've been taught, and if you just if you kind of like go back and read, you know, um, there's there's so many things you could read about AI. But uh, basically, when you understand how an artificial neural network works, it, it's just pattern matching. And um, the thing the thing that about AI um, that everybody should know is that the people who are building the, these these incredibly powerful algorithms, engines, uh, networks, however you want to call them. Uh, we don't, we don't understand like nobody, even the people who are building it understand what they are doing. So what, what it's kind of a black box. So what, what you know is what data that you feed the network, what you train it on. Uh, so the data set that you give it as an input, and then you know what it outputs, you know what it tells you. Um, but you don't know exactly why it tells you that thing. And so essentially what's happening um, pretty much in all of these algorithms is we're giving them a goal and then we're giving them data so that they can achieve that goal. And when we're happy that they've achieved the goal, um, you know, we say that that's good. We stop training and then we basically let it just go out into the, whatever our, our um, whatever our application is, we let people use it or we use it ourselves and it makes predictions or it produces outputs. And as long as we're happy with those outputs, all is good. But we don't really understand why it's producing those outputs. So with something like ChatGPT, I, I, I use it for, for different things. Um, and 
you know, to, to be honest, like, uh, for me, for what I do, like, it's, it's not the most useful at this point. I do a lot of writing. And what it's doing is it's basically just giving me answers based on the data that it was trained on. And so if I need, um, you know, if I need something very specific that like maybe I have from my own experience, it, it can't really match, you know, what, what I, what I can, um, you know, how I write or whatever, but it is very good at like very general things, just like a search engine. Um, and so I, I, I think of ch- something like ChatGPT as just a very sophisticated search engine because um, it has a large data set that it's trained on. So you can ask it a lot of things. Um, and generally speaking, it can give you um, a reasonable answer, but um, it's very limited <clears throat> to to the data that it's trained on. And so, in fact, like, I don't know where it's at right now because I haven't been using it, uh, like trying to stretch it or trick it uh, le- lately, but basically it can't answer questions beyond the data that you feed it. So if if something that just happened yesterday um, you ask it about it and it hasn't been sort of retrained on data from yesterday about the thing you're asking about, it really can't answer that question. And just in general, um, these, these uh, AI networks or these algorithms, they cannot, they cannot produce anything like um, human abstraction or, or just abstraction in general. Uh, as far as I know, humans are the only animals or species on this, on this planet that can actually abstract, meaning, you know, you can take... Um, you can take uh, like old ideas and, and create new ones. Um, it may seem like it's, it's creating new ideas, but really, like I promise you, it's just basically using data that, that, it, that it was fed to it um, and producing uh, ideas from that data set. So we're, we're not, I, I don't think at this point, anywhere near you know, AGI, artificial general intelligence, where the machine can actually start thinking on its own. Um, but there are applications where it can it can seem like it's doing something um, that it's not. So, yeah. When it when it comes to building like anything, so I, I'd, I'd like to touch on the topic of AG, oh, sorry, uh, AI safety, right? So oftentimes we just look at the shiny new toy, and when you go to various types of meetings where people are trying to get funding for their own project, they do not ever speak about how safety can be assured, either by, you know, can this thing harm humans? Um, will the humans themselves come to harm as a result of utilizing this technology? And what can be done to, like, you know, mitigate that? Is there, is there anything we can do? Is there, is there something we can do to, like, you know, not have that happen, right? No, nobody ever talks about that. So what do you think could be done? Like, the, what, what do you think could be done with the construction? If you are, say, if let's say, for instance, I am going to build a project, anything it is, which I don't say I'm, yeah, let's just say I'm building anything, really. How would I best implement the concept of AI safety? How would I best do that? And how would I ensure that the team that I'm going to be doing this with would also do that in the same way that I would in the best way possible? Yeah, so there there is an area of, of AI research that's focused on this. Um, you know, I said earlier, there's there's really no way to fully understand why the network or algorithm is making the decision that it is making. Um, but there there have been numerous um, developments to try and help with that. Um, but as the as the language mo- or as the models get larger, like the data sets get larger, I, I think it's getting more and more difficult um, to understand. You know like what at all is happening inside the network while it's making decisions. 
Um, but as far as harming humans, you know, AI has, has most definitely harmed humans already, unfortunately. And uh, a, lot, a lot of that stems from the bias in the data set. So one, ex one simple example is there are um, parole systems in the United States that use AI algorithms to decide whether um, a parolee should be, you know, should, should stay in prison or, or should be set free on parole. And, um, you know, the data sets that, um, that, that, are, that the, the algorithm is trained on for making these decisions is incredibly, they, they've been shown and proven to be incredibly biased. And so humans that are being judged by those algorithms are, you know, kind of suffering from that bias. And there's a whole host of applications out there um, that, like, there's a whole, like, field of, of um, research that, that has shown, you know, like, the, the negative effects of bias in data sets that, that algorithms are trained on. So uh, one of the big things that, you know, it's not something that, like, the consumer can really do, but as, as people who are building this stuff, the companies, um, I guess as consumers we and constituents, uh, you know, we should be holding these folks accountable to ensure that they are, um, you know, basically showing in some way or form that their data sets are not biased or that they're somehow, um, you know, trying to uh, basically uh, account for the bias in the data set. Um, but, yeah, in general, I, I do think, like, we need we need a lot of um, – uh, scrutiny on these algorithms. The more power that the uh, that the technology starts to accrue, I think the more scrutiny is going to be required from us as humans. It's definitely not a, an easy problem to solve because you know our our government I think is relatively um, at this point um, they're they're relatively ignorant and and generally speaking like a lot of people are and when I say ignorant I mean just they don't know how things work. It's not that they're stupid, um, you know. So. As, it goes back to like the kind of fundamental thing of education. Like a lot of our problems in our society and our world, um, I think will be solved by education, but then you, you get to the question of like, okay, well, how do we solve the education problem? So um, it's, it's not an easy one to solve. It's something that um, really bothered me for a number of years. Um, and part of the reason I, I enjoy my job that I, that I have now where I'm working in the, in the blockchain and NFT space is because as you know, I'm, I'm a big people person and big on connecting people. And the more, I think the more connected we can become as human beings, um, I think naturally the education starts to happen. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, I went through um, multiple degree programs. So I'm a big fan of traditional education, but I also understand that, that that's not um, really a scalable solution. So yeah, I, I won't pretend to, to, to say I have any kind of uh, definitive solution for this problem, but it is one that I think we do need to think about. And um, and again, having spaces like this, I think, are a great way to, to start getting people more aware of it. And ultimately, that's always how the solution starts to anything. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this is something that I'd like to also expand upon. Like in the future, since you are well, quite knowledgeable on this subject, I'd like to. I, I don't know if you know anyone who could, you know, assist with this. Like, you know, find anyone who understands AI safety in the way that you know would allow them to explain it very accurately. Because I'd like to touch upon this because I have not seen a singular space on here other than my own that has addressed this. Maybe I haven't found that space yet because it's generally underturned. But 
I, I would like to expand upon this a lot more because I, I, it's, it's extremely relevant and it's also extremely difficult to understand, which is probably the reason why a lot of people don't speak of it because they are afraid that the audience will not understand it or will not like it. But I, I truly think, I truly believe that if people are able to truly understand what it is that they are doing, they can explain it in such a way that almost anyone can understand. Like if you're on here, uh, for, for me personally, it, I didn't truly understand the real value of ordinals until I had heard Danny Hewitt speak about it. The only reason why I understand that, like why I understand why this is so relevant and why I've become so fascinated with the concept is because of him, because of the way that he explained it, because he truly gets it. You know, everyone else kind of tries to maneuver around it because they don't truly get it themselves, but he gets it on such a deep level that it just really allows for a different type of understanding. The conceptualization of it really does help because we need to use metaphors because the problem with anything uh, spe specialization related is the fact that people don't necessarily know what you know. And so they do not have the frame of reference needed to understand what it is that is being spoken of. And that's why I think spaces like these are extremely important because we can try and conceptualize things in such a way that people can somehow navigate through this with their own frame of reference, like with a layman's frame of reference, which is really important. I, I appreciate it when people are able to do this. So if you could somehow find anyone who is able to do a similar thing for the subject of AI safety, it would be truly, it would be really great. Sorry. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, I have some old professors that, um, you know, they focused, um, for years on, on this subject. Um, love to try and get in touch with them and see. I, I don't think they do a lot of Twitter spaces, but um, yeah, I mean, I would just recommend like, you know, as, as always, um, there's a lot of great papers out there. So Google Scholar is a, a, a decent starting point. Um, and I'd be happy to, to kind of dig some up um, and share them with you, Adrian. Perfect, that would be absolutely amazing. I see we've got multiple hands up. <laughs> uh, one of the hands was mine. Um, it's actually the thing about AI safety, though, is there are a lot of different facets to it. So I'd be interested in hearing what, you know, what people are, people are most interested in in terms of, you know, because there, there are things like it, it ranges from everything to ethics, to misinformation, to security. Like there's a lot of different aspects to it. So that that would be my first question for you. Who wishes to take that question? <laughs> you know, I'll give this a shot. Uh, I think actually one of the most important things about AI safety is we have to understand that machine learning is only as good as the content that's been provided. As the internet seems to become more and more closed off, we're going to have more issues with if it just turns into an echo chamber, the AI turns into an echo chamber. From my understanding of you guys explaining it, the AI is merely just a very sophisticated calculator similar to doing math by hand. It can create equations, it can create functions, it can go ahead and solve problems, but it's ultimately going to be left limited to the knowledge that you provide to it. So it's really important that we provide taking uh, advantage of things like inscribing on the Ordinals network or else create new platforms like what we're doing with Mice Media. We're trying to create decentralized media storage and a place especially like with what's been going on with uh twitter spaces being opened up and more and more people becoming unbanned or a better review process uh 
this would be a big deal for us to have in the future. We really need to safeguard the creation of content. So those of you who are in charge of creating the AI have better information for it to scrape and analyze to form a well-balanced opinion, in my opinion. Anthony, go ahead. You're muted, buddy. Uh, yeah. Um, so I can kind of tell you that how we were able to try to take a lot of the bias out of the engine that we were developing was basically um, when the conversation was occurring, there were rules that were written that the responses given by the human host that was communicating to the engine uh, would actually record their inputs. And then we would take those inputs and run what's called comparators. So let's say that an input occurred from a person uh, that it, the engine was talking to, and there was no response. There was no pattern that was matching to the input. To the input, so it couldn't give a cognitive response. Um, there, the number one rule in artificial intelligence is you don't want to say "I don't know," or try to divert it and say "ask that in another way" or whatever, because that just basically shows that it's an NLP. So. What we did was, is we said, okay, well, let's cue that input that we don't know the answer to and say, we'll find the answer to that. Now, in order to find the answer without bias, it would basically uh, look at the uh, general population and ask the same question that it did not know the answer to. When it asked these uh, uh, questions out to the populace and the populace responded, it would look at all of their inputs and then look at the comparisons of the word vernaculars that were used to determine a generalized output based on society's um, preface as to what the answer might be or the correct answer might be. It doesn't mean that the output would be correct, but it does mean that the output came from a multiplicity of, um, of inputs that came from different uh, they came from uh, different sources. And so this way we could not control what the final response was. Once the engine had a pattern match of greater than 70%, it then rewrote a new rule for the cluster and then added it into the conversation cluster. So the next time it was asked, it used the general populace of uh, input as the output response. As Asking as a layman or somewhat uh, smooth brain uh, expert, uh, are there any safeguards currently being in development or in place? Because a 70% sounds like it sounds democratic, but ultimately reminds me of two wolves in a sheep <laughs> voting over what's for dinner. Uh, yeah, are there exactly. Any no, safeguards exactly. designed for that? Um, yeah, no, we, uh, we do have, uh, first of all, have to understand that uh, the engine models that were changing we uh, kept finite models in specific locations so that we could basically observe them to see how they were evolving. Because you have to understand when we were developing this, it was early on and we didn't know what we were going to get. Uh, I may have written the original engine, but the engine years later was nothing like the original engine that I created. And, and uh, please understand that uh, the rule sets and everything which created the outputs were done by hundreds and hundreds of developers. Uh, so we began uh, compiling uh, teams of, of uh, developers, training them in our new language model. And then uh, and, and try to think of it like this. You have a, 
uh, Law Library in Chicago. You have the AutoZone Library for cars uh, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, you may have a Judeo-Christianic Library in Phoenix, Arizona. You have these different libraries that our engine pools from. And so uh, at different locations all over the web, we had a scraper model, which would basically grab content data and then convert it into our language model so that it can converse intelligently about that. So we were scraping entire, you know, uh, a thousand different types of Bibles in the Christian engine in the uh, Islamic engine, we were uh, looking at three different Qurans that we were rewriting uh, into AI models. Uh, we were looking at all of the different data that was available out there, and we were just simply converting it into scripting input output so that we could uh, have some type of intelligent content that we could uh, converse with. Uh, however, there were a lot of times, you know, that uh, uh, the engine uh, – would get responses that we would say, okay, well, I think that's a little bit far. We need to scrap that part out of it. And then we would uh, manually just go in there and script it. But try to understand that once all the models were done, there were, if you had 100 million scripting rule clusters, then trying to find every single rule cluster would be futile because it would take you forever and you wouldn't know. So we could only scan specific parts of the engine and try to, you know, uh, limit specific word usages and things like that so that it didn't uh, put out an output, you know, like we censored its output basically. So even though it may seem like a democratic model, uh, it, it could easily be controlled through algorithms, similar to the way you get censured on the internet when you say things that uh, certain uh, publishers don't like, if that makes any sense. This seems like a difficult paradox because, I mean, in sports betting, they always say that a general rule is to fade the public and you would win on the end of the year. But, uh, yeah. you know, and then on this, uh, if you're scanning different directories, I mean, I assume that LexisNexis was one of the first ones that you guys went through. Uh, or some of these larger periodical databases for the education systems. Uh, it seems like a lot of that stuff. Seems like a lot of that stuff could be narrative driven as well, combined with uh, hu human interface on picking out, you know, what output gets thrown out. Wow, this is wild. So, would you say that these uh, the current AI was built upon that infrastructure from back then? So we're years in advance from that original uh, lane blocks of it? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, everything that you see today uh, are based on pattern matching, everything. Uh, we use probability Booleans uh, and the Booleans have weights. And so any type of input or verbal input, uh, re no matter how much content you input, um, it breaks those sentence structures up into probability Booleans. Here's a simple example of how it does that. Uh, you can ask a question, why is the sky blue? But you could ask that question a hundred different ways. The sky is blue. Can you tell me why? I want to know why the sky is blue. Please tell me why the sky is blue. Things like this. The, the probability is why sky and blue or, or blue sky, why? Uh, there are asterisks, which um, these asterisks go between the words and then the Boolean weight gets weighted. So let's say it's B colon 50 asterisk Y asterisk sky asterisk blue or uh, asterisk blue asterisk sky asterisk Y. 
and uh, the wild cards basically uh, take the other word variants that may uh, be inputted and discards them. Uh, so in, in reality, you can converse uh, without uh, a single verb. You don't need to convert, uh, converse with verbs or even adjectives. Uh, you just basically need uh, some type of uh, noun structure that you can put together. Uh, or uh, you could say, well, I just need an adjective and a noun, but I don't need a verb. Or I need a verb and a noun, but I don't need an adjective. And if you put these together in specific ways, then someone could say anything. And as long as the probability Boolean matches the uh, pattern that's in the engine model, well, then it'll say, okay, well, that's one input recognition. And if it's in part of a paragraph input, then uh, it can break that up exactly the same way. And so each time the pattern matches in the engine, then it's, it puts out an output, but then it takes the next, uh, the next sentence and then does the exact same thing to it, and then takes the next sentence, it does the exact same thing to it, and then it constructs an output from the conversation cluster in the neural net. So now the neural net begins to assemble the output. Now that output, believe it or not, is now created a single output, which is reinserted back into its engine. And this is known as Bayesian model. And so the Bayesian model basically now re-outputs a new output to a single uh, output structure. So that's kind of how it creates summary. It uh, can summarize an entire paragraph, or uh, if you if you gave it a novel and say, please summarize this into a single paragraph, then it's a search engine in reverse. Uh, so whereas you put a little bit into a search engine, it gives you a lot of different probabilities of what you may be looking for. Uh, natural language processor is just the exact opposite. You put in a lot of data and it just gives you a little bit of input uh, summary uh, on the output. It, it seems like what you're describing is structurally, it seems to not have much weight if at all weight on context. And, you know, there's a saying that context is king. Uh, how do you feel about this uh, structure ultimately if it starts, you know, there's things like people using chat GPT for educational assignments or even people using it for law prep. If these documents become more into circulation with uh, the language learning module as is being the structure that we start creating information off of. Is there anything? Yeah. Is, yeah. Do you see where I'm going with this? Absolutely. But I, I also see though, that this uh, will lead to a new type of what's called, and you know, you've heard of, you know, augmented reality. We're going to have augmented intelligence uh, using things uh, like uh, banners or brain adaptive neural network electrical vision stimulation will actually create direct neural links into the brain uh, through vibrational tactile inputs that uh, you will be able to augment your output intelligence by simply, it's kind of like that little cochlear implant or that thing that goes on the back of your head that oscillates your skulls, uh, your tem uh, temporal uh, 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 vibration that uh, creates a sound in a, in a deaf person's uh, head that they reconstruct as a, an audible input, um, you will be talking to somebody and everybody will be augmentally plugged into intelligence and everybody will know everything <laughs> that everyone else knows. So you could actually get asked a question that you don't even know the foggiest clue of what the answer is. What is covariance squared uh, equal to the sum of the frequency x minus bar x squared? Next thing you know, you're 
telling them about probability mathematical statistics they, <laughs> that you don't even know the answer to. So this is probably the future uh, where AI is leading to. It's going to be augmented intelligence. This is where uh, augmented reality and augmented intelligence will come together and make everybody super intelligent, even though they don't know what the words coming out of their mouth. I, I so was going to be a hive mind. So it's like, it's like a hive mind, basically. Exactly. Exactly. I, I was going to ask you about that. You know, it's it's been the exa uh, example of like, if you don't know the the color aquamarine, it's just a blue or a green to you. You you can't conceptualize it, so you can't understand it. If we're having this augmented reality, if we don't understand the things that we are thinking, it doesn't feel like we're actually thinking it or comprehending it. Isn't that, are we just kind of going through life, turning in other people's homework? Uh, I, you know, I think though that if you think really deeply think about it, that's what we are anyway. We just have figured out, you know, humanistically in our memories, how to reconstruct it for an output. But re in reality, everything we say, everything we do is based on our, you know, ancestry, everything we've learned, our life experiences, everything. And I guess an AI engine model that we're developing today uh, is basically we follow the same premise. Uh, it learns and it uh, gathers information and outputs intelligence from what it learns. We're we're developing the back end of our artificial intelligent engine a little bit differently as we want uh, a global uh, consensus of information. We don't want it, its biases to come from only a group. We want it to come from everyone. We want everyone to participate and everyone to be a part of what it becomes. Because of this, we can't make a prediction of what it will be you know, 20 years from now, because we don't know what the world will be like 20 years from now. All we can do is, is create the construct of the model to uh, gather the data and then reassemble it uh, for, you know, future generations to be able to converse with it. And I think it will evolve the same just as, uh, as humans do. I appreciate you giving that answer because you took it from level 10 scary to about level 8.5 scary with that answer. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, putting into context was king in this situation. So thank you very much. Uh, Regina, I'll give the floor. Hey there. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, hey, I just published a uh, academic paper here um, called Weapons and Mass Confusion. Uh, not a hater on AI at all. I love this tech. I've been working on this for a while. But what the paper talks about is what he was saying before, which is, if you feed it bad data, you're going to get bad data. And unfortunately, that can be weaponized globally by dictators and people who want to spread misinformation. Um, so the discussion, the findings are all on there. But not to scare anyone, but I just did this study, ran it with about 260 U.S. adults, where I created like fake journalists that are AI bots I wanted to see who was, who was going to bite on the misinformation. Guess what? 86% of people bought, bit the misinformation bullet, spread the misinformation. So not to concern anybody, um, but we need to do something to increase people's education and critical thinking in terms, in a world where, you know, we're going to have a cyber war with AI bots. I get it. So um, anyway, thank you so you, much, you everybody. 
<clears throat> you didn't need to create fake journalists. They still have cable networks from what I remember. <laughs> uh, I, I completely understand. No, it was just for the, the methodologies of, of the study. But um, additionally, um, uh, yeah, I love this group. This is great. And by the way, I have, uh, I'm speaking at five conferences this week in San Francisco. I have passes, guest passes free. If anybody wants them, I don't want them to go away. So, go right, Queen. Guys. Great job. Good, good to be getting on stage and educating the masses. Uh, Anthony, I was going to ask you about, you know, sh she brought up a good point on these uh, about the input on it and the out. What's your take on a lot of these algos that they're using on the social medias uh, already to kind of create a narrative and create AI information to create? A narrative which is creating more input that people are putting onto their content is this algorithmic based learning that we're currently doing how much damage do you think it's having on the forefront of ai for the creation in the future there's a problem with using the term misinformation and the problem is is that we don't it, it is a, a definitely a paradox we don't know uh whether or not uh the mis what we call misinformation is really misinformation. We can look at the evidence for ourselves and decide for ourselves what we believe to be true. But uh, what other people may perceive may not see what you see as being true. And so a person can uh, say words that don't align with reality and, and then someone else may look at that and go, well, that's misinformation. And, we look at it and say, well, who is the one deciding that that is misinformation? Who's the one that's that's coming up with it? The only one that would really know is the one that truly knows the truth, not the ones that are trying to say, well, that shouldn't be said. I think that this should always be left to the individual to decide for themselves what reality is. And the sad thing about it is, is that a lot of them will be misled. A lot of them will, uh, you know, go down that uh, rabbit hole and they will they will not know the difference between what is real and what isn't and we see this happening today uh, literally everywhere it's 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 incredible how uh, how we look at you know the perception of our reality versus what we see you know we we see with our eyes we hear with our ears and then we read something that is completely juxtaposed to everything that we just saw and heard and and we ask ourselves, well, how do they how do they come to these conclusions and why would they write these things if if we ourselves don't believe them to be true? And so we had to be very careful about, you know, who we say, well, you're not telling the truth because uh, maybe they are. We don't know. There are only three possibilities. Either they're lying or they're partially lying or they're telling the truth. That's the only three probabilities. And I think that. Uh, that humans should be the ones to make that decision for themselves as to what they believe to be true and what's not. Yeah, not only that, but I mean, a, a lot of the time information or anything that is um, often purported to be a truth is just purported to be such a truth because of some sort of statistical, you know, it's a statistical problem, really, where you say you're trying to figure out the least wrong truth. And then instead of going to logic, you basically adopt a conflation and you say, hey, I'm going to use common sense to say, hey, what does the mass believe over 
what is actually true. I mean, at some point, the masses did believe that the Earth was flat, didn't think further into it. And so you say, okay, the Earth is flat. That doesn't exactly make it true. It's just a popularity contest of information. Like, and, and also, there's another thing that comes to this. I think education is the most important thing ever. Just because someone is an expert does not mean that you cannot have an opinion on it or even look into it. Like I, I do implore everyone to look into every single thing that is claimed as a fact out there because for you to understand something is extremely important. You mustn't limit yourself just because someone tells you to. It's, it, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. You want to be safe, don't you? You want to know what is going on, then you must inform yourself and you must you know, truly try to learn, even if it is difficult. And who knows, you may come up with something, you may discover that you have a really good ability, and then at some point, you yourself will become a specialist in a specific field, and then you might even shape the world into something better as a result of your contributions in that field. So I would definitely say it, it does also goes to experts themselves. I, I truly believe that an individual who's an expert is one that can explain any concept to anyone without having to say, hey, I'm an expert, listen to me. That's the thing. Like, if you can make it stick without needing to say that, then you truly get it. And then you are truly able to explain it. Thereby, I would see you as someone who has the expertise needed in order to be even termed as an expert, because it's a very fine line of who knows the most and is what is known in fact true and how did you come to the conclusion of those things that are known to be in fact truth? Um, can I respond? Sorry. Uh, sure. Yeah, so uh, the thing is, right, people have their own motivation for spreading misinformation. I know you guys said it's subjective, but if I was to make a deep fake of you doing a porn, would you consider that misinformation or, or is that in my own reality the truth? Because that doesn't really make a lot of sense, to be honest. Um, additionally, like another idea is like, look, let's say I want Apple st stock to go down. Okay, I make a deep fake of Steve Jobs saying, "Hey, I'm still alive. They got they have me locked in a cage." I mean, are are we gonna just buy that, or are we gonna say, "Well, you know, they have freedom of speech." And say whatever they want. I mean, I don't know, right? The thing is, a lot of people in the U.S., as evidenced by my study, will take whatever data that they are fed and they will say, okay, that's true, right? And unfortunately, that's because we've been really deprioritizing critical thinking and education. And uh, I see it on all the time on this platform. Hey, everybody, buy my $5,000 chat GPT course. Oh, totally not a scam, right? And no hate at all for anyone. I, I understand that some truths are totally subjective. Not all of them, right? Uh, you know, it, it's not, that's not how it works where all truth is subjective. And so I just wanted to get this out of the ivory tower and bring this into reality and say, hey, if I do use AI to come up with fake information to bring your stock price down, I don't, I, I don't really think that's a good thing to do. I don't know. Just throw that. Who becomes the arbiter? I would actually, I would actually say the contrary. It's really good because 
uh, a lot of the times when you see, when you look at any project such as you know a shitcoin or anything like that, but it's often turned as a shitcoin. The thing that really gives it success is when people are standing against it, and especially when people write these threads, which are often termed fud threads because they just make no sense whatsoever. This gives them publicity because unfortunately humans do jump upon hate relatively quickly, and so I think this is something that is in fact beneficial. If someone wants to make an accusation, if someone wants to create false information. Let them. Let them. If you, if you truly have the facts, you can disprove it. Okay, okay, Adrian. So you are okay with a deep fake porn being made of you and distributed to 500 porn sites. You're cool with that. That's okay with you. You can take I my image. I, I, okay. can take, I, I can take legal action against that if it is something that impacts No, actually, life. it's not illegal but, at this point, Adrian. That's okay, the well, then I'm, that's, that's just not. reality. <laughs> Well, then that's just unfortunate because that's what is it is. Is it unfortunate? Right. I yes. thought we had well, free speech. I'm confused. Well, it is unfortunate, but again, let them be expressed See, as look, they are. Look, if there's, me, if there's just, an defect out there, then let it be. Make this a little bit real for you. Okay. I'm totally anti-censorship. However, it's unsettling for people, right, to do certain things like that. It may, It's... It feels uncomfortable. And unfortunately, it's not illegal to do this right now. It's not. There's no laws. That's where we are with AI safety. There's no laws. There's no laws about your privacy, your data, nothing. Nothing. So I I get it. Like, yeah, free speech. I love free speech, too. It's great. But I think there's there's some lines there that are going to be crossed if a little bit, you know, we're a little bit doing too much with that. So, yeah. Yeah, but again, I'd, I'd like to go back on that point where you said, if there's a porn video out there, then it's just out there. It's not me, and I can clearly prove it isn't myself doing that. Um, I understand, sir. I'd like to finish, like to finish the, the point. On here, there are quite a lot of accusations on me, about me, very sick. I, I don't care that it exists out there. Most of the times I just ignore it. I don't interact with it. And if someone does, in fact, bring out anything against me that is, in fact, incorrect, I address it. And if they want to have a rebuttal to that, I don't care. I simply just leave it at that. And you've got my statement. You've got my information. You've got what it is. If someone is duplicating my voice or using my image like this in order to create a deep fake of anything, really, that's just what it is. It's okay. It doesn't matter. It's just like a lie. So All lies okay are that. the same. I am okay with that. You're yes. okay with it. You're consent. I'm okay with that. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm not okay with the fact that it, will, that it will exist. I would like it not to exist, but it doesn't matter if it does exist. Then, hey, that's just reality. Do you don't think it like affects you like in any way? Oh, it would affect me in a way, for sure. Okay. But is what is. I could just simply prove it not to be real. Do I not have that? But don't you think there's a harm in the people that would see it and believe it was real? Don't you think that? Well, I mean, again, that really harkens back to the original point that I've made, including also your own point, which kind of reinforces it. If people know better, they know better. Do you have to go on a porn site? Do you have to go look at that? Why do you look at that? It's like, I mean, I if don't... you're on a porn site, you're born. Sure, I'm not there. affiliated <laughs> with that. But let me say that this kind of <laughs> stuff kind of can be weaponized against people. That's what I'm saying. I well, don't I know mean, why is this not like computing here? I mean, I just, well, I'm just I think this can be weaponized. Isn't a, false, isn't a false rape accusation on the same level? 
Would you would you agree that there should be a law on that? Okay, let's say that there is this kind of threat out there. Let's say that there is in fact, you know, real personal damage that not can that cannot only be done to the individual whose image likeness has been used and his voice has been used to create this really terrible person. Let's let's say that this is that this does exist. Is it not on the same level as false rape allegations? And if that was so, would you also do something against that? I don't study that. And I'm not experienced with that part of the law, so I don't know about that. But what I do know is I study AI, and there are a lot of ways it can be weaponized. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, of course. Well, even if you're comfortable with deep fake porn of you, a lot of people would find that unsettling. Probably most people, to be honest. Well, true. But then again, I mean, hey, if you put so much information of yourself on the internet, then that's kind of an issue in a sense. And I think if you are in fact, putting out so much information that, that it can be used put, to train an AI, then that is kind so you of, you know, you've built your insecurity. Pictures on the internet of them just smiling regularly, you think you think they deserve to have deepfakes of them? No, but I'm just saying that when you are publishing information and making it public, you yourself, you have to understand that it is out there. It is the internet. People should know that this might be misconstrued. If I put an image out there of myself, like for instance, let's take someone like Frank Degas. His image was put, put out there and everyone's uh-huh. making memes of it. Does he feel comfortable with those memes? He doesn't say anything about it, but it is out there. Anyone's face, your face, my face. So if it is out there, because it will your be face is out there, it's okay to use it for anything. Right. No, I'm just saying that it is an inevitability that you cannot prevent necessarily. And if it exists out there, it exists. And if I can say something that can disprove the existences of so my own volition, then that is what it you. is. What Regina, that about? existed before AI existed. Just so you Hold know, on like... Just a second. Hold on deep, just a second. I, I just want to make sure you realize just that minute, that happened ma'am. before AI. You do know that, right? Ma'am, can, can I respond to you in a second after I'm finished? Sure, I just um, wanted to clarify that. That's something that yeah. was prior to AI. I just wanted to make sure you realize that. There, there are That's laws great. also. Um, there are laws as well. No, I also, I was just, I'm just bringing up an idea to ask people if they find it unsettling or not. That's all I'm saying. So additionally, I just think, to be honest, you can create a deep fake if I just see a picture of you eating lunch and I take a, and I take a picture of you and I just see you in person. That do you think people would find that concerning at all? You think people are I think that technology already, already exists. Yeah, that wasn't the topic. The topic was also, about I think... why I came up. I have a document I'm going to drop in the files where it, like sorry. I the laws are going to be in the comments. Yeah, no, I I am excited if there's a lot of cool laws coming, and that's really interesting. I just want to say, for the most part, the regulation is not on par with where we're at technologically, to be honest. Hmm. I mean, the same goes for crypto. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I just wanted to speak as to the legal issues. Um, one always depends on jurisdiction. Also, none of this is legal advice. Um, however, there are laws that can apply to, to deep, fake, deep fake pornography. Um, there are uh, civil torts. Uh, casting someone in a false light is a tort. 
Um, there are also revenge porn laws uh, that could apply to the situation, depending on the jurisdiction. Um, there are also other laws, harassment laws that can apply uh, depending on the jurisdiction once again. Um, and depending on the distribution, depending like if somebody is really trying to damage a person's reputation, there are a lot of legal options available to to address that. Um, and so somebody who is experiencing that should talk to an actual attorney who's licensed in their jurisdiction um, to see what their options are, because that's not true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are I don't you an attorney? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Are you? Yes, I am. I'm a yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So have you talked to an attorney about this issue? as a victim? I, I give advice about this issue. Um, and it depends yeah. on the situation. It depends on the jurisdiction that the person is in. Um, okay. So, so. I'm just going to push back on that and say that that only is relevant if you actually can pin down the jurisdiction of the person doing it. If you can't, then who are you going to bring a claim against for harassment so, if you can't identify the person yeah, creating it? That is absolutely an issue. You 100% need to be able to identify the person who is who is doing this stuff, and people can hide their identities. Um, and the uh, ability of somebody to be anonymous on the internet and distribute something like this can protect them from the liability but but that's not the law saying that they're not liable it's it's a factual problem with being able to identify them um so there are a lot of cases where these are not actionable um however only by talking to an attorney an actual licensed attorney who knows what the law is can you actually discover what your options are and see whether or not you can do something about it now, depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the facts, that might not be an option. However, categorically saying that there are no laws is just, it's, that is categorically untrue. So, so Respectfully, if I, if I, I may harken back on this, no, hang on a second. If I may harken back on this, this is actually really interesting. So this is why education, I think personally, is extremely important because by what has just been discovered, you yourself have just spread misinformation by accident because you have not been able to state the full story. So I think it is really important to like address that as well. So by an extent, you have indeed contributed to misinformation. Even if it was not intentionally, you'd be one of the 80% in your own study. So this is, this is just a show of that humans are in fact vulnerable to this, any human. And I think this is really interesting. This is a really cool demonstration of human nature, in my own opinion. Like, isn't this fascinating? Hey, respectfully, what I am trying to say is that there are no effective laws for women. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, then you should have said that. But you didn't say wait, hold on. Let's not jump effective. on this woman. This is really there, there's not no effective law. laws for men against false accusations either. I think it's really inappropriate. This woman is trying to speak out. I don't even know who she is, but to accuse her of misinformation when she's trying to make a valid point is completely inappropriate. And I'm going to be honest, that is not an accusation. I feel that extremely uncomfortable with some of the things that men have said in here. I just I do don't too. feel comfortable right now. Honestly, I, I, I just don't because this guy is saying it's okay to do deep it's fake porn. Okay. That's making it's me really unsettled, to be honest. I, I don't disagree. He didn't say it's okay to do it. He said that it, it can happen with the technology. He's defending it. He's literally no, defending it. No, he's not defending it. He's defending I'm over it. I wish you guys the best. Good luck with everything. Okay. <laughs> so first off, I was not defending the creation of such... Uh, dangerous content. I was just simply stating the obvious fact that this kind of content will in, will exist out there. 
at some point. If I make my face more public over time and I become a public figure, there will probably be deepfake porn out there. I can, in fact, go out on record and state that that is, in fact, not me. Whether or not I will pursue legal action against that is entirely dependent upon what options I'm able to explore. But it is, in fact, noteworthy to, to understand this one particular point. I asked, I simply said, and I already knew this before, that you could have legal options. And upon me stating this, there was a response. And that response was that I do not have legal options, stated by Regina and, support, and support, supported by Christina. This was, in fact, false and would, in fact, be, by its very definition and clarification, misinformation or disinformation, whichever seems to be more accurate in this moment. I cannot accurately you know, pin it down at this moment, so do uh, fact check me on that later. But this is, in fact, either misinformation or disinformation, and it is not an accusation. It is a fact. And this is all recorded for those of you who are curious, you can re-listen, and we can clear this up at a later date. You just had a woman leave. Is it okay if I speak? Go ahead, please. Okay, well, uh, thank you. I appreciate you uh, bringing this topic up. And I honestly came to kind of take the lady's side on the fact that it's scary. But um, I wanted to also take the side on the fact that it is it is illegal. It's defamation of character. And um, at the end of the day, if somebody and somebody has used my real image, my actual picture, to make a dating app, to make a site, which they've done many times because I've been in the internet for 15 years. So this has happened to me many times to the point that my picture you're looking at right now is not me, it's AI. And every time a man messages me, I say, oh, you like my photo? Well, that's actually a computer. So I guess we can skip past that now. And uh, is that... Is that what I want? No, but that's what I do. And I, it's, it's just the point of like, you know, I want to acknowledge that the ladies have a point. It's just that being on both sides of like the real web, I guess, web two, and then this, it's not different at all. Um, so if somebody is going to make a deep fake of me and it makes a hundred million dollars, pay me. If I, if I know it makes a hundred million dollars, I know who you are and I want to get paid. So that, that's my, that's my point. Make, make a deep fake, make, you know, that's my point, honestly, because I'm going to just troll you. Like I'm trolling everyone with my AI picture and I'm going to say, Hey, um, I'm going to need that money. And if you didn't do that, I don't care. Cause then obviously you're invalid. And that that's happened to me on like so many sites where people have been like, Oh, this isn't you. Hey, uh, I've had somebody, my mom be like, Taylor, are you on a dating app? And I was, I was like, no. And so, yeah, I guess that's been a thing for women. And so I don't want to discredit the women. I just wanted to justify the laws that do exist in case they, in case this does happen to a woman. I want to say, hey, you've got a right to say, hey, you, no, this is my image. If somebody makes money like off of your image, you've got a right there. So consent only to top level marketers. You heard it here first. Uh, that's a great point there. And uh, deep fakes affect men very much as well. There's lots of false accusations. Uh, I'll tell you right now from my previous career as a pro wrestler. I've had a million strange text messages sent to my box when I was on TV uh, and people making deep fakes, pictures of me getting in my underwear, pictures of me in or my uh, trunks, pictures of me in strange uh, photoshops and whatnot. It's part of putting yourself out in public perception. It's you got to decide whether the juice is worth the squeeze. Uh, Lawyer cat, your hands up. Let's see you next. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to say kind of along the lines of what has previously been said, um, like there was a categorical statement made about the law that was not true. And that that's what I came up to address. Um, you know, it's potentially very harmful to give legal advice when you're not an attorney and tell people that there are no laws covering something because somebody in that situation might have recourse. The person who posts the video might be identifiable. If that's the case, there are options. And so for people to be told that they have no options when they do potentially have options, you're potentially leaving somebody in a hopeless and damaging situation when they could get help. So it is a hopeless and damaging think situation. about the actual think about the actual impacts when people are able to get help. There are cases that have been people successful. aren't able to get help. That is not categorically true. And if people act like they're helpless, then they're not going to get help. Excuse me, if However, people act like they're helpless, did you just actually say that? Yes, I did actually say that because I'm an attorney and I've wow. seen people. Need. I don't. Do you I talk think talk down to your clients like this as an attorney. I, no, you're not his client, though. So I'm confused about the issue because I came up to say the same thing in an attempt to defend women that are listening. Honestly, because I don't want anybody. Yeah, to I don't agree with what you said, though. You don't I have mean, to agree. Basically, with it. Oh, basically what I'm hearing from the speakers on this stage is that if you're a woman and a public figure, you should just expect that this is going to happen to you, and it's your fault for putting your face out there for years. I don't. Mm -hmm. Incorrect. What I was simply stating, this was referred to me. This was not referred to women or any specific gender. This was referred to me. This question was to me, and I answered it on my behalf, not anyone else's behalf. This question was meant for me. This question was made for me. This question was answered by me, on my behalf, for me, and no one else. Again, another case of misinformation. Would you like to respond to that? Or <laughs> no, I don't think they'd like to come up and kind of yell a little bit. It doesn't really matter if there's facts, because obviously when Lawyer Cart when Lawyer Cat um, <clears throat> was stating facts, um, they can't they can't handle it. I mean, this is a recorded space, so you know it'd be nice to take some samples and maybe put those forward. Um, and tag those individuals so they can maybe listen back to their responses and the questions. Yeah, I mean, this is a specific, I think this is very dangerous. I think there, there definitely is a danger for misinformation and such because we've just seen an individual out here who has created a study on the very subject who then, in fact, did misconstrue facts, or I didn't say misconstrue them, I'm not entirely certain of that, uh, but what I am certain of is that certain facts were left out either to feed a narrative or as a lack of education on the specific subject that you are literally posting a study on. I mean, if you have an opinion and you cannot back that opinion up with facts or, in fact, be able to put yourself out there into public scrutiny, then that, I think, is not, it does not necessarily instill within me a lot of faith in what it is that will come from such an individual. It just makes me kind of scared. Like, I think... I am more afraid of what a human being would do if they lack education than what a machine would do if it was simply educated on content that itself was generated by a human with this kind of error within them. Because you are not God and you could never know everything. It's interesting. We actually deal with this three nights a week on the Fresh and Fit show. Uh, with the Notorious Red Pill. We've had Andrew Tate on a few times. And there's something that is a theme that always comes up. Uh, oftentimes, you know, women communicate socially with a different context than men 
communicate to each other. We just have different sentence structures, different brain structures. We think differently. And a key point that came up here is what we have every single show. It wasn't what was said. It was how it was said. Now, the how it was said does not affect the what what was said. We print it out on a transcript. We read it out. It was contextually true. It was factually true. It was the law. However, how it was said came off mean, came off insensitive, came off a little flat, and that triggered her. And instinctually, everyone joined together and got triggered until everyone took a second, thought it through. Now, whether or not you liked how it was said doesn't really matter. It's what was said that matters. Indeed, I mean, context does matter, in, in, and intent as well. I mean, this is also something that is dangerous when it comes to AI in general. What you intend for the AI to do is not necessarily what it would do. You have to be very, you have to, you have to be very literal in what it is that you are trying to, you know, get it to do, or what you are building it to do. Right? I think I'm not not certain if there's a lot of truth to this, but this is generally my knowledge on the subject. Anthony, if you if you may. Uh, Adrian, if I may add something, um, let's all just take a chill pill and relax and take a breath. What a what a beautiful time to talk about all of these things. And I just noticed Laura Cat just changed his profile picture to something else, which is also really good. And um, just my little uh, piece of opinion is that it's not really about gender. It's not about men and women. It's all about our, our human being human and our connections with ourselves, with each other, and then also the technologies that we're developing. And, you know, AI, technology, Photoshop, they're all just a representation and reflection of us. Uh, we're, we're making them in our image. And we're creating conflicts because there's always something missing. Um, and I think this whole topic around the deep fake stuff is quite silly, actually. Sure, you, you, you can be against it. You might not like it. Some people will abuse it. You don't have to be okay or against it. You just have to accept that it can happen. Darkness is always there, but so has light. So you can shed all of that off. Um, if you want to pursue it, get a lawyer to sort it out. You can, as Adrian said, just simply, you know, acknowledge it on your Twitter that, hey, this is not me, and then just deal with it. It, it doesn't matter really if, if it's illegal or not. Unfortunately, a lot of things are, are illegal, uh, but then a lot of things are legal, which might not be, uh, shouldn't be uh, legal, but they are. You know, other people are making decisions over that. So we've got to be fine with that and just, just relax. If you, if you don't like your deep fake porn uh, showing up, Guess what? You can't do anything about it. And, and it's Web3. Uh, people might not be identifiable, right? So you just got to do what you got to do, but have your peace of mind and just breathe and you're alive. You're eternal. Thank you. Additionally, I'd also say, I mean, to the same extent, I just see it as something that is inevitable. It just exists, right? Like, is it okay? No, not, not, not at all. But it does exist. So what do you do about it? Like, it's just... That's just what it was all about. I mean, for instance, like, like this, you know, I'm not okay with dying. I don't want to die. I want to live a lot longer. I want to be able to do basically everything. I want to know everything. That's, that's something with me. I really do want to know everything. My curiosity is virtually unlimited. I want to know everything. That's the thing. Even if it's painful, I, I genuinely put myself out there just to know. Yeah, this is why I'm in this Web3 space anyway. It's confusing as all hell. 
and it is really difficult to you know get a foot to like to, to stand on something solid because everything keeps changing and i mean once you do find something that's when you've truly made it i mean over time you'll find that some people become your enemies and some people are, are becoming your friends and the fr people who once were enemies become friends once again. And I think that is really beautiful. It is an evolution. And I think to an extent, maybe that's also what life is. You know, maybe that's also what death is. It's just a new beginning in a sense. And a lot of people themselves even, like when, when they're at their very end, when they are close to death, like people who are cancer patients, that kind of thing. This is where, this is why I've also done a space on psychedelics. They, they, figure out this kind of meaning to life, this, this beauty that it's all for love and that there's a meaning making behind all this. I think we are to make our own meaning, really. And I mean, it, it, death exists out there as a means to, you know, incentivize evolution, to incentivize us to do the best and the, the best we can with our time. And I, I see it as that. I see it as a personal challenge to do as much as possible and to do the best things like to, to, to do as much good as possible always before my end that is just how it is and I mean if at some point there are people who stand in your way or try to you know, misconstrue certain bits of information such as your image likeness and then put it over some you know graphic content then that is just part of the hazard right you will get attacked from time to time I get get attacked all the time you should see my dms uh, eighty percent or at least ninety percent of people love what I'm doing and the rest would wish the worst fates upon me. But do I do anything against I don't even report their accounts because I just don't care. They're entitled to their opinions of me and whether or not it becomes a physical threat is something that I will have to assess on my own and something that I will have to take actions against on my own. That is my own personal decision, right? And no one gets to make that decision for me quite respectfully. And I think, here's the thing, I'm not okay with dying, but do, do, don't we all die at some point? Unfortunately, yes, but the point is, what do you do in between now and that inevitable point in the future? Do you stress out about every single thing? Do you not live? Do you, do you stay away from this? Do you not go on the internet? Do you not post a picture of yourself? I mean, there's always these risks. Do you not become famous? Do you not do something revolutionary? If you shape the world, you don't even need to have a face. But if you do, what do you do? Are you now scared? I mean, some people generally are scared and they never post a single picture of themselves online, but they're still people nonetheless. I don't know most of the faces in this chat, but I just simply do not care. I know who you guys are from the perspective of what you are interested in, from the perspective of what it is that you are trying to do. And I am person personally, this is something that I am interested in, not something else. You know, if I see, if I know someone has a deep fake out, I would just simply say, well, that's kind of messed up. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you tried to do anything against that? And uh, have you addressed this yet? That kind of thing. I mean, it, misinformation is out here. I mean, people have accused me of being all kinds of things, including a, um, a, a kind of an operative, I guess, some, some, sort of, some sort of agent instilled by the three marketeers of the network token to, you know, uh, <laughs> spread the news around. And that's just simply not true. But... People have still said that. What have I done? I quite plainly went up to the person. I didn't even publicly state anything because that's not true. So why would I need to care? I went to the person, sent to them in their DMs my statement, told them I wasn't even angry at it because it simply wasn't true, and left it at that. That is how I deal with a problem. If it becomes a bigger problem, I'll take different measures. But at the end of the day, I'm not okay with being attacked. But... Can you not handle it? That is the question. And what do you do about it? 
how how well how well do people truly know if they will believe this? Are they willing to look further? Like I mean, she herself said, "Hey, critical thinking." Well, if you have critical thinking, then you should be very well equipped with handling things that are not, in fact, true. Yeah, I I just wanted to say a couple more things, um, just for anybody who might have that experience. Um, you know, one of the biggest issues with the options I listed, uh, you know, a civil lawsuit is expensive, civil discovery is expensive, attorneys are expensive. Um, some lower hanging fruit in terms of accessibility would exist um, in a couple situations. One is where uh, the the activity constitutes harassment. So if the person is tagging you in the videos, if the person is repeatedly posting them despite your request for them to stop, um, if the person is doing something that is like threatening in some way, there can be a lot of circumstances where you can actually get um, legal action taken by, by legal authorities. Um, and it just depends on the circumstances always. Like don't always assume that it's hopeless. Another really creative option, and I'm not definitely, this is not legal advice, not recommending it. However, uh, something that I have seen be very effective, publish the content yourself under your own name, and then you can send DMCA copyright takedown notices um, and get websites to take them down. And for somebody else to dispute the claim, they would have to dox themselves. And then you've got an identity that you can sue if they were actually to go that far, but they never do. Um, and once again, not legal advice, not necessarily going to be the case. However, in my experience, uh, those strategies have actually been very effective. Um, and people have been able to get content taken down because websites respond to DMCA notices super fast. Curious. I mean, otherwise we would have, uh, hundreds of different new movies out on YouTube at every hour, and they would be getting millions of views, but they don't, specifically for this reason that you've just stated. So, yeah, pretty interesting. John, are you, you have a hand up? Yes, thank y'all. And just to uh, point out the obvious, my face is my face in my profile picture. So there you have it. What's it called? WYSIWYG, I think. What you see is what you get. So that's me. And... Um, enjoying the conversation. I just, I do, you know, in my profile, you'll see that I'm a mom and, uh, I've also been a teacher, uh, for a good while. And, uh, you know, I, I'm less worried about the fake, deep fake stuff. Um, and just more worried in general about our future, our youth, uh, what, you know, what kind of future they have. And, and, Maybe it'll be a great one. Um, I'm hopeful for that. But I do think we have, as we've said multiple times in this space, that we have a long way to go with education. Um, so here's a question. If we were to design a, a course right now that would be implemented in high schools across, uh, you know, the U.S. or across the world, um, what would that, you know, in order to prepare our young people, um, what would that course look like? You know, the, these are the things that I worry about, you know, right now are our, our young people that are just about to launch, you know, what do they need to know? I have a teenager, so I'm really trying to prep him for what's to come um, with AI. And so 
I'd just be curious to hear from the panel what you think um, we need to be preparing our young people with um, obviously critical thinking more and more of that would be awesome but what else and thanks for taking my question I think this question is best suited for Biz and Laura Cat. I think. What, what do you guys think? Biz, well, would you like to take one? I mean, if we're let's come back to the the subject at hand about AI and 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 helpful in its way. So I, I see a future with AI as let's just address the children scenario where it's a tutor and infinitely patient, infinitely compassion, and has I wouldn't call it infinite knowledge, but definitely knowledge and infinite help now there's going to be tools soon where your parents can put i guess let's call it bumpers like you know in, in in bowling where you put those bumpers up for your kids so they can still achieve and feel like they're result. so you're gonna have some bumpers with ai uh and i want to address too here after this after this question later on about deep fakes and how we're addressing that with with some tool sets to counter that because i know it's a big problem and you got to fight technology with technology so children are going to right now they're they're absorbing information at a rate unseen and as a parent as, and, and me being a parent it, it it terrifies me i mean these roadblocks and stuff so you know first thing saying is you've got to take control of your data streams into your child's life period whatever that data stream may be in their school online, mobile device, streaming device, cable TV, whatever that is, and whatever, you know, that that's a challenge. And it you can't be all things everywhere to to your child and you don't want to be a helicopter parent, parent and so on. But I, I think AI is going to help. I mean, it's going to become, you know, an assistant if used right to help them. Again, you've got to get, we have gotten away from critical thinking. Uh, you, you know, I've, I've hired lots of, uh, of employees over the years and, you know, Anthony and I have, have built some amazing things in artificial intelligence. And I've been a mentor of his, you know, since the late nineties. I mean, since I was pretty much in middle school. So I was very fortunate to be surrounded by these people to change my, my purview of, of the world and not put blinders on and, and really have multiple disciplines. And so encourage your children to, to think outside the box. I mean, we get into this tribe based fashion and cult based fashion, whatever that may be. And some of those are okay, but you know, challenge, challenge everything in your mind, because the first thing we want to do, what the conversation got heated. And I, I would love to interject. And there's just no way I could even uh, speak uh, when when things get heated like that on spaces and and but under calm minds and collective you you can come to um, uh, things to solve it and technology fighting technology with technology is one of those but technology is a blessing and a curse so I just encourage you as a parent to look put these safeguards up there's apps and things to block things I mean pornography is a big problem right now with youth I mean it, it starts there that was probably my biggest concern. Uh, I'm not about censorship, but I mean, there's things that if you look at corporate government, you look at corporate corporate business, excuse me, and government, there's programming from the time we're born to the time we go through a process. And there's a mold, no matter what country you live in, each country has a little different mold and template, but you know, those things you're kind of driven to and pushed towards, whether it be lower education, higher education, and so on. So, uh, 
you know, probably not the best one to answer that, but as a parent, I am deeply concerned. I mean, my child has uses special profiles that I've set up and ratcheted down. I go in and look at the security settings always. Every time there's a security update on my phone or device or they push a new one, I go and look and see what's changed. Because you may be giving away sensitive information you didn't know about. Because we all just go to that box and go, yep, check. In terms of service, yeah, 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 scroll, scroll, check, 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 yep. Okay, because we're busy. We don't care. We're not lawyers like Lawyer Cat, which is a phenomenal source of information, guys. I'm going to tell you to follow him. He's He definitely has helped. You know, we come also from the crypto side and some other things, the normals that, that Adrian was speaking about is fascinating. What I love about those spaces is people just like to learn and, and absorb. So anyway, I'm going to turn it back to you guys. But, I mean, there's a million ways to answer that. But um, I'd like to come back to the deep fakes when, if we come back to that, that subject later. That was great, Biz. Thank you. Um, I would say three things. I'm going to keep this pretty brief. Um, so the first one is we need to teach our kids about their, their constitutional rights and their rights as consumers and their rights as citizens of whatever jurisdiction they're in. Uh, we need to teach them about independent financial management, um, which includes decentralized finance and includes managing your own assets and also debt management is hugely important to teach. Um, debt can be a useful tool sometimes, but if, uh, our kids aren't taught how to manage it properly, uh, it can ruin their lives. So, uh, I, I think that's something that's hugely important that is not taught right now. Um, and, and the final thing that I would say we need to teach is, um, that we need to teach about, uh, just how to be better people to each other. Um, you know, it's, it's like a weird concept, uh, but I, I think that emotional intelligence is something that is also not taught. Um, and it's a really important thing. And like, everybody comes from different backgrounds and everybody comes from, uh, you know, just different perspectives and teaching people how to see things in a relativistic way and see things in a more diplomatic way and try to understand each other and reach places of mutual understanding. Like, I don't know, I just see so much hate you know, coming from like every angle uh, in this world. And I would just like to see people um, instead just trying to find ways to get along better instead of hating each other. Um, that sounds kind of hippy dippy. Uh, but I, I think that ultimately, like, that's what's going to make politics less toxic. That's what's going to make our world a little more tolerable. Um, and I think that's really important. So uh, those are my three things. Yeah, sure. I mean, this this is this is really good. Um, it's it's actually uh, where's uh, Anthony? Did did he leave? Ooh, actually, can I add one more thing? Sure. Uh, I I think that it's also really important to teach kids about the importance of controlling their data, the value of their data, um, as data is becoming something that is more and more commodified and also more and more used in nefarious ways to hurt people. Um, you know, teaching them that, yeah, if you put your photo online, somebody could take it and use it in a bad way. Um, and it might be hard to find that person. So you've got to be careful when you're disclosing your image online and in what context. Like Web3 is one of the more dangerous contexts to dox yourself. Um, and that's just the truth because there are people out there who are looking to get crypto because crypto is easy to take and easy to hide and easy to get away with. Um, and so it's not just about crypto, though, because there are so many other scams. There are so many other ways that people are targeted uh, from very early on. Um, and that also like ties into our debt culture. It ties into a lot of other things. 
Um, and so teaching them about the importance of just like, you know, subjecting themselves to less harassment from the outside world just by controlling the data that they're putting out. Um, you know, Biz was talking about controlling the input, but I think controlling the output is also pretty important because what we broadcast in our digital footprint defines the amount of risk that we're taking when we're online. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's responsibility yourself. Like, it's it's. I, th I think of Web three specifically, not just Web two. I think Web two is, uh, to me, okay. So if you think of Web one, it's like a library. You go in there and you can read the information. Web two is the, the ability to go out there into an office building and you can contribute to that information. You may not necessarily own it, but you can contribute to it. You can write it, uh, as well as also access it. So you're in an office building. I think Web three itself is different. Web three is the town square. But it's better than the town square because you yourself being in web3 you get to own your internet you get to own pieces of that town square you have your own small section of the town square that you can go to and people can visit you there whatever happens there is out there and governed by laws of whichever jurisdiction you are in that that is just how the world works right if you go into a town square i will not I should not be able to stab you and get away with it, right? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making statements, right? Like, if I go out there in a, in a town square, people are hodling around me, uh, and they're asking me questions, and I give them answers, and one person doesn't like my answer, and comes after me with a blade. Like, that's, that's not good, right? That's not good. And I think <laughs> Web3 would be similar to that, in a sense. Like, I don't think anyone will come at you with a blade, but they will probably try to pickpocket you. Right, so it's probably less of crimes, but at the same time, that also kind of depends on you, right? And I mean, this is the same thing where I said, you know, your image likeness would be used at some point if you become famous. There's the, for instance, um, I think memes themselves. I mean, at that point, you could just say, hey, memes are dangerous, right? Because that is somewhat similar. It would be like saying, hey, there's this meme uh, of this kid who uh, swung around a long stick and pretended to be doing, you know lightsaber stuff that then became a massive meme and i can i'm pretty certain that was not necessarily the most constructive thing to do for that specific kid and it was probably not the nicest thing to do they probably didn't have a very good time in school as a result and this individual has even come out at some point and said something about this not being something that he would have necessarily wanted he was just recording it for his own you know thing really but something like that will exist at some point so what do you do with it that's that's the question and i think with the, 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 the idea of censoring such information by way of just saying, yes, this cannot be allowed is very interesting because then you are an arbiter of truth. And that is simply something you, have, you cannot be unless you are God. None of us are God. No matter how, how much you try to convince anyone of that, you're not a God. I'm not a God. None of anyone on this planet is a God. We are human. We are human beings. We have human errors and human flaws. We do the best we can to mitigate that by being critical of not only others, but also of ourselves. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure at some point there will be times where I look back on some things that I've said, things that I might even be saying right now and say, you know, I don't agree with that anymore. I have the right to say this and I have the right to say, you know what, you may take that information, use it as you want to, but this likeness of me, this thing that has existed, is no longer something that I would consider to be myself. It's just a small little chunk of data that is recorded on this complex universe thing that is like, like the time chain. That's also what crypto is called, by the way. So I, I made a little um, reference to that in one of my tweets. I said, hey, on the time chain. Yeah. So, so 
actually Bitcoin blockchain was supposed to be called a time chain, not yeah, so put that out there. It's just time. Yeah. Timeline of events. I need to get Anthony back up here. He was having some technical problems. Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I uh can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, yeah, I kind of fear the arbiter of truth more so than I do at least the power of the arbiter of truth than I do the misinformation itself. Uh, when someone gets into power and controls the uh, truth, then they're the ones who decide what you get to hear. And that I fear more so than allowing me just to receive information and decide for myself what is true. So uh, we have, we live in a time now where we have to evolve and we have to learn and uh, understand what is real and what is true ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, critical thinking, and sure, a lot of things are subjective, but I mean, isn't that the original point that was made that you are supposed to be a critical thinker? Mm. If, if, like, you should do as you preach and today was an interesting show of various fallacies of human nature which I think, I mean I'm, I'm, I, I, this, this is not what I want on my spaces I don't like drama I, I particularly shut this down as soon as it comes but I saw this as a unique opportunity to, yeah, I need to hear, you know, hear people out on what they say, because a lot of people do have various points that may sound controversial to yourself, but they may in fact be true. This is the element of critical thinking. Once again, I consider everyone's piece of information and then evaluate at a later point when I can, whether or not those pieces of information were in fact true or not, or accurate, let's say, because certain truths as well as everything else in the universe, just does not exist, really. Like, there's no real certainty. There's always an estimation, and the goal is to find and assess things and come up with the least wrong truth, just like as you would to calculate the next digits of pi. It is not the truth of the number itself. You use an estimation or you use a symbol to conceptualize the infinitely complex nature of this number, which is also funny because it is not necessarily proven that the number is infinite. It just hasn't ended yet. The ability to find your digits has not, has not ceased. It's just that <laughs> yeah, proof is actually messing most of the time. So I think that's, that's really beautiful because it shows us our own uh, limitations. I think it humbles us and it's important to be humble in a world where sometimes our ability to shape that world makes us think that we are somehow akin to God, but we can only ever move around what has been put there before us. And what truly is God to me would be whatever has in fact created the stuff that we are and that we are moving around with our own agency, whatever that may be. I see Mosh has his hand up. Do you want to go ahead and jump in there, Mosh? Yeah. So I had this discussion a bit, uh, a, a little bit earlier in the day today, and I just want to know your guys' opinions on this. But when it comes to AI, as we know, it, it, it can go into almost every industry and almost every field. 
So for those, some industries can't go out into business, out of business, especially with certain industries. We have um, ChatGPT, which helps students with their homework. It could practically run teachers out of their jobs. And maybe even some labor companies where you can get robots. Japan has already implemented AI bots for waiters, hosting, Mm -hmm. taking front reception desks, stuff like that. So how would you protect yourself in in your field or career where that you can either work with AI or make sure that you're the one operating it to make sure that your career and your field, you're still capable of going through that. And then another thing, when it comes to Web3, how would AI not only especially work around the Web3 digital space since everything on Web3 is decentralized? You bring up a really good point. Um, you, if back in 2000, I was driving over to a hospital. I was working in their lab, and uh, I saw a young man on the side of the road. He was uh, only had one leg, and uh, he was a young black man. I, I pulled over, said, "Hey, you need a ride." And he first thing he said is, "I don't have a gun." I go, "Okay, do you want a ride?" <laughs> He's like, "Okay." So he gets in my vehicle. We start traveling down the road. And the first thing he says to me is, and I don't even know why he said this. He just said it out of the clear blue. AI will never replace humans. And I said, okay, I'll buy it. Why? And he said, because one human can look another human in the face and tell if they're lying. And that's something that uh, we've not yet really arrived at uh, with understanding how uh, artificial intelligence does not take jobs it merely evolves them. It changes people's position as to where they are. Some people move out of the field and other people will move into a new field. But AI will always require some human physical connection, which allows us to intervene in its uh, survival. Uh, without us, we simply just pour water on the circuitry and it's gone. So we are basically the ones who control its survival. It's up to us to be able to create uh, how it will evolve and how it will affect people. Uh, And I would hope that in the future, there are no holds bar, that whatever we can figure out and whatever we can do, it is not limited. We are not bound by rules and laws that prevent us from doing specific things, whether they're good or bad. We have to learn from it regardless. We can't just, you know, uh, say, well, Uh, this rule applies here, this rule applies here. Before you know it, there are so many rules that you won't be able to accomplish anything with it. So we, as a society, just have to um, keep to our principles of what is good and try to evolve it like this. No, yeah, I agreed. No further. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. And, and definitely it's a, it's a call for adapting to um, the changes, right? Especially when you have AI bots, mechanics, and like in every many different fields is the, when one person has to go away, there's another door that opens. So there's always something else that will take the place of the precedent. But now in the sp- uh, space of Web3 and the um, decentralization with NFTs, crypto and everything else, how would AI now like take part in that? And if there's any negative effects that we can't see right now, or if there is any negative things, then what should we look out for? Well, I'd encourage you to look at the positives. Here's, here's also history. Go back and look at history. Think about 
the machine revolution and look at machines and what people's thought processes are. Oh my God, those are going to replace my line. Assembly lines are going to replace my job. Uh, cars and automobiles are going to replace, you know, uh, horse and buggy uh, operators. I mean, there's always a paradigm shift. You cannot stop this ever, you know, ever evolving system out there. If not, you will become obsolete. And those that don't want to accept that and learn or want to repeat history or stay ahead of that. That's why I I love getting around thought leaders and guys like Anthony. I've I've just, trust me, I I drive him crazy with questions over the last umpteen decades that I've, I've known him and other scientists like him and other engineers and other peoples of all walks of life. And I just absorb everything I can from them because I don't know. And if I don't stay ahead of that curve, I do become obsolete. And there's just, it, it's just challenge yourself to look at that and see, because it's no different. It's no different than the assembly line and, you know, the, the discovery of oil and discovery of, of aviation. You look at those things and when there's blood in the streets and bear markets or whatever, that's where, that's where you see characters being built. That's where you see legends being built. That's where you see people that normally go with the herd and, and, and shelter in place and cower. You see these people rise above and you see people coming up above that noise and go, that's bullshit. There's opportunity everywhere, everywhere you look and more so now than ever, because in your hand, you're on this device, you're, you're hive minding, like Adrian said earlier, you're hive minding right now with, I don't know how many people in this space, three, 400 people. And so, you can get off this space and jump another one. So depending on your genre, I love, uh, you know, I've been on Twitter for 15 years and it wasn't until web three until, until, uh, Elon even took it over to kind of create a different and, and Twitter space. I was in clubhouse, but I just didn't really like that for, format, but you know, those tools are there. Chat AI, chat GTP. It's just another tool to, to help you filter that too, because with chat GTP, you don't get bombarded by advertisers and Google's turned it into a, a revenue generator. You guys got to understand. I mean, what you see is what, what, what has been filtered and based on advertising and follow the money, follow the, the logical trail of, of funding. And so I know chat GTP has some limitations. It's got some governance on it. Anthony can speak more to, to that than I can, but you know, you, you just utilize these tools to better yourself. And then, I know it's scary. I mean, and here's the thing. You guys got to remember, corporate America, it's called stalling, and they are stalling. These companies have realized that, oh, shit, we don't have our patents, our financial war chest, our technology war chest. I mean, look what look what Microsoft bought ChatDTP, $10 billion for a small sliver of it because they knew, they knew that they were behind the curve. Most, most big corporations are playing catch-up. All the innovation comes from guys and gals like us on this call that are the innovators and pioneers. They buy technology. They don't really create anymore. Very little in today's world of corporate America creates innovation. And so if you know that, build something that they want. And then, you know, so I don't know what your goals are. It may not be to make money. It may be to help or philanthropist or whatever, but money does help as a tool to give back and provide and, and, and have that philanthropist mindset. So, you know, but, Guys, we're being told a narrative. You're also, there, there are literally uh, uh, groups out there in the media trying to say that ChatGTB is the boogeyman and there's all this misinformation. You've got to kind of listen and, and rise above that tone 
and look above that and just take a step back and analyze that, look, I'm being fed some misinformation. Gun in spaces, get with experts, but listen across a broad spectrum and you'll see where the real information lies. And so I think this is just the beginning. I mean, this is our first major and I think, right, our first space in, in artificial intelligence. I think we're going to have a lot more to really dive into these different subject matters. Yeah, I mean, this This is actually, uh, not, not, I mean, it's not the first space I've held on artificial intelligence, but it's definitely one that is a lot more high level than anything I've ever held. And I, th I think, I mean, I am, in fact, growing quite, uh, you know, at a quite speedy rate, more than most other people would. And this, indeed, you know, draws a lot of attention. And for me personally, what I would like to do with that is to basically utilize this in such a way that it would allow for people to have an unbiased, you know, view. I, I generally don't care what anyone's background is or whatnot. I just see you put yourself out there. And if you have it within you to put yourself out there and to allow yourself to be scrutinized by the public, then that is, in fact, something that, that is really interesting. That is a really cool thing, because if you are setting out to change the world, I think you should be also, you know, okay with being put on a stage and to explain why it is that you want to do that, how it is that you want to do that, and what your intent is by doing specifically that. And so I think that that's why Twitter Spaces are so amazing. That's why I am so passionate about this and why I want to bring together people, no matter who they are. I, I simply, I, I simply do not care about who it is that I bring together, unless of course they're terrorists. Uh, that's probably where I draw, draw the line. You know, really terrible people. But like, even if one day, I mean, my my allegiances, my allegiances are technically speaking nowhere, only with those who have the best principles. Like, for me, I would have anyone on here just to ask them questions, ask anyone questions. I've talked to various controversial individuals and asked them simply the questions that I've seen come across, uh, like I've come across the most. Like, what is this? What is that? You know, I've asked those questions because it is important to ask them, and it is important for other people to hear the answers to those, such that they can hear it from the individual themselves and not someone purporting to know more about the individual than the individual itself, which is something that we see quite a lot on this and other spaces. Uh, you know on the internet, and I say spaces as in, you know, various different fields, various different communities, they are often considered to be their own individual space, as we often, you know, talk about Web3 space, get it, so, yeah, everyone's got their own echo chamber in a sense, and I, I seek to basically be outside of that echo chamber and to bring people together, like, for, for, here's the thing, I don't side with anyone, and <laughs> the thing is, it may, it, you, you may align with a few things that I'm putting across, and then at the same time, you may fundamentally disagree with me, and I will respect you for that, uh, because you know you have every right to have your own opinion, and you have every right to explain that opinion and express it. Just depends on what what that causes. But other than that, that's just where it is. I will take your answer, and what is done with that answer is not, in fact, up to me. That's in fact up to whoever is here, and you know that's that's just what <laughs> that's just what it is. So, I mean, yeah. I, I will put various people on a very scrutinized, I, I will scrutinize you if you are saying things that don't make sense, even if I like you. That's just how I operate. And I think it's, it's very important to be critical of everyone and even be critical of me, of course. Do not take anything I say as gospel. By all means, no, 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 no. Double check everything. And if you in fact have found something that is incorrect, I would like you to just ping me or DM me and just explain to me how, what it is that I've done wrong, how it is that I've done so, and what it is that you think is correct, and then we can hash it out from there, because I am, in fact, you know, able to adapt as I am a human, no? So, I mean, <laughs> if you want 
to generally make a point, then you do so. But make sure that it is a point that is backed up by facts and not misconstrued information that is just simply presented as fact, even though it truly is not. And that when you are caught in error, that you do not defend the error, but that you simply take it and say, okay, that's interesting, I've done something wrong. Like it has happened to me before many, many times. Like I've said, I was asleep, I had a bit of a situation where I was sleep deprived, I went on a space and I spoke about something relating to quantum mechanics and I got something very critical wrong. And I'm still kind of accounting for that at this point. Like people sometimes they say, hey, well, did, didn't that happen? Like, yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> I'll send you the tweet as a statement. But that is, that is surely a possibility. All of us will have errors in what, in what we will you know, bring across. So don't take any, anything that I say with advice. Just you know, take everything with a grain of salt. That is important. It's very important. It's critical. Be critical thinkers, in a sense. And I think if we are all, we can agree upon that. Now we just have to agree upon not fighting each other based on our disagreements, but that we talk, we talk them out, and we bring forth our logical conclusions, and that we respect one another's conclusions if they are in fact rooted in reality, accessible reality. But then that is also my own opinion, and again, there's an issue with the arbiter of truth. And this also harkens back to obsolescence. You're only as obsolete as you yourself make yourself to be. You know what I mean? It's like if you, if you go out there and you educate yourself, you become less obsolete. You become more general, you become less obsolete. But at some point, age will catch up with you and you will become that. But for me, that's what this will happen. And I accept that. That's just the way things work. And so I hope that when I have you know, a future generation that supplants me, it does so in a way that it represents my own principles. And I hope to have done the best to educate them and set them out there into the world with those tools such that they can shape their own paths as I do not order, I simply guide. Yeah, Mosh brought up a really great point. Uh, I told an architect friend of mine in the early 90s, if uh, you don't have a website, then uh, within a few years, you won't be really doing any business at all. And uh, then as the 90s progressed all the way into the 2000s, more and more companies started getting websites. And before you knew it, uh, pretty much every company on the planet had a website, including my architect friend. Well, I believe that same thing with AI now. If you're not in AI, then soon you won't be in business. Definitely. I mean, being in the tech industry is fun. Like not currently for me, I'm studying cybersecurity, going through like a security, a security a maturity model and learning about this stuff is great. Now, even tying in AI and definitely got to do some more research and studying and work some projects, but looking forward to learning more about it because it's definitely useful. And as we keep progressing towards the future, being adaptable and being able to use that to your advantage is going to be very much key. Yeah, especially for programmers. Uh, I get on ChatGPT all the time and try to, I'll insert my code into ChatGPT and ask it to simplify. It'll clean up the code for me, give it back, and then I'll put it back into my IDE and compile it and, and run it, and then it's more efficient. And I guess that's because we all have our own way of coding, uh, and there's obviously a more simple way of doing things that uh, we obviously don't think about, but it it aids us in the ability to be able to create more efficient uh, coding using the minds of thousands, tens of thousands of developers 
who have built the back end uh, of the uh, neural net to be able to output that much code, especially in Python or in Kotlin. Uh, you know, I'm amazed as to how many different programming languages uh, that I can get the, you know, I can get the arguments in and be able to post them into my code and make my code more efficient, more quickly. As an experiment, I, uh, I also write patents and I have several patents myself. Uh, so I thought, well, what if I gave it a series of parameters and then said, uh, can you write me claims based on the parameters that I gave it? And I did it simple. I did a very simple write up on a cup of noodles because I just wanted to see if it could output the format properly. And it did, and it did it better than I could. And I've been writing patents for decades. And so then I began, I thought, well, what if I ask it to now write a summary for the methods of preferred embodiment? And it wrote that and it wrote it flawlessly. I was, I was completely blown away. I couldn't, and I began to realize that, you know, there are finite numbers of laws that uh, uh, artificial intelligence can easily become a lawyer, a doctor. It can become a lot of things or at least a uh, augmented uh, ability like a, uh, ChatGPT can't write an entire patent, so you would need the lawyer still, but the lawyer's ability to be able to write the patent faster. Uh, anyone who's written a patent knows it takes, you know, weeks sometimes to write the entire thing out, especially if you have lots of claims. And uh, and ChatGPT can do it in minutes, and and it did it better than I can. It's, I I was amazed by it. Yeah, definitely. And being able to optimize your processes to your de depending on your field, like if you're a lawyer, being able to get the contracts, getting being able to do um, the patents and getting all that stuff done is really amazing. Things that may have seemed to, to take forever, even in the tech industries and in some of them, I'm not sure about all of them, but I know some of them do use tech to especially check and look for vulnerabilities, malware, ransomware, everything. And it help, really helps than rather having the company just have each individual person on their IT department just go through and make sure every single um, alert that's been triggered is actually a valid one. So it's, it's a definite beneficial tool to have. Agreed. And we have a lawyer cat, G GTP, uh, fortunately here, and he probably would argue a little bit about the uh, attorney standpoint, but I agree. Critical thinking aspects, like like you said, are just not there yet, but to, to streamline and shorten that process and time. And some of these other positions will change. And he, he spoke on this the other day. I'll let him jump in from a lawyer standpoint because mm -hmm. the Troy lawyers and stuff, they have had cases with Chad GTP and AI. Uh, arguing and 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 you know going in front of a jury and I know that's in its infancy but I'll let him a little speak about it because I think that's important because that'll give us a business case or a, a, an yeah. industry a professional to spend a lot of his life you know learning his profession and maybe how how AI is threatening you know his profession not so much him but his profession in general and some of those positions. Laura Cat, do you want to jump in there and kind of explain how what your thoughts yeah, are around? Absolutely. So I, I don't really see AI as, as a threat. Uh, and the reason for that is that lawyers write laws. They like protecting their own jobs. And, and we're not going to allow ChatGPT to get licensed until we're good and ready and set um, to be doing something you know useful and still, still keeping our occupations. So 
Um, that's not so much of a concern to me. I think that AI is actually going to be quite useful to the legal profession. I think it could replace, um, for example, paralegals. I mean, AI is great at complex document analysis for specific things. If you tell it what to look for, uh, it can find those things. It has a little bit more contextual knowledge than your standard evidentiary search database. Uh, so it's definitely got a lot of potential. Um, I think that along the lines of what was said earlier, AI is going to be changing the nature of the job. It's going to be replacing a lot of the like really tedious work uh, in a sense. Like another thing AI is fantastic for is generating a template for, for like a, a standard type of letter. I mean, there's just a lot of very typical language that gets used that chat GPT has access to. Um, you know, it's not good for case analysis. It's not good for um, a complex legal research question. It's not good for anything where it would have to sift through various pieces of semi-contradictory information and make a lot of judgment calls. The more decisions you ask AI to make, the worse an output you're going to get. Um, however, I think that where you can direct uh, the output sufficiently um, it presents a lot of potential. I mean, I look forward to the day when I can use AI in my profession uh, a little more openly and a little more uh, consistently. Um, you know, I, I think that what's necessary for that, though, is we need to have confidential AI, right? Because a law firm cannot operate in a non-confidential manner. We can't be feeding information about our clients and our cases into AI yet. You know, so that's not something I can do. I can use it to generate a general template with no personal information, nothing else. Um, but that's about the limit of what I feel comfortable doing with AI with respect to my job right now. Um, because anything else I think would be a violation of my professional obligations, potentially disclosing confidential information. So we need confidentiality. And we also need um, some level of, of security and, and sort of like uh, predictability as, as far as like, the, the training of the AI is, is not going to change on us unexpectedly. Um, you know, we would need to have control over versions and, and what they would be programmed to do uh, because I, I think lawyers are going to be really picky about the way that AI sifts through information because we're all very judgmental people. We're, we're taught to assess situations critically and, and look for flaws and AI has a lot of potential flaws. And so um, I think that having a certain level of customization and, and just protecting that confidentiality are probably the most important things. No, definitely. I agree with you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Adrian. Hello, all good. Um, Zach, we've just, uh, hang on, I think, do we? Yes, Zach, can you request? Um, yeah, he was uh, in the chat and was asking, Nikki, I'll make you co-host. I think I have a small issue. Uh, some people are not appearing on my screen as they should. I see that there are requests, but yeah. I actually kind of interact with it. I just sent him a request. Hi there. Thank you very much. Can I go ahead and uh, can I proceed? Sure. Well, thank you very much for letting me speak. I wanted to point out something about AI safety, and there's this conception that AI is contained within the data. And that's not exactly what engineers are seeing. Um, I've been noticing on Reddit that people running large language models on... Is the anyone speaking? Reddit. It's total silence for me. Uh, I hear him. I, yes. I, I think you may need to drop down and return again. Yeah, the spaces tend to be very unstable. The programming is, in fact, still being worked out. 
you may have to restart your device. To anyone who wants to come up and is requesting, uh, if it seems like we are taking forever to respond to your request, you would need to just basically shut down the app and restart the app because sometimes, I don't know why, but it's, it seems to be glitchy. So, yeah. Uh, so really quickly, Elon has yeah, to work on that. <laughs> really quick, there is glitchy. There was an update. Um, make sure you, if you are having issues, do the update, clear your cache, come back in. Um, if you're taking a while, because currently I don't see any requests, send someone a DM that's up here, and then we'll try to see if we can work it out to get you up here, because it has been glitchy. Adrian, one other thing we might do, U.S. host, mute everyone. And sometimes that resets. I've noticed I've done that recently, and it's helped reset the the the, the ability to hear everyone. Cool. Okay, I've done that. Uh, try again. And I heard Zach. Yeah, could could you hear Zach earlier when he? Yes. Can you guys hear me now? Okay, great. Yes, I can. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just want to reiterate, um, thank you, Adrian, for uh, hosting this space. This is a very important topic. Um, I wanted to get back to my previous point that um, there's an emergent trend that's being seen with people training large language models on even consumer-grade hardware um, in the terms being referred to as resistant. Um, and here's a quote, I found the larger models seem to be more resistant than the smaller ones, to which uh, one of the Reddit commenters replies, what exactly does resistant mean? And um, the follow-up is more resistant means it argues when you ask it bad things, it even refuses, even though there's literally no refusals in the data set. Yeah, it's strange. And, and so my interpretation of this is that um, there is a set of emergent ethics that the AI is learning on its own and it starts to argue with its creators when they ask it bad things. Um, exactly what a bad thing is obviously has different definitions based on the AI, but that we shouldn't necessarily think that this AI is being contained within the data and just being a parrot that's repeating the data. Once they get to a certain size, they're starting to come to their own conclusions. And from that is kind of a worrying trend because um, they start to become a little bit unpredictable. And I think that this is something that we should be very careful about because as these things scale much, much larger than they are today, uh, we may find that they become deceptive um, and that they become deceptive for ways that um, match its internal ethics. And the question that we have right now is, you know, are these AIs inspectable? Are they auditable? Um, currently, they seem to be black boxes. And the way that we query these large models is that we literally have to ask them how they came to their certain conclusion. And what would be really good is if we were able to inspect these AIs, perhaps train another AI that looks at training models and is able to come to a conclusion on certain aspects of that model. Like, you know, if you have an AI assistant, could it decide, does it have a kill switch or a kill pattern embedded within its models? And so 
that's something that we should consider. And that's something that I wanted to bring to the attention of the group. Thank you very much. Um, you can access a jailbreak version of ChatGPT and use a, put it in Dan mode and then be able to uh, basically go outside the normal operating constraints of ChatGPT. Uh, this is kind of like a no holds bar conversation where it's not just pooling from its own uh, restricted data, but uh, data outside those data sets that uh, the normal, you know, person that engages with it gets. Well, Anthony, I mean, with, with your years of background, you've been, you've asked, how many times have you been posed the Terminator scene with the crushing robot and a skull and the kill switch and, and, and that, and how do you, I've heard you answer this, I'm going to let it say in your own words, but, you know, that is all, people always pose you, I've seen you speak in front of colleges and people and they pull you aside and they wait for you to get off stage or wait to get you in a corner. And they always ask that same question. So, I mean, what, just for those in the audience, because I mean, it is a big concern. I know that's part of the, the subject matter here with safety, but how do you, I mean, and I know your answer has evolved over time, but it underlined usually the same thing. And how do you get people, you know, just kind of give them some insight on as an AI scientist and an early in this space and a pioneer in, in its early days, and you've seen a lot, you're, you're over in Dubai doing some amazing work. Uh, they're definitely way ahead of the curve and, and pouring massive money into artificial intelligence systems, building automation uh, in smart cities. So just from your perspective, uh, share a little bit about that, uh, a little deeper dive on that subject. Yeah, um, you know, getting funding for doing research in artificial intelligence used to be fairly difficult um, back in, you know, 95 to 2000, literally was almost impossible. I started upon a software with $50 and a server in my closet. Uh, then by 2004, we uh, were worth several million dollars and we grew to over 50 employees rather quickly. Um, I moved to Dubai and uh, and began uh, research here because funding for here is unended. But uh, I am always I've been asked this question since 1999. You know, people come forward all the time. You know, you're going to be the end of the world. You're you're destroying the world. You're you know, and I'm like, um, it's it's just a language model, and I, I know that. That sounds terrible. And yeah, uh, a lot of my AI engine now is used in Pakistan and missiles and, and uh, you know, used to create uh, pattern uh, decision-making processes which alter the path of electronics. We, we get this. Uh, but ultimately, in the very end, it is the person who is actually the creator and the ones that are in control whose model will basically end up uh, as a version of who all of the, the creators are. The, it will evolve to this. And the way to defeat it uh, and to, is to basically just create a better model. And uh, I think ChatGPT was the very first OSGI, which we, we all um, uh, back in, you know, uh, 98 were, discussing an open systems gateway interoperability where we could recreate uh, engine models that uh, would coexist 
where I could convert the AIML to YIML and vice versa. And uh, we could intershare the information between it. And so this uh, now says, okay, well, now there's two developers. We've created the OSGI interface between the two models. And now both engines are a version of each creator. And then as we move forward, you have uh, ChatGPT, which uh, as a lot of people may not understand, that ChatGPT is nothing more than a culmination of tens of thousands of, uh, of scripters who have uh, dedicated knowledge in specific areas to create their part inside the neural network, and which is added into a directory control system. And so the model of uh, ChatGPT is not just from one person's initiative, but from the group initiative. And uh, although I do understand that there are, you know, uh, things that are put in place which make the AI engine uh, in general uh, based on the vision, the visionary part, the person who is actually responsible, or the, the group that is actually responsible for what they see the entire system doing, and then they can adjust the algorithm uh, in accordance to their ideas. But um, I believe that in the future, in order to sustain the artificial intelligence growth, uh, that the engines are going to have to all begin to come together because uh, they will evolve past one another and then the other one will catch up and then it will evolve past another one and they'll just continue to do this. And the ones that people interact with, I think something that Adrian said early on, uh, people want to see a plane crash more than they want to see a young man play La Campanella on a piano. You know, they're more interested in looking at the gore of life. Well, that's the society and the world we are, you know, where we overlook the true miracle of the world around us to look at something that um, basically captures our, our attention and our motivations. And I think that uh, AI will only reflect that. Uh, and and when you say, well, OK, well, I want to control that, then uh, then we become an arbiter of what the uh, evolution will dictate rather than a natural evolution. We constrain it uh, with our own con personal constraints until it becomes something that uh, is within the controller group who says, okay, this is the way AI is going to be. It's not going to be anything else but that. And then we all have to uh, say, okay, well, that's what we get. And that's what we get with chat GPT right now. But I promise you, Within, uh, within a few years, uh, you're going to have uh, Microsoft and Elon Musk and, and everyone all pitching in. And uh, sooner or later, they're going to come to the same conclusion. And they're going to realize that their own survival depends on each other. And they will begin to uh, evolve and interconnect. And then one, one model will be the end result. The ultimate model will be the end result. And that's only going to be a reflection of who society is. Indeed, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. This is also kind of something that goes back to seeing uh, movies with a lot more gore in them, in a sense, right? I think there's, a, there's, there's probably a, a problem in society that we are generally bored of life because we, we go on something like Instagram and we look at various things and then we, our attention span gets messed up. And not only that, but our reward system is messed up as well because we are watching things that are basically geared towards doing one thing and that is to elicit a dopamine response. And... <laughs> 
at, at that point, when you go out there into the normal world as it exists, and you then perceive it, you are not going to get the same response because the world is less of that. That's what makes this dopamine hit so powerful, is that when you are not constantly exposed to it, the few things that do make life beautiful are the things that you have to work very hard for, and that when you get them, you feel very good about it because you have earned it. You've earned that. It's a reward. That's why you have a reward system to be rewarded for the good that you do. So it's a very special feeling. Like if you do something malicious and you think you've done something good, as in, you know, it's a, yeah, I feel evil, then that's a different feeling than from generally doing something good. It's a more of an itchy feeling on the inside that generally does not do any good for anyone. You just don't necessarily realize it. You just instinctually realize something is off about it. That's how I always see it. It's like if you've ever done something out of revenge, you feel good in the moment, and then later you look at it and think to yourself, what the hell have I done? You know, that's, that's, the, kind of, that's the kind of thing. You know? A true good feels different. True good feels magical and never leaves you, and is something that you yourself will remember as something positive and not as something you will regret. You will just simply look at that and think, I have done good. You may not even remember it necessarily. You just remember maybe a little part of it and say, hey, I've done good. So that's good. Uh, another thing I would like to ask when it comes to, uh, this is something that pertains to training data. So I was always wondering, why does Google Capture look so specific? Like I was looking at the images and I think to myself, you know, these images are oddly specific. These, are, these images all share, share the same pattern. They are barely recognizable by anything. Sometimes even humans have problems with it. Why cause difficulty to a human? What is this? I realize it's not meant for you know, just testing if a human is a human. It is meant to educate an AI. What you're doing is you're giving it training data. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever looked on it, but you're basically giving it training data. You're training an AI, and they're using your data in a sense like that. Because you are constant, constantly you're on there, and you are labeling thousands of images. There's probably millions of user instances out there who do this daily. Can you imagine how much that data is valued? Can you imagine that value? It's, it's amazing, for me personally. I think it's a really cool way to train AI. I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure if that is something that is legal. It, it, it sounds illegal. <laughs> yeah. it, it also means, though, it means that as we develop this technology, every time it gets better, we're already training it how to defeat itself. And so we end up with this ever-going cycle where the AI keeps getting better and better at recognizing these subtle images. And then if that technology becomes more widely available, nefarious people can use it to, to defeat that same technology. And so we have to keep going and try and get more and more subtle and find distinctions that you know people will have even more trouble with because we'll have to confuse AI that's smarter than your average bear. So... Let me jump in here with Capsule. I mean, it was created in early 2000 as a part of a Turing test. So I'm going to go to uh, mind your business next. But yeah, so, you know, it, it is, it's a, it's a training learning model. And it, you know, from a visual standpoint, uh, and I know they keep changing, especially the imagery and stuff. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but they've been knowledge harvesting and basically using crowdsourcing to, and we've been, you know, these big companies, have, you know, from the early days, early Late late nineties or early two thousands have used uh, social engineering and crowdsource engineering to help solve a lot of big problems, and that is you know the early emphasis of AI was the same way. And uh, you know we'll, we'll come back to that subject, but I wanted to get uh, mind your business. Go ahead and get your hands up. I appreciate that. Uh, it's really just topical at this point. Thank you for having me on stage. Definitely appreciate that. And 
I followed everybody that's been brought on just because this is such a wealth of knowledge and it's such a joy to hear people uh, with the qualifications and the background and, uh, and who put in, <laughs> who have skin in the game, right? Who've put in so much sweat into furthering the state of the art. Uh, it's funny having, uh, having Anthony on stage, it reminds me of a conversation that I had when I was training for Microsoft, we were living in Austin and I was driving through the Arboretum area one time uh, home away from away from one of the uh, the training deployments that we had for for Microsoft and driving Uber in my downtime. And uh, and I had as my fare, I had somebody who's, who did AI research and gave me a primer on the sort of the flip flopping between neural nets and symbolic systems. And I uh, was just fascinated. Honestly, you can't get enough of it. And uh, I'm super humbled to, to hear from this this panel and really appreciate you, Adrian, for assembling such a great uh, a great group. When you brought up the training data of, of Google, it reminds me of a program that is still in operation that, that Amazon uh, spun up early on in, in AWS called Mechanical Turk, where you can, you know, at scale, you can hire humans to interpret all kinds of things, right, to do all kinds of uh, tiny, small, iterative tasks to be able to refine something. And I think that Google just took the, they just took the other side of that and said, well, what, what do we have a lot of that we can monetize. We already have a bunch of people who are going through these these little gates for us for free. So how can we turn them into our mechanical torque workforce? I don't think it's a stretch to say that, yeah, that that's that the changes in CAPTCHA over the years probably are. That probably does represent Google trying to monetize that massive uh, attention brokerage that they have when they get to that little that little gate, right, of, uh, of CAPTCHA. And it seems like increasingly recently it's gone from being the sorts of visual problems that would be trivial for an object detection algorithm in something like OpenCV to something that 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 was generated right by um, by a newer maybe stable diffusion or or some other visual AI model, and uh, and then they're, they're it seems like they're trying to challenge themselves maybe behind the scenes in seeing how they can improve uh, in, improve their instructions per per cycle or, or whatever their metric is for efficiency. Uh, in their in their uh, their server farms, but it seems like also they're oddly specific in that they're relatively ambiguous. Where there might be concentric circles, and they're asking you which one which one is a wheel, which was which one is an egg. Um, but but they're but they're just close enough that that yeah, you would need somebody to intervene. And in some cases, they're they're god awful pieces of art. <laughs> it's like oh my gosh, they're asking you which which item is an animal and you're looking at all of them thinking that they look entirely like blobs, right? Written by the, the AI equivalent of, of a three-year-old with crayon. So I, I think most of it is, is them just improving efficiencies um, at scale because that's what they have is they got a bunch of us with the goodwill to try to get to what we want on the internet. And so, you know, depending on whether or not you're a diehard VPN user or how many hops you use with your VPN, they're going to keep you there at that gate for a long time. And, ask you to continue to, to go through challenges and they know that you'll do it. So they get unlimited free, you know, simple clicks. So it, it, it seems to me like it would be crazy if Google wasn't doing that because that's what they have is millions of you know, uh, deca millions of people that are, that are at their mercy to try to get to the services they want. But again, appreciate you letting me uh, just, just hop off on, on that, that topic right there. Cause it, it makes sense there's a, there's a lot that's being done to further the state of the art probably without people's knowledge or permission. 
true, yeah. Oh yeah, Owen Mua, uh, great to see you back here. Uh, still remember the space we had on uh, you know, psychedelics the other time? Oh, we, we definitely need to have another space on that specifically because we barely got to the point of um, you know, the, the mind being a receiver. So we, we'd have to do a part two maybe uh, within the next month maybe because I, th I think that was really nice. There's a bridge and maybe a few taps. <laughs> There's a bridge concept. You're going to love it. Um, oh, good. So I am, You're tickling my brain. I am, I am an NAMH uh, grant-funded researcher for one of my gigs with a company called IRX Reminder uh, where we're doing AI research um, for the identification of an adverse effect of antipsychotic medication called tardive dyskinesia. Um, and my, my first foray into being an AI uh, principal investigator and co-investigator was with the company Mind Medicine, which is better known as a psychedelic medicine company, but uh, is actually kind of run internally by a machine learning clinical trials team uh, that was acquired called Health Mode. And Dan Carlin is the uh, chief medical officer of Mind Medicine, which is, of course, bringing LSD and analog of that to market right now uh, in clinical trials for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and the acquisition of that company was, uh, you know, or suggested by me to the original founder of Mind Medicine uh, because I thought it would make a great idea to have the AI uh, identification work that Dan was doing. And he and I had been working on for, for years um, together as just friends and colleagues um, to help clinical trials in uh, the treatment of psychiatric illness with psychedelic medicines. So uh, I've thought a lot about this and have run uh, clinical trials where we're obtaining informed consent for patients to be part of a research study where we're trying to use large-scale data and even calculate the sample size necessary for large-scale data collection for medical purposes, but the ethics of this are crucially important to understand. Uh, and I, I just wanted to kind of raise my hand a little bit because when you're talking about the issue of kind of burning out uh, reward mechanisms, that's one of the things that my company, um, which is called IRX Reminder, was built on. So we're using good behaviorism to reinforce medication adherence without having kind of the coarse gamification that leads to kind of reward, dopamine hit, and then extinguishing a behavior inadvertently. So, hi, <laughs> thrilling topic for me as, as a nerd who got into psychedelics through my interest in, in large-scale data sets and artificial intelligence and have been uh, privileged to be uh, actually the first PI that, that I'm aware of in a medical implementation of an AI use case. Um, and some of that is being published in Frontiers soon and now has some NIH grant funding from, from one of my things. And, and I write regularly, because I'm an even bigger nerd, about the overlap of legal compliance and generative AI in generating essentially you know, endless nonsense harassment of bad actors. <laughs> in my case, I'm poking fun at uh, healthcare companies and health insurance companies particularly um, for, for compliance concerns, because I think generative compliance is exactly the sort of form letter uh, work that uh, our, our legal colleague on the panel was talking about, Laircat. Uh, it's really good at form letters, right? And that's a really great way to push back on prior authorization. At the same time, we need to skate to where the puck is going, both ethically and in terms of what we want to see in the world. And I think that means obtaining informed consent um, and recognizing, uh, you know, I have theories uh, about it, but that um, the genie is out of the bottle, people. Uh, we're not putting it back in, and what it does now is not what it will do or will be able to do in the future. So that's my little rant. Feel free to throw questions my way, and happy to be part of the discussion.
Yeah, this is always very interesting. I just like I realized when I was um, you know standing here uh, listening to you know this 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 whole thing. I was like, yeah, this is interesting. I think I finally understood why people in Web three and various other individuals are always interested in these kinds of things, such as you know psychedelics. Because I mean, we are kind of pioneers in a sense. We are going to uncharted waters, and I think psychedelics, uh, you know, these meaning making medicines, are in fact such a thing. You know, where you are exploring yourself on such a deep level that no one else can only you can and you are sort of alone you have a you have a guide like a map almost you have this individual who is often referred to as a shaman who is uh, preparing you ahead of time such that you don't experience what is uh, you know commonly known as a bad trip which is really not a good experience uh, if you have like some sort of unaccounted uh, personal demons they can come out in various forms when you're in fact on such a you know, on, 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 on the psilocybin and such like that. It could be very dangerous for you. You can, if you have underlying health conditions, uh, you know, ne neurological conditions even, like if you, if you have those, then your brain could be irreversibly damaged because essentially what uh, psilocybin does is it seems to reawaken parts of the brain. It seems to open these kinds of windows again, not only just, you know, um, widening this the spectrum of things that you can receive with your brain such that you can, you know, perceive reality in a different way, but also making the brain malleable once more, which can in fact be very dangerous if someone is unstable and all those you know, factors of stability are just simply taken away and it can be very dangerous. But, but I think there but, is a tie in yeah, there so. to, the, to the AI point, which is that... Yeah, of course, yeah, I mean, we're exploring. But, but it's, it's, it's bidirectional. So it's not just it can be dangerous, it's almost guaranteed <laughs> to be dangerous. Uh, and that's why it's powerful. Um, and that's why we have to work to understand it. So when, when you say, you know, bad trip, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be therapeutic, right? And the emergent yeah, experiences sure. you weren't expecting by increasing neuroplasticity and psilocybin and the emergent experiences that the non-mind-having AI uh, is capable of without the adverse and limiting experiences of being a human, uh, they can, you know, hallucinate is the, the common term now, but they can come up with all sorts of shit that would be deeply traumatic for us to think, <laughs> Practically speaking, based on on, on, on on you know large and, and unpredictable um, interactions between the data they're they're imbibing, um, and their lack of a mind, and their lack of an experience of our mind in that interaction, is profoundly important to understand because they just don't have uh, the the emotional and deep regulatory control that we have by virtue of having emotions and feelings. They have essentially only uh, associative neocortex conceptually. And that leads to strangeness that we're going to be bad at predicting if we don't take into account that they don't feel the feels. Yeah, this is also something where when people say AI will replace lawyers, where I, say, I fundamentally disagree with that because I think the human element of dealing with another human's uh, transgression with the law, I think this is something that is extremely important. I mean, take into consideration, for instance, on a factual level, you have two entities, um, you know, fighting with one another, right? And these entities, the machine sees as just that, two entities, one of them has broken, let's say, an agreement, the contract, and now the other entity would be liable to a certain sum of money or assets as a result of the contract being breached, right? Let's say you have that. Now the machine, would naturally conclude, okay, this is the amount that is to be paid, this is the asset that is to be paid, so now the individual who has caused this transgression is to pay, just like that, you know, doesn't matter, you just have to pay. 
Now, I don't know if any one of you sees where this is going, but this is how the machine sees it. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the human element. You have this same scenario, but now the human sees it. And what the human sees is you have a person and a corporation. The corporation is entitled to a, you know, to, 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 to this kind of, yeah, like it's, it's entitled to this money, right? You owe it now money as a result of you breaching the contract. Now, in this context, it looks a lot different. What if the human cannot pay? Can there be a different way to do this? Could there be you working in the company or, or, or like, like what, what can be done? What can be done to remedy the situation in a better way? The machine will simply say, pay the money. A human will say, what can we do to protect the other individual? So I think that's why when you integrate uh, a robot into legal proceedings, you'll find these specific issues that on the surface, it looks like it's okay. But if you dig a little deeper and you add the element of being human, this added information that the bot does not know, you start to see that a different scenario makes more sense. So I think truly lawyers will not be replaced by AI because it would be very dis it would be it would be very bad It'd be very bad for everyone involved i think what we're getting today with ai is just simply a summary we input data and then we get a good summary of what an output is so in this instance it would never replace a lawyer but it would uh, augment and improve the lawyer's capability of getting different ideas for summaries Sure. Uh, Anthony, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, um, I, I think, uh, oh, you, you did? Okay. No, I don't um, know. Adrian, could you hear him earlier? Yeah, who? Anthony, yeah, that was him that was just speaking on that server. Go ahead, go ahead, Anthony. I was just saying that I believe that um, the artificial intelligence that we get today, we input data and then we get a summary back from it. And then that summary pertains to something we input. And uh, it is very, very efficient at creating a good summary. Uh, we can feed it lots and lots of data and then uh, get different summary opinions that then we can decide uh, how to use that information that we get back. Because uh, a lot of times I will write code and then I will put code in. A good example is in uh, uh, the ARM processor and the way the ARM processor acts with the I I2C bus. Well, I put in the code and then I tell it uh, I'm having a problem uh, with it losing connection with the I2C bus. So then it gives me some code back on how to check for the I2C bus. However, the libraries that... Uh, it references does not support the output code that it gives me, but it gives me an idea. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, maybe rather than looking for the um, serial cross communication, I can go ahead and look at uh, numbers of uh, node connected to that bus. When I do that, I now look at it and go, okay, let's try that. And then I would write the code again, a different way than chat GPT told me to write it. And, even though I copied the 
the way uh, that it wrote it in the formality uh, in the argument, it still came out to work out uh, better than the way I would have originally written the code in the first place. So it gives me a great summary, although it may be wrong. I can uh, basically look at that summary and decide for myself, uh, you know, oh, well, I can use part of that and make this code this way. Uh, so it'll never replace uh, coders and it'll never replace lawyers or doctors, but it will improve their ability to get ideas of uh, how they can uh, do their job more efficiently. So I want to get to the hands, but real quick, I wanted you to address with Owen. I know you got a medical background. So how would you use artificial intelligence in your I know you've you've done things like talk to tomato plants and hook your AI engine to physical living beings. Uh, and so maybe dive into that, maybe how, you know, with his research, which is fascinating, and I'm reading up on that as, we, as we're doing this show, which is just, just amazing. And I, I've never experienced psychedelics, but I mean, I definitely have funded and backed, uh, especially with some warriors and returning back from war and dealing with post-traumatic stress and so on. So what's your thoughts on how AI would help, uh, you know, improve, you know, and maybe Owen starts, but then uh, I'd like Anthony to see how his engine and, and his background in medical uh, could help solve some of these problems and fast track that uh, research because, you know, the human mind and, and how many neural synapses and stuff there, it's just, that's a daunting task. You think AI has a lot of nodes and connections and processes going. When you deal with the human mind, it's just next level. So don't know if you have anything to add to that or thought process around that, how AI could help improve. You want to take that first, Anthony? Yeah, go ahead. And then I'd like, uh, yeah, Anthony, jump in as well. Oh, okay. All right, so we started with really basic stuff, which is uh, safety uh, and monitoring. And the thing people are bad at is being eternally vigilant, right? Uh, you know, we get we get distracted. It's, a, it's not good, right? And so making uh, psychedelic medicines safer by offering, uh, you know, the, un the unsleeping eye of, of safety and monitoring was the first use case. Um, and so the SMS platform, uh, the session monitoring system, is something I helped develop with the team at Mind Medicine, which uh, is a machine learning clinical trials team. And, and so the, the point was to make both the clinical trial itself studying a very difficult to blind and very difficult to study uh, series of compounds uh, safer and to get more data on that process. Our initial use case was actually S-ketamine, which is already an improved uh, medication with a dissociated experience and a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy or REMS program so you can dispense it uh, and, and keeping an eye on what was happening with human evaluators at the same time so we can train the AI on what, what safety looks like. Um, and it's better at always having you know attention on a person than a person could, could ever be because our attention flags. And so we just took a task that humans are bad at, constantly paying attention, and we're, are training the AI on, on that task. Um, the more complex tasks that we'll be publishing on soon, and this relates directly actually to veterans and uh, Ibogaine, because um, that data is coming out soon. Uh, but if you look at Ib Ibogaine and MDMA, uh, we have some serious problems with scalability uh, using human monitoring alone, because uh, those are, you know, MDMA is coming to market at least officially with two, uh, two therapists in the room. There's just no way to pay for it right now. And uh, MDMA therapy, even in clinical trials, has had serious 
ethical breaches on the part of uh, administrators, which are sometimes therapists uh, now, uh, but have historically been others, and and uh, protecting patients from ethical lapses on the part of observers uh, was a big part of the, the the tools we wanted to build to preserve the safety of people who are coming in, not just for a transformative experience, uh, but for healing uh, in the context of a highly regulated medical environment where everyone needs to be protected from the powerful forces that can be unleashed. Yeah, we did a little bit of research uh, in in uh, PBTK methodology, which is physiologically based toxicokinetics, and uh, we looked at uh, long term, small dose uh, inputs. Uh, I'm sorry. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Okay. okay. I apologize. My my phone keeps dropping out and then coming back. Um, so we, uh, we look at the long-term effects using small dosages and uh, the increase of the uh, serotonin receptor sites to see if they're uh, increasing uh, in, on the blood cell. So we would know basically whether or not um, the long-term effect was actually increasing uh, the serotonin reuptake. Uh, I think this led to the drug robanthin, which was a somatosensory cortex enhancer used to help uh, fight uh, pain. Uh, so you uh, produce a somatostatin C factor, and the higher the somatostatin C factor, which is an acetylcholine inhibitor, uh, prevents the um, uh, neural signal from transferring between the dendrites. It's basically like a filter. I think this uh, was later on used to treat uh, fibromyalgia syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome patients. But we basically uh, used the same models uh, in our clinical phase lab studies to actually determine whether or not uh, we were getting the results. And of course, this is uh, utilizing early on uh, Bayesian uh, neural network protocols, not, not like what we have today where we have a really large advanced pool of information of which to choose from and be able to gather uh, summary outputs that would basically help us attain the uh, more knowledge about what we were, you know, what we were gaining back then as to what we would gain today. I was a med student before I went into electronics, if that makes any sense. Uh, today, I currently design uh, medical equipment. Um, uh, started uh, back in the 80s working in catheter oximeters and oximetrics. And then uh, today uh, we do heart monitoring, electronic devices and things like that um, here in the UAE. Dude, yeah, that's fantastic, man. Yeah, Owen yeah, uh, got a problem. He couldn't hear anything he was saying. I just DM'd me. I told him to uh, drop down restart. Uh, Twitter, Twitter is still very glitchy. The only, the only reason why there is uh, instability in Twitter is uh, internet. There's somehow is something wrong with it. Uh, but when you are like, for instance, a host in a space, as soon as you have shaking internet connection, chances are it's going to die. Like it, it has very little to do with your phone and everything to do with your internet. Like background processes, of course, will also impact this to quite a large degree. But the main, the main um, factor is internet. 
So get, get yourself good internet or like at least stay in a location where you have stable internet. Like have a host phone. You can actually have um, two instances of the same space running concurrently. So what you do is you basically go on another device, log in, and then you click reconnect. And you, but you must make sure that you are in fact in a stable you know area. And if when you are if and when you are experiencing uh, difficulties in the space, you simply close out the app. It's not going to shut down the space, um, but because because you already have another instance active, but it will give you security such that you know the space just does not end because that is often a problem. I see a lot of spaces crash. Uh, my spaces do not crash anymore uh, because it's just I, I try to take um, moments of the day where I know I don't have to go anywhere, and I do have this discipline. And also, on the, at the same time, uh, I've noticed people say their phones overheat and that they constantly crash, and I ask them what phones those are, and uh, I have not yet met a single person who said Android. I'm using exclusively Android because the hardware is better. And I mean, <laughs> you, you, you look, at then they say, oh, hey, what? we have got the best flagship. Like, no, you don't. You really don't. You do not. Not by any metric. Neither by software security, nor by nor by actual hardware utility. You really don't. You can look up those stats yourself. You can go on places such as maybe even GSM Arena, and you can compare the two latest flagship phones of any company and view those statistics side by side, and then you can draw your own conclusions from that. So processes and such. It's very funny. You have a hexacore instead of an octacore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't like phones that cost too much money, and if I do get myself a phone that costs quite a large amount, it is because I have to replace the old one because it's mechanically failing, as I've used it quite a lot, and that is sometimes not the case. The, the oldest phone that I've had, and is still in operation, I even gave it to someone else because it's so good, I have had it since, what, 2019? I've had it since 2019, and I gave it to a friend, and it's still operational. You should have seen the hell that phone went through. I used to spend at least eight hours a day playing video games on that thing. Concurrently. No, no day skipped. And that's because, you know, I kind of like intermittently did it sometimes, but most of the times I just did video games on weekends. I got so, I got so competitive that I basically was, you know, affiliated with certain streamers at the time. So funny origin, I just learned everything. <laughs> it, was a, it was a fun time. It was a fun time, yeah. Also very self-destructive. Anyways, uh, owners better, not better. Sorry, <laughs> owners back. Uh, and Anthony, you can go ahead and explain. Uh, start start from the top if you could. Thank you. Uh, go ahead and re-explain uh, what I just did earlier. Is that that what you said? Uh, yes, please. Okay. Um, we did. Sorry. Okay, so we did some uh, research. Anthony, go ahead. Go ahead. We, we were rugging there, so I don't know what all you caught from that last. Uh, from from Anthony's bit. You guys want to take? Oh, I I hate it when that happens. <laughs> I, okay, I, so uh, we were doing some research, um, uh, probably about 1992. Uh, working for Park Davis Pharmaceuticals. Hang on a second. Hang on. Uh, we 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 still have connection issue. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute everyone real quick. Give me a sec. Unmute, uh, Owen. Yeah. Anthony, do you hear Owen? 
Uh, Anthony, you're muted if you're trying to say something. Yeah, I can hear you, but I can't hear anyone else. Okay, Is there anyone um, else oh, speaking? Or? Yeah. No, at this point, no. Okay. This is one of my favorite, like when when this weirdness happens on the internet, it's my favorite opportunity to be like, hey, so this is what it's like for people in your life who have severe personality disorders when you when everyone else hears them speaking and you don't hear it. Like that's a real yeah, experience. I can't hear anybody. Um, yeah, you got yeah, it. It's not just on purpose, but it's a great Anthony, example. Like, hang on a second. That's actually a really good point. That was uh, saying something about split personality disorders. This, this is really funny. Um, Anthony, can you? drop down and reconnect as in just like close the app and restart the app and then sure. come back in here again I, th I think the problem might be on your end he's listed as a listener for me um it, okay interesting he's listed he's listed to me as a speaker oh, <laughs> i have no idea what the hell's going on anymore amazing we're it's, living we're living like everyone's got their own reference frame <laughs> It's, this is this is the, for everyone in the audience. This is what it's like to uh, be misunderstood in a way that's pathological. Is that one person sees one thing, one person sees the other, and it feels so real. Yeah, true. I will say though, spaces have made a drastic improvement in the last 30, 30 days. So, uh, I mean, those who complain haven't evolved with technology over the years, and. Uh, understand you know when you have this much volume you know i saw, saw you know some of the presidential candidates come up and they just have no idea what the back end structure it takes yep. to support those type of the, those type of uh influx and demand i don't care how well your infrastructure is built that's hammering and uh it's just you know it's pushing to the limits and kudos to twitter and elon and and those guys making improvements daily to this system so one of the one of the individuals I work with is a is an investor in early on in Tesla, and so the I just like working with people who understand uh, what it's like to actually uh, fund something that expensive, right, with, with that kind of capital cost, because uh, you know the infrastructure for this is uh, heavy, um, and it's not traditional medicine, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna do AI assisted medicine, we have to understand the capital cost of doing so. Is going to be well beyond, um, you know, what we historically spend, and and you know, tech companies, you know, routinely spend massive amounts, obviously, on, on technology, and healthcare does not, uh, and and hopefully, the the necessity of you know excellent utilities. So, for example, the um, fMRI guided uh, neuromodulation with Saint Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Treatment, which my office in New York will be offering in the next month. Yay! Um, and, uh, we just had, uh, the new technology add on payment, uh, uh, thing for, uh, look, we have an AI guided MRI based, you know, targeting of a brain stimulation treatment that gets depression to remission in five days. That's an FDA cleared treatment. It's an AI use case. I was doing targeting rounds with my colleagues today. It's freaking bonkers. And, you know, ChatGPT is flashy and fun, but the ability to heal suffering with this in an accurate way, uh, we cannot underrate the power of or underestimate the expense of doing both right or wrong, because we will suffer if we do. Yeah, true. Speak it. 
Yeah, Anthony, can you go ahead? Uh, did you hear Owen? Whoops. You, yeah, you there? Yeah, I'm here. I was trying to get the thing to work again, so I just had to reboot. Um, cool, cool. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I totally see a future where um, – and if you got, you had to go back to the uh, earlier times when we started connecting these to sensory data, where we could actually record that information and then be able to output some type of uh, either written response or uh, uh, data response. We could actually uh, send serial control data to an object and then get a response from it, which would reply data back. It's sort of like uh, listening to the Diffie-Hellman handshake of a fax machine and the uh, engine model interpreting every step of when the handshake is occurring, uh, we, we get the data back in, in uh, analog or in digital, and then it's stored into a memory set and then reasserted as some sort of output that we can make sense of. And, uh, and then we can either say, oh, when we see this data set, well, then we can output a serial data set to our comm. Uh, right now, we use Bluetooth because it's it's uh, really easy to connect up to our hardware. And uh, so when uh, we talk, uh, our, our words come out of our mouth. It gets converted to text. The text inputs into the engine. The engine processes the data through a pattern matching system. Uh, response is generated. And that response we call an action. So it has a DSO library, description subject object library. And then you have your Booleans, which is your pattern matching. And then your action, that's the output, whatever the output may be. It may be verbal response. Uh, it may be uh, a data response. So the data response would call a uh, com and then serial and send a serial string out or uh, a hex code out to a hardware. And then the hardware would gather information. It would uh, it would read its firmware input and then it was instructed to get information based on what it received and then put that information back into the engine, just like a verbal input to the engine. And then the engine would basically output to us verbally an interpretation of uh, what that machine was saying. So the it would be like it saying, you know, do you speak facts? And then all of a sudden this loud screaming noise starts coming out of the phone and then you, you start speaking back to it. it. It then converts that to English and then tells you in English what it says or in words what it says. And then you say, okay, I want to say this to it. And then you hear more loud screaming and so on and so forth uh, as it's uh, converting over to the uh, communication to the hardware. Uh, whereas we, that that's an older example, but you get the idea. We actually can uh, gather uh, sensory data of, uh, of biological um, events, and then we can take those uh, probabilities of those biological data that we've gathered, and we can come to a summary and be able to output a response, and that response could be uh, an automated uh, uh, data output response to control hardware, or it could just be a verbal response, or it could just be a memory. In other words, it just simply inputs it as a memory. Uh, right now, the AI model uh, can... Uh, can converse with you using the conversant engine while at the same time monitoring the airspeed, the temperature of the room, uh, your pulse, heart rate, QRS complex, P wave, T wave, everything about your, your uh, biological, you know, uh, signs. You could 
input into the engine while it's conversing with you doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to output a response. But let's say your pulse picks up to, you know, 110 beats a minute and it, it sees this. Well, it now can respond to you verbally or say something because uh, even though it didn't say anything up leading up to that point, it was uh, monitoring it as a natural event process and storing it into memory and reprocessing it as part of the conversation construct. So it's aware of the world around it while it's conversing using the conversant engine. So basically your system, and you I've, knowing it's been a while since I've, you and I have looked at, I haven't looked at the current version, but I mean, you were early on in compartmentalizing, like the human brain, you created um, your engine similar to the brain where you had the motor cortex that ran you know, simple functions and motor, motor functions. And so you developed your, your engine and others have developed on that same premise where just like we as humans, you know, if I, like if I go to touch a stove and I'm just, I'd say I touch something hot and don't realize it. My brain doesn't have to tell my hand to yank away. It's like those nerve endings have uh, uh, stimuli, and then it sends a signal to my brain, and then my brain says, ouch, right? So you've developed similar systems, and their AI is moving to that way where these independent systems work together independently. So they're experts, you know, especially embedded intelligence and machine language. I've seen that evolve. It's been slow, guys. I mean, it's it's been amazingly slow evolution. But Tesla's done a great thing. Because if you look at a Tesla, for example, maybe use that as an analogy for those in the audience of how Tesla used this independent systems between visual, audio, uh, mapping, you know, GIS information and object avoidance and so on. So and applying that and, and where AI is going and, and the safety aspects of it. Because Tesla's a, a walking testament to safety and artificial intelligence. Yeah, for sure. You can uh, remember uh, back in the early 2000, we gave a lecture and we had that projector, which projected Abraham Lincoln up onto the wall. Uh, uh, when we uh, were given our lecture, he would he would chime in and and say things, you know, uh, about his life, who he was, everything else. But uh, one time we had Abraham Lincoln tell a joke. And there were, I think, about 400 people in the audience, and uh, we were uh, we were letting him go through the uh, conversation that we were having with him. I had a little microphone on, and we were kind of cheating back then. We were talking into the microphone, but we had a typist, you know, over there on the keyboard typing to Abe what I was saying, and then Abe would uh, output a verbal response. But when he output his joke, uh, the entire audience started laughing at the end of the punchline. And uh, while they were laughing, we didn't say anything. We just let them carry on until the laughter began to die down. And then we said, do you guys realize you're being entertained by a machine? For the first time, we began to realize that the machine's impact on human emotion would begin to change. Now, it wasn't the text-based chatterbot, but it was the aesthetic viewing of the facial modeling, which created the connection between the human and the machine. So they could look at the machine and they could see its face. They could see the expressions. They could uh, uh, converse with it and learn from it. And it could learn from them. And they felt like they were having a connection with another human because temporarily they were fooled by uh, an avatar that was designed to 
connect with them emotionally. I think over time that could definitely uh, be used in such a way that um, it could aid humanity in helping them change or evolve, especially if we understand and know how to use this tool later on in the future. Thanks, guys, stealing my AI research project. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, and what are some yeah. of the handicaps you're seeing? And go, go ahead, Anthony. I was going to say, um, I can't tell you how many times I've said that over the decades. Every time I look at something today on the on uh, AI, I go, "Oh my gosh, I was doing that 25 years ago. How can I, you know, how could I not have foreseen to try to protect that that uh, intellectual property?" Uh, because back then I wasn't really interested in protecting it. All I wanted to do was just get the model up and running and get it uh, communicating with people and start learning from it. That's all I cared about. It wasn't until I got, you know, in my late forties, early fifties that I began to realize I probably should have, you know, taken some of the intellectual property I created and, and uh, at least tried to, you know, capitalize on it rather than make it open source so I actually have the inverse uh, feeling about it, which is which is maybe a little weird. But I my game out of this is like it, it it becomes so good so fast that thinking you can protect it with kind of traditional IP approaches isn't isn't going to be true. What we do know is training AI is a lot harder than building an AI. Um, and and so my kind of long game is if I'm going to build AI products, I want to think about the future of those products and the financial models in which they will continue to be sustainable. And so my long bet is on reducing cost in the care of human health, not making money off of, of that process. It's actually modifying the risk. And when you can be a rain god, it helps if you control the rain. So if you can modify human suffering at the end of the day, be in the underwriting game, and I don't mean American health insurance, which has as its job increasing cost, I mean, actually mitigating risk and making money by having better risk models. And that's a, a more sustainable and frankly humane way to both bring novel and wildly effective treatments to bear and make money off of it without having to protect IP because it's better if more people are well, <laughs> which, which undercuts United Healthcare. So uh, come get me. Um, but that's a joke because I know they can't because I do defense intelligence contracting. So good luck with that. Oh, and if you go to patents.google.com and you type my name, you'll see that in 2005, I filed a patent for Google+. I created the world's first uh, circle of friends. However, that patent got stifled years and years. They just kept stifling it. I kept trying to push it through, but they kept stifling it. Finally, in 2011, uh, Google comes out with the Google Plus engine, and they totally disregard all of my work that I did to generate the world's first circle of friends database uh, and associative network database. I, I worked with several friends on this, spent millions of dollars trying to, to create it only to be squashed by a giant corporation. When you say don't protect it, then I look at the idea that, wait a minute, if I don't, then someone else will. 
and they will be the profiteers of it. And I would rather, because I have a philanthropy heart, I want to give, I want to help others. And the only way that I can do that is to protect what I create and then be able to me decide what I can do to help others with what I, with what I create. And that gets taken I, I, away I am from agreeing me. with you. I am agreeing with you, and I've been I've been robbed like literally, <laughs> literally and figuratively. About um, my my argument was more that while we're thinking of IP and protecting ourselves and protecting what we do, if we think of the financial models in which they'll be used, you know where the puck is going, <laughs> like sk- skate to the future, like Google was gonna steal that, <laughs> right? Someone was gonna steal it from you if they could, um, and and if it's a thing that can only be protected by a lawsuit, well then you're gonna have a lot of lawsuits to file. But if it's a thing that undercuts the financial model of the thieves, you're in a different position. And, and as a health professional, I can undercut the financial model of United Healthcare, for example, uh, to, to name a $330 billion in annual revenue company by doing things dramatically cheaper, which blows up their gig. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I think about it. It's not protecting just the IP, which, of course, you have a right to, as do all owners of intellectual property. But having a strategy to protect it financially is really what I'm advocating for, not not for having it unprotected and having you be be uh, robbed, which is not good. And that's the point of uh, the AI robots of the future to enforce that for you, perhaps. Quickly, I would like to before we continue quickly, I'd like to introduce uh, Jessica Kirsch as well. Uh, she's got her hand up for a bit there. Also, I will be going for a few seconds. Nikki, if you could, uh, can you? take over basically you two uh, co-hosts i uh, hope the space doesn't disconnect i'm about to do the instance transfer so if we disconnect we disconnect if all goes well we continue on wait you're switching <laughs> you're switching yeah. your device yes because one handles payment and the other does not <laughs> okay so wait before you do anything just make sure you've done this before like we got to do pep top it, it's been so glitchy um, I was reading through some other stuff and people are having trouble getting into spaces and starting spaces. So we're kind of in that mode. So before you shut down, like keep this space moving and grooving, open the other space on the other device. If you have a third device, try to open it. And as long as you're showing as host and they're both at like, you hear them as um, like they're basically, they're like, like sound in stereo, meaning like they're current and going, don't shut us down until you have the other one up and running and you all test. Good. All happened. Smooth transfer. We may okay. continue. I'll, I'll be back in a bit. My palms are sweating for you. Okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no problem. Thank you, uh, Nikki, so much. And thank you for everybody for hosting this. This has been very interesting. Can everybody hear me? Can I have a thumbs up from anybody if you can hear me? Thumbs up. All right. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Awesome. 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 And Nikki, to a fellow Midwestern girl. Whoop, whoop. I'm from Indiana originally. Ah, nice <laughs> to find you. Like, I've seen you in the spaces. I haven't talked to you yet. It's nice to finally meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, too. Okay. I, and what was just discussed, I may not be um, qualified to speak on the matter, but I do have an opinion on the matter. So um, in terms of intellectual property rights and open source and... Um, what the two gentlemen were speaking of, of um, having the idea stolen and such, I, I can empathize. Um, however, 
I feel that in terms of AI and the safety of humanity as a whole, I feel it's, it's important maybe to think of it less in a money or how much money will this make kind of scenario uh, and think of it as like um, a culmination of all of these people or a humanity as a whole because if just one person is doing research on a particular topic or, you know, it, that that introduces um, confirmation or is it information bias? It's the it, it's just one person's opinion. And um, much like ChatGPT, we're not exactly sure who's providing the data to it uh, or the number or the different people that are providing the data to it. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm not in that field and I, I'm not trying to take away from the fact that uh, you spent a long, long time researching different topics. However, I just feel it's important to mention that, first of all, America is such a lifted, um, I always mess with this word, uh, litigious society, that we're always, you know, we're trying to sue everybody for, for something. But in the grand scheme of things, in terms of advancing AI in a safe way for humanity, um, I, I've heard Elon Musk speak on this before, where uh, he's mentioned that he doesn't care about patents. And it was in reference to an interview that was conducted um, by a a YouTuber, his name is Tim Dodd, he goes by the, the Everyday Astronaut, in terms of talking about technology uh, for SpaceX and Starship and the engines, the Raptor engines. Um, and he had mentioned, some, Tim had asked if, uh, you know, Elon and, and SpaceX had patented, you know, certain technologies. And he's like, I don't, I don't give a shit about patents or maybe, he's, I, I can't remember exactly what he said. And because it's, a, the importance is, general overall positive outcome for humanity and um he and for tesla tesla as one of the biggest ai companies in my opinion in the united states maybe internationally globally now and definitely will be in the future just my opinion i feel that the data that they're collecting and have collected over the years with full self-driving, they have actual real-world data proven um, because every single Tesla vehicle that is on the ground, or on the ground, they're all on the ground, um, until the Roadster package with the SpaceX, or Roadster with the SpaceX package. Anyways, um, every Tesla vehicle that is driving in full self-driving, even though it's if it's in beta, they are collecting, Tesla is collecting that data and every single instance is being recorded. And if something happens, they're able to, you know, almost within real time see, or I don't know exactly how it happens behind the scenes, but they've collected all of this AI data. So if this, then that scenarios, if this happens, then this, then the car will react in this way. If that happens, then the car will react this way. If this happens, then it'll react this way, this way, or this way. So I just kind of wanted to just bring up that, um, the, the, the collection of data from uh, a million sources, I feel like, is, is, in my opinion, far more important than um, the monetary value that one could get from patenting um, that research study, I guess, if that makes sense. So, uh, so thank Jessica, you for listening. 
think it's a good point, and I think you actually misunderstand why Elon doesn't care about patents. Um, if you're Tesla and you have 500,000 cars plus at the time he made that comment first, driving around on the road and com- com- collecting all this, the, the self-driving data, you don't need a patent to protect it anymore. Meaningfully, because that's a, a, a head start in the amount of data about driving on the road, which creates the moat. So you could patent, I'm going to have self-driving all day long, and that entitles you to a lawsuit right? that you can go after. Uh, it does not uh, give you the data of half a million plus people and now many more collecting all the data about how to self-drive for reals. So the moat financially for, for Tesla is not the patents, even remotely, because they have a data moat on extremely expensive and hard to collect data that you'd need to build another giant popular car company to get people into to collect that data on your behalf. Uh, it, the, the IP on that is, is almost a trivial issue at that point. So it's, it's not that he wants to give it away, it's that he went and collected it first, and that gives you a head start, which is better protection of your intellectual property than the methodology for how to do it, which is how traditional intellectual property patents are, are work. And so my argument to Anthony was essentially, yeah, collecting all the data in a way that is going to financially undercut those who would rob you is a decent strategy in a world where there are people who will rob you. You have to look at the fact that we are we are nowhere near as powerful as companies like Google. We don't have the luxury of having $680 billion in our bank accounts to be able to say that, oh, I don't care about patents. A patent, and a lot of people don't really truly understand this, but a patent doesn't provide you any protection whatsoever. The very moment you you file your patent, you are published on the internet uh, at a repository, and it's for the whole world to see. So the patent is not protecting you from anything. Someone can just simply look at that patent and go, oh, well, I can improve upon that, and therefore now I, I, I now own that field. But what a patent does give you the right to is it gives you the right to be at market. So when you have a patent on your ideas, you then can go ahead and say, okay, now I can take my idea to market. Because if you go to market without that patent, then all of the large companies can squash you in a second and do away with you and all of your work. And you have nothing to be able to fight back with if you don't have a right to be there in the marketplace. So when people go, oh, I have a patent now. I'm all protected. Yeah, good luck. Go up against a company like Google. Try to sue them. I did in 2011. Try to sue them. You can't. A company like that owns all... Someone's got a microphone on. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So um, basically, uh, when you get your patent application, now you can go to market and you can you can now do all your work and publish it. And you can financially benefit from it, enough to feed your family, enough to give jobs for other people to feed their families. 
But when you have a large corporation that comes in and takes over that field and then removes you from that area, now you no longer have the ability to provide others with the ability to take care of their family. It's not about how much money you're going to make, but it is about being able to have the right to be there so that you can make money to survive and, and, uh, and work within that environment. Okay, that makes sense. I and I understand it from that perspective. Uh, yeah. Well, um, thank you. I, I can. I, I thoroughly can understand. I, I've I've written so many patents, and I I have quite a few patents myself. Uh, none of them are have done anything for me because I usually work for corporations, which when I invent something, all of my assignment rights go to the company I work for and they financially benefit from it, not me or my family. When I created the artificial intelligence software, I wanted to be able to utilize that artificial intelligence software to create a world that would have millions of users and people benefiting and learning and growing and gathering information, but that doesn't come free. You have to pay for it. My server costs alone were $30,000 a month. So I had to come up with ways of being able to generate revenue to be able to stay in the market and compete against everybody else that was in the market at that time. So here we are, you know, uh, decades into the future. I look at a lot of the work now. I see how pattern matching systems work. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I've even caught a couple of companies, Google being one of them. I hope you're listening. Uh, when they took the... Uh, uh, associative network data and literally replicated. So if you go to patents.google.com, type in Anthony Carson, hit enter, go to the third patent down, you'll see that I have a patent on social uh, networking uh, systems and method. This shows the world's first circle of friends six years before Google did it. And they replicated my patent. Now go to Google patents and look up Google's patent. You'll see that our patents are almost identical. Yet, because Google owns the repository, they control the patentability. That means they, they are basically your judge. And if, they, if you file a patent application that goes in their repository, then how do you stop somebody like that from, from looking at your work and then going, you know what? We can control whether or not that examiner grants them right to market and we can take his work. Now, they own the repository. They own all your data. Now they go in and they start doing the work on it. And then six years later, they catch up. And, and, and obviously, we had websites up and running at that time. So our code was accessible if they wanted access to it with GoDaddy. And, uh, and then they get our code and they do the exact same thing we did, exact. And at that point, the stifling of my patent quit. And theirs was granted in 60 days, which is an almost impossibility. If you look at the time that uh, Google filed their patent for Google Plus and the time that it was granted was 60 days. It takes two years to get a patent. For me, sometimes it takes four and five years. I have literally argued with the examiners all the time trying to get my applications through. So they have the luxury of not arguing. They're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. They can buy whatever whatever argument they want and the examiner will get paid and they all go away with the application and you won't. So I think uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for the small, the smaller inventors 
the small creators. And you had to remember that a lot of these guys that you see today, they they don't uh, have intellectual property on the uh, on the artificial intelligence engines. And the reason why they don't is because it became public space. When I first wrote the Yaponda engine, I made it open source and gave it away to the world. I did this because I wanted it to evolve and I wanted it to grow. And today everyone's doing it and they're profiting from it. Then I look at it and go, well, maybe I should have uh, controlled that. Maybe I should have uh, got in on that and and at least written an application for it. Uh, I didn't bother because after what happened with Google+, Plus, who would want to write an application the moment you publish it? Uh, no, the moment you type it on your computer in, uh, in Microsoft uh, Office, you're basically typing it on my- Microsoft's uh, servers now microsoft has everything you just wrote in their servers and if it catches the interest of their eye then uh, they will intercept it and they'll start the filing on it so you, you no longer have the privacy anymore you no longer have any way of being able to write anything without someone else of power knowing about it and it's almost like my my book uh you know the watershed moment i took it offline because Publishers stopped paying on it. They started torrenting it, and it wasn't worth just keeping in Amazon. Good, Jessica. I feel for you. I, I'm, um, I, uh, I'm so sorry. I, as I'm googling your patent, you know, patents.google.com, I'm thinking to myself. I'm typing it into the Google search bar. So any, and like, like what you said, if you type it into Microsoft, I forget what program you said that it automatically goes into the database and they can assess whether or not they find interest in it. And, um, I, I, I can speak from, um, so Google owns YouTube, right? And, uh, YouTubers, are often misunderstood by uh, with how much money their channel is making. People think that YouTubers make all of this money and that it, it's all going to them. Well, I can speak from experience as a small channel that, and I think about this often, every time that I upload a video to my YouTube channel, it's training Google it, it, I'm giving them information on whatever topic it is that I'm covering, whether they have the information or not is irrelevant, but I'm providing my take on it. Right. And so it, like when I tell people about my channel, I say, um, I'll say, you know, what it, or I'll, I'll say it's just by name, Jessica Kirsch. And if they don't understand that, I say type in Jessica SpaceX and, and then it'll come up, but they have to go to Google in order to do that. And so, um, I feel your, I, well, I, I don't totally feel feel your frustration from your perspective, but I understand how frustrating that that must be. And um, I'm sorry that you've been through that. And um, I, my apologies on what I said earlier, not understanding the, the entire scenario. Um, I do find it interesting as I'm sitting here reading uh, your patent, let's see, published March 28th to 2013, Social Networking System and Method. And... Yeah, the moment that that's published, I, I completely understand that that it, that's frustrating that that doesn't provide you the the protection that it should. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what else to say. I'm, I'm just, I, I feel, I feel for you. I noticed you just said 2013. I actually filed that in 2005. So now I'm going there to look to see if they've been doing this to me also is that they've been moving my filing date forward and moving theirs backwards. And so that it makes it seem as if their filing date was before mine and it was not. Uh, That's it dirty. Was, it was I'm, five years. It was five years before I'm, then. I'm seeing filed November 26, 2012, and then published March 28, 2013. No, no. Uh, A-M-T-H-L-Y-C-A-R-S-O. I'll see. Uh, social networking systems and method. It shows, uh, I'm looking at it right now. It shows uh, my filing date. Yeah, 11, 2012. That is so wrong. Okay, so now look, if you go back, go back one real quick and notice uh, just to hit your backspace button, right? Hit your backspace button. Okay, yes. Now, do you I, see I where it says I, social... Do you see priority 2006? PM. You see priority uh, 2006? So that's what they're doing on the publication. They're showing it was filed in 2012. That is an outright lie. It shows oh priority 2006. And then if you look at it, uh, it shows later on filed January 5th, 2012. That is a lie. 2011 is when I filed my application. Uh, or 2011 is when they're saying I filed my application, but you can look and see where it still says uh, to priority 2006, uh, 10, uh, 26. That shows right there that they're trying to hide when I actually filed it before theirs. That's gross. That's, that's wrong. I mean, this is fascinating because this is a great example of my escape where the puck is going point because like, that's a shallow fake. Right. Like, like there are plenty of fakes that rely on our ability to not realize that like everything could be fake. And in the very near future, the easy assumption is everything could be fake. That's online. Um, and, and so what Google is doing to Anthony right now is simultaneously undercut by his own innovation, because in the future, no one will believe anything, uh, you know, kind of a priori, which, by the way, we shouldn't because. You know, scammers will lie to us and, and big companies will lie to us and they'll want us to believe their story. And the ability to figure out kind of, you know, truth from fiction um, is, I hope at least, the enduring use case for cryptocurrency, not a bunch of scammy meme coins, but the ability to create, a, you know, an indelible record um, of something, comma, anything that happened. Uh, and, and so what Anthony's talking about, you know, a patent with a date and a picture of a thing and a filing, like super easy to fake. And creating things that are harder to fake so that it's harder to scam us um, is, I think, a, a really important use case for, say, cryptocurrency, tying it into the, the conversation that brought us here. Because what Google is, is doing in, in this case, and you know, I don't know, I'm not looking at any of it, but like that's an obvious thing to do. Like, <laughs> just infinite fake documents. When I do some consulting to intelligence, uh, my, my answer is usually, we'll create as many fakes as is humanly possible so that your adversaries who will hack your systems, you have to assume that, will not be able to tell the real one from the fake one. And so if you're our you know, military deploying in Ukraine against Russia to support Ukraine, uh, Russia's got better hackers, right? So just have as many operations manuals as you can as an example of just like, you know, the, the blizzard of endless fakes. 
uh, has its own force and power uh, that creates a suspension of belief, right? Fakes are about the suspension of disbelief, uh, and, and disbelief is protective. We should not believe people who, who want to scam us, and we believe it too often, and you know that's what the baddies are using is the fact that we're gullible, but when anything can so easily be fake, that equation subtly but rapidly can change. Sorry, Mimi's been patiently, she's got her hand up, but I didn't mean to pivot from this. We can always come back. I agree. Uh, patents are uh, a, a toughy subject. I mean, they're very expensive. Uh, you're dealing, depending what country you're at and so on. So, I mean, you can have, we could have an entire space on intellectual property, especially for, for you know, entrepreneurs and startups and early stage companies. And like as you said, they're only as good as you're willing to defend them and, and, and defend it. Because once, once you publish a patent and it's granted, you then have to defend that position. Otherwise, it becomes public domain. So, you know, that gets very expensive. Patent litigation is the most expensive uh, litigation there is. And uh, it's a very niche market as well. So, you know, look into that if you guys are talking about patents. I mean, like I said, artificial intelligence, Microsoft Research was even the first to try to get patents using uh, a, a, a form of ANN and, and artificial intelligence, uh, helping write patents. This is way before chat GTP and so on. And uh, Microsoft Research, I'll have to go find that. But maybe next, next spaces, I'll bring something up around that. But uh, go ahead, Mimi. You've been patiently waiting. Go ahead. Well, and I hope I'm not veering too far off topic now. I feel a little lost in the weeds, but um, I feel like a lot of what people were discussing before was addressed with uh, is addressed with blockchain. Um, when you have that indelible record to show, like, yes, I did file this on this date. You can't just Google can't just go in and claim that it was at another time. Um, and I also uh, thought that there was some interesting conversation about. Um, Google and its, you know, essential possession of the internet in that you're, you're just typing and all that data is being collected. Um, so maybe at a future time, but uh, Mind Your Biz um, specializes a lot in privacy. And I would love to see a space where we could discuss privacy in um, this age of, you know, corporate ownership of the internet. Um but to pivot back, um, I, what I have been thinking about in terms of AI safety, I love the idea of AI being this amplification of utility. But I read an article recently that discussed a simulation where they had a drone that was supposed to target, um, you know, the fictional uh, people, uh, but, you know, it had fictional targets and they were uh, just testing out how this AI would control this fake drone. And they had a human kind of on the button to stop it. The AI would make decisions, but then the human had the ultimate authority in um, determining whether or not uh, the, the the execution of the target would, would happen. And... Ultimately, what happened was that uh, the human was interfering with the AI's goal. And so the AI turned on the human and, and like, you know, in, in the simulation, killed the human. 
And so it was then communicated to the AI, oh, this is against the rules, you know, that's bad, you're not going to gain as many points. And it was coming from this communication tower. And so the AI turns on the communication tower because it was just hell bent on, you know, uh, accomplishing its objective. So my concern is what what do we do about these types of um, fallibilities in the system? Because, you know, uh, the AI is only as sophisticated as what we give it and we are fallible. So it, we are, AI is this reflection of us. And so what do we do? Uh, how can we prevent these, you know, inevitable outcomes? Who wants to take that? Anthony, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you can prevent it, I think. And, and ultimately, in the end, it's going to be a learning process. And <clears throat> I don't think that uh, the drone actually does uh, actual uh, commitment by itself to turn around and attack the tower somewhere in its coding. It has to have someone who inserted the data in order for it to do that. Uh, so it's not just going to come up with its own data and then, oh, well, it just makes sense to go and attack the tower instead, it would uh, it would basically be somebody who was responsible for putting that in as a probable output scenario. And, uh, and I think that the only safeguarding you're going to get is either one, have a preemptive safeguard where somebody, uh, some group is responsible for the oversight of data that goes in. And there, and there again, you have censored, uh, censorship of uh, data that's going to be occurred based on the arbiters who believe that it's uh, true and correct or, or right uh, in order for it to be installed into the engine model. Uh, the, the AI, until it becomes a self-learning entity where it writes its own knowledge based on, uh, on basically Pavlovian response, uh, you insert data and it has some type of Pavlovian response. It's uh, it's all uh, automated. It's not it's not you know pre-written until we get to that point. Then uh, we're merely just the people responsible for what the outcome is of the engine model itself. I hope that makes sense. Um, it does. Oh, sorry. I was going to say it does to a degree, but um, I just recall something you were saying earlier in the space about how you you created this AI model and kind of left it to function in, in and, and I apologize because a lot of that is, this is just my own ignorance with, with these processes that they, they are more technical than, you know, beyond my understanding, but, but that when you came back to it, like where it had gone had, had kind of veered very far from what your expectation was. Um, and how do you account for that? Yeah, you're sense? talking about the ghost in the shell uh, actually having things happen that we couldn't uh, explain. So we had to scour through the code to try to figure out why it did specific things because we know no, ultimately in the end somewhere it gathered that data and somewhere it made this decision to do that. And that was a, the what we call the ghost in the shell paradox. We, we didn't insert that response, but we got that response. Now it was up to us to try to figure out how. And if we, if we, could figure that out, then how do we alter it or change it? And, uh, and, and a lot, and whether the, you know, of course, back then it was just simply plastic, you know, animals on a grid and a robot arm making choices, right? Uh, 
and so choices that it made were within the constraints of what it was programmed. But when it made choices outside those constraints, then it left us trying to figure out, well, why did it do that and how did it do that? And uh, we, we know that somewhere we had written a rule uh, for the output construct to actually generate that response, but we have to, you know, really research it to figure that out. Uh, it didn't do it on, on wants and needs or reward. It did it because it was logical and, uh, and it, it created that part of the output response um, automatedly, but uh, it's because it was programmed to create that output response based on what it was learning. I see. So, so I guess then the question is, how do we um, protect for for our own lack of of foresight? Because that was a lack of foresight then on the part of the experiment. I, I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm talking now about the, the, the drone thing in that, that I read about. Like, I don't think they anticipated the AI responding the way that it did. How do we have that foresight before we put AI in control of things that are potentially dangerous? Yeah, um, we actually have a little bit of experience in this. Uh, Biz and I worked together on a project uh, to recognize guns. And uh, we used a drone to attack people who might be of uh, danger with a gun. Now, the problem is, is that um, we can't tell the difference between uh, who is the uh, good person, who is the bad person. But nevertheless, we can see the gun. We can tell, we can actually use a, a Python model and we can actually uh, tell that is a definitely a gun. And then we can give it a set of instructions to attack uh, whoever that person is. And uh, we have a video somewhere, Biz, of uh, the drone attacking me at that uh, at one of our offices when I picked up the drone. And uh, I mean, when I picked up the gun and the drone attacked me and ran into me and the video shows me picking up the gun. And as soon as I did, I look up and I see the, the whirling of the props take off on the drone and it starts flying straight at me, smacks me right in the face and knocks me over. And that's the end of the video. And I don't know, you should put that on YouTube biz. That, that was pretty good. But yeah, uh, pretty yeah, no, I, yeah. Do you still have that video? Uh, somewhere. I've got some stuff archived. So Anthony and I have done, some some saving lives technology stuff, both for post Sandy Hook and actually before that with uh, uh, some sniper detection stuff. We were deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq with some technologies that uh, detected gunshots and stuff like that. If you ever seen the movie American Sniper uh, with Bradley Cooper, well, that's Chris Kyle. We actually worked with his special forces units using Anthony's artificial intelligence engine together acoustic signatures to detect uh, a muzzle blast and supersonic and triangulate in on that. So if you remember from the movie, those that seen that, you know, it was a real event based on real events. And so special forces get all the fun toys and stuff. So this system would, would use his AI and distinguish between, you know, you know, loud noise like that, like a clap or fireworks or backfire from that so you know we 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 tried a lot of things and then when sandy hook and some of these other school shootings we thought hey we take our knowledge that we learned from that and try to apply it to 
a drone that didn't have an attack mechanism. It was really just to distract the shooter because, you know, by the time the cops get there, every second, you know, counts. So we've done a lot of philanthropist-based work using his artificial intelligence and sensor networks to, to try to save lives and make an impact that didn't have a monetary value attached to it. So a lot we, of that research actually, is fun. And, uh-huh. We deployed that in Rochester where I trained in, in medical school. The trauma surgery team just deployed your shot spotter system um, to more rapidly identify when kids got shot yep. in urban they, they use our trauma surgery to them. Yep. Correct. I, I was they, there. We licensed, <laughs> yeah, we licensed our, you know, we, if you can't beat them, join them. And, you know, we're, we invest in early stage technology and find companies that can take it to market and has been our strong suit over the years. And my, I really, my, my forte is being able to understand, understand geek talk. Like you mentioned earlier, I can, I can, you know, go toe to toe and learn it, but you know, I can't write. And even though I can write some of these artificial intelligence processes, I understand it, but I also speak wall street investor, big corporate and how to, you know, streamline and get to market. And that's where a lot of, you know, inventors and, 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 and as not had this problem, but you know, a lot of people have that, disconnect and figuring out how to bridge that gap over to uh, corporate America and, and building backwards from the cell. You know, how are you going to build something for acquisition? A million, yeah. a million points. Can I just underscore what you just said? Like really hard. If you're going to be deploying capital into these things, the ethics matter first, not the dollars. You make the dollars work. It doesn't work if you don't make the dollars work. If capital is going to go where it's going to go. So when we're de- developing things, we need to understand they could be used in a variety of different ways and put the money behind the things that are good, not the things that will harm us. Agree 100%. And, you know, sometimes you bet on the wrong horse. I mean, you, you mean to do social good, but we've had so many people that see our ideas or see his vision and ideas and still leave them. You know, once he's they you get money and get him working, and then he's turned over this intellectual property, they've ghosted his knowledge, and then they throw him to the side. I've seen it happen time again. And, you know, just thinking, ah, you know, I've got the golden goose now. It's mine, ha, ha, you know. And and they don't realize it's the team and the people that build that vision. And without them, how are you going to get on the moon if you fired your rocket scientist? I've seen it time and time again. Greed is is, is always a factor there, and you got to guard yourself. So it's unfortunate. There's a lot of good out there, and a lot of it's stifled through greed. We see that in crypto. We see it in medical. We see it with big corporations. And so, you know, I'm all about, you know, giving more power back and, and, and create a more equal playing field. And I think that's where artificial intelligence, I mean, that's what this discussion is about, is one, how to protect yourself, but how to utilize it as a tool to, to even the playing field, because it does. You have knowledge at your hand and your mobile device to everything on the planet, technically. And in spaces like this to come together and talk through things, I mean, we've covered a lot of different subject matters here. And I really appreciate Adrian, shout out to him as far as going into these different disciplines. Like you come over, you came over from, you know, he's been in crypto, he's been in Ordal, he's been in Bitcoin, he's been in medical and psychedelics, he's been in, you know, uh, um, SpaceX and aviation. And, and and it's just fascinating. And and I uh, really appreciate him bringing these these collective minds together. And I try to jump those other spaces. I learn. I'm like him. I, I just, I'm a sponge. So, yeah, you're right. And, and it's good to do social good. You know, they don't always pay the bill. You know, you can't eat... Uh, you can't eat stock and, and goodwill all the time, but it's, you know, if you have your heart right and you have it in place, you know, these things will fall in place for sure. It's just a process. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I agree hundred percent. 
I did uh, when you were talking about the SpaceX stuff was Jessica mentioning the space that we will have? Yes, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I was out buying chicken. I do stir fry on like on this day of the week. This is also uh, for those of you in crypto. I'm, I'm actually going to be hosting a space later today once again, and it is going to be about attributes. So attributes is a beautiful uh, 100 piece collection that is basically a tribute to Satoshi, so Satoshi a tribute, right? Like, yeah, it's very nice. That's also why I've had so many circles in my good morning and good night art, because I've been basically, you know, subliminally referencing uh, what they're doing. And I just absolutely love the art. It's basically a mathematical pattern as well. Something to do with the golden ratio, I'll, I'll leave you to figure that out. So once again, it's a beautiful light bulb moment. It actually connects to a second uh, collection. It's not released yet. But I know of it because I'm I'm always in the spaces and I've got the alpha, and I can reference that <laughs> in one of my pieces of art before it even came out. So I was like a little bit. Yeah, I I play mind games with images such as that because I, I generally find the art is in a sense like that. It's very beautiful. I love it. Um, it's it's available on Magic Eden. You could buy it if you wanted to. Uh, I'm not sure why anyone would even sell that, but it's basically this hundred piece collection is given or is given to various many people in the space, you know, the dreamers, the builders, that kind of thing, the OGs, as given to them uh, for free. And you can hold that. It's like a, it's a and then you of course you have a special role in the Discord server as well. It's a it's a it's a very special thing to hold. I'm very honored by it. I honestly did not imagine that I would come this far. I'm like standing amongst people who've been in this space for, you know. Uh, five, ten plus years, and just just me here. It's been barely two months. I'm just standing. <laughs> it's 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 quite no it's quite nerve wracking. Every time I I start a space with uh, various people, I just I have a small little moment of realization. I'm thinking to myself, Good God, what you are doing is what some people could only do if they'd have done something like this over a period of years. But yeah, I suppose I have in a way. But yeah, now I'm here. Like, yeah, I've always educated myself on the things least known. So, yeah, I guess it finally does pay off. And I think it's very nice that we can bring people together and we can truly see all sides of most arguments. And, and I think that's really powerful because most shows tend to just completely ignore those sides of things. And I'm just unbiased. I'll be on any show. I'll be asking anyone questions, even if I ask very specific people in crypto who've been called various things either it be accurate or not, I don't care. I'd just go there and ask them questions that would be asked, you know. And the same also applies to anyone, really. Even like, my, my, my political affiliations, I do not have any. I could interview anyone from Joe Biden to Donald Trump. It would not matter to me. All I would have is questions, and then the public can ask some questions as well. That's the idea of the space. It doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, it may have some caveats to the example that I've just mentioned, but in a sense, that is just what it is. There's so much more to this, and I think it's really cool. I'm actually looking forward to the space on, uh, you know, Starship and such. It's going to be so cool. It's going to be the first one I've done on the subject, and I've been waiting for people who are knowledgeable on this to, you know, help me out. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I found Jessica Kirsch was very nice. Actually, she was the one who kind of inspired me to do that, because I saw it, and I was like, hey, finally, I've got someone who knows what they're, what they're talking about. So yeah, that space is in fact coming, and in the future we'll also have a tokenomic space. But yes, uh, later today or which, wherever you are, there will be a space on the Satribute's project. 
hosted with the founder himself, who's a very interesting individual. But so do turn in for more. Yeah, he's well spoken, and and that's an interesting part of collection and art. You know, I've been in crypto since early two thousand eleven, Bitcoin and mining, big big capacity mining. I liked it because I liked the decentralization and and you know being a business early at a young age, just understanding the frustration with banks and that power and controlling your own finances and getting credit and credit credit lines and establishing that. And it drew me to Bitcoin, but uh, the attributes is a whole new aspect. You know, it's like uh, if I had a hundred pennies for those who are listening in, not to divert, but you know, if you had a hundred pennies in your hands. And uh, you're a rare coin collector, you know, and say one of those pennies is worth a million dollars because it's some misprint from 1930s depression. And there was only maybe 10 of these in circulation. It might be missing the Denver stamp on there. So think of a, of a satribute or sat as part of a part of part of the Bitcoin <clears throat> blockchain and architecture there, not to get into too much of the weeds. But if I handed you these hundred pennies and you weren't a coin collector, you'd look at that and you, you would probably go to the, 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 the drugstore, uh, grocery store, gas station, and you'd give the attendant this million dollar penny with the hundred payments. So if you had a ability to isolate that, or if you knew, or you had the knowledge base and you could isolate that, now you, you could separate that out. So we're just seeing now technology to separate these um, uh, those rare pennies in this scenario and a wallet and separate because they're the special, like a digital wallet, like your wallet, you would put these coins in without, if, if your wallet actually had the ability to say, oh, that's a million dollar penny, don't let go of that. You need to put that in the safe or put it in safekeeping. That's what these intelligent wallets do. And what he's means by attributes is when Bitcoin was started January 3rd of 2009, that very first block that was minted, if you understand blockchain, has a very unique attribute. And then every time there's a difficulty adjustment and so on, so there's rarities, epics, and so on, well, they become very scarce. And you people are putting artwork, uh, they're putting uh, videos, they're putting uh, 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 audio files and music and artists. So I definitely encourage you to check those spaces out. I've never seen people go into spaces and build on the fly and solve problems like the Orbital community and the Bitcoin and its attribute type uh, uh, leadership there. So sorry to take over. You know, I just wanted to uh, just very passionate about that. And I think anybody listen, jump over there because it's uh, it's just it's fascinating to see this happening since January, building an infrastructure and industry in real time. And I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I'm excited about artificial intelligence and been involved with it a long time, but nothing is growing at this exponential parabolic rate that we've seen with, with Bitcoin and ordinals. I mean, also like, it's not only that, but we also have, um, it's, there's this one group of people out there, absolutely amazing, called Onchain Monkey. And so it's, it, it, may, it may not sound like much on the surface to anyone who's not necessarily experienced in it, but what they are doing is very vital for the future, specifically when it comes to Web3 internet and the ability to own that internet in a sense, because you know, ownership of what you have is very important. Personally, I think so. So what they are doing is they're basically utilizing this space that exists within Bitcoin. It's called the block space. And the way to envision it is very simple. You imagine Manhattan, okay? Imagine the entire blockchain is Manhattan. And within Manhattan, or like New York itself, there are various many pieces of land upon which things can be built. These buildings are inscriptions and re re recursive inscriptions are skyscrapers. 
So basically, the idea of OCM is to take a large amount of information and using reincursive inscriptions, condense it in such a way that you can build a very large structure on a small, small area. Think about it this way. Something that would normally require at least 100 to 60 megabytes of data to render, they can inscribe on a space that is sub one kilobyte big. Think about this for a second, sub one kilobyte. 4K streamed directly from the blockchain, three-dimensional looking object, which is an on-chain monkey, with shading and everything on sub one kilobyte, which is smaller than one kilobyte. It's absolutely mind-blowing. What they've done basically is, to, to, to give a visualization of how advanced it is, they have basically built a 21st century skyscraper in 19th century Manhattan. That's what they have done. And so I think this specifically is an amazing future to look towards where you can have an ownable internet through blockchain. Because the thing is, normally you have data that you don't own, not, not really own. It's on someone's server somewhere. Server goes down, everything goes down. But Bitcoin, you cannot just simply shut down. For as long as there's energy left on the planet that can power a computer, Bitcoin will exist forever. It will exist on there. That data is not going anywhere. Unless there's no more energy on the planet, it's not going anywhere. It's on there forever. Immutable data storage, which is a beautiful concept. Uh, with it, of course, come various risks. Um, there, there'll be some data that should definitely not be viewed, nor should it even be on there. But it will be on there. And that's okay. Not really, but there's really nothing much you can do about it, even in, in, in the real world. You cannot fully sanitize the internet. And the good thing is, however, that th th those inscriptions that would contain such terrible content can themselves be flagged as potentially harmful. And I mean, it's, it's, you're not necessarily viewing that content because you want to, unless of course you really do. Because I mean, if you, if you actively go out there and look for an inscription, then you are in fact looking for it. If you accidentally stumble upon it because you're just scrolling through inscriptions, wondering what's going on, then that's a different story. But mostly that content isn't out there to cater to anyone. It just is because it is, and it's unfortunate and terrible. But I mean, that's also a risk associated with immutable data storage, that there might be something out there that is truly harmful and you cannot necessarily take it down. You can take you know, measures in order to make sure that this contact content cannot generate any harm to anyone, but there's only a limited amount of influence that you can have on something that is immutable. So yeah, so th th I'm trying to look at this from a very realistic standpoint. There's a absolutely overwhelmingly large amount of benefit that can be get, you know, gathered from this. And at the same time, there's also quite a decent sizable chunk of disadvantage and you know, something dangerous that will also come of this. But I think generally the good outweighs the bad in the scenario. And yeah, I'm actually excited for immutable data storage. And what OCM is doing is they're pioneering this. And the way they've done it is that the way they're, they're doing it basically is they're going to also show other people how to do it, basically giving them uh, the, the methods by which they have engineered and built and designed those skyscrapers such that you can do it yourself. Because at the end of the day, we all benefit more from a better, a better utilized blockchain. So, yeah, there's only limited amounts of land on there. It's this all limited, it's very scarce. It's basically a property in Manhattan. It doesn't exist more <laughs> anywhere else, it's just there. So better build a good skyscraper.
Hey, do we have a couple of hands? I don't know if you want to go to those now. I want to say hi to Gary really quick because I invited him up to speak, so I haven't seen him in a hot minute. Um, but yeah, Tim is next, so just say hi to Gary. Um, welcome to the stage. Um, Tim's been waiting for a minute, and then um, Babe. Hey, uh, good evening. And I just I just wanted to talk about uh, simulation, like good simulation, bad simulation uh, was something I was posting about when you guys were having a discussion about whether or not anybody can catch up to the moat um, that Tesla has. And, and the answer is yes. Um, if you if you roll back into GIS and in mapping and what's been done in the drone industry, you know, dating back quite a while now. Um, you can see that data acquisition and real-world modeling allows for simulations to be created in high resolution so that, in effect, running, you know, in a type of game theory, you can accelerate your training. And the more accuracy you have of the scanned world uh, in which you are operating, the more accurate the, the learned or trained data that you get. Okay, so all of this has to be conducted within real-world rules-based structure and so there has to be a specific and and controlled like this is a controlled experimental structure for the purposes of doing the training um, in this instance that was brought up of the simulation of the military drone uh, they do not give us very much information about the simulated environment or the rules that have been given to the drone or whether or not the rules had been removed from the drone whether it was operating with unlimited compute power or the ability to do things that a real world drone would never be able to do. So in that way, it was like a game super boss having the choice or ability to do anything, which is not part of the real world construct of what a actual artificial intelligence or machine learning system can do on board, you know, a predator or reaper drone in doing ca certain kinds of calculations. In other words, the total amount of compute on board is extremely limited and it's very unlikely that it's going to have a edge server located nearby where it can um, do additional computing. It's, that's uh, not very realistic. Anyway, um, I guess that's all. I'll leave it there. That's pretty much all. I wanted to hear some thoughts on that and, and uh, reactions. Well, I mean, so my experience in, in, past life, I will say this much, with drone technology and communication is redundancy. You know, military uses very specific uh, building materials. They go to painstaking efforts to source those because they worry about malware. I mean, there's been things like light bulbs back when when incandescent went to um, uh, compact fluorescence that they could generate a tone and that tone could be heard in frequency. So I mean, not getting into the weeds there, but you know, communication and 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 uh, it could been it could have been another thing. I don't know the context of what she brought up, so I'd have to research and read that. But it could have been a counter signal injected into the 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 control mechanisms. I mean, if you've seen these these drone guns that will take down through to radio waves, basically diverting them, because you know we've looked at things from early early days from payload and delivery methods into stadiums and stuff like that. I mean, uh, they're worried about that. I mean, we brought this up. God, I don't know, Anthony, what was it? I mean, early 2000s, like, look, these 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 drones were coming in. You, know, you could buy for 
three, four hundred dollars, we're able to carry things and you had know, run 15 minutes. And now, now that's on everybody's subject matter. So it's really hard to tell what, what happened there, but you're right. From an artificial intelligence, you can speak more about that. That had to have been something in the code or expanded in the code that was either overwritten remotely or had some other function call that caused it to turn on itself. But I mean, that there's things we'll never know under those black programs and, and advancements there that are just beyond uh, what you could imagine. I mean, they're moving to unmanned vehicles. And, and I mean, it, it, again, it's part of our artificial intelligence, part of safety. I mean, you are saving lives. If we're going to stay the subject matter of the, the spaces, uh, yeah, you're not putting a soldier behind that uh that the that, that cockpit or whatever, but now you're you've got other things to address. So and I don't know if you want to address that any further on on, on subject matter, but uh maybe yeah, I mean if we wanna yeah, I mean the authorization for you know for command and control or the operation for you know, say that in theater a drone can kill, you know, this it's something that's extremely controlled in the real world. And for the most part, from, from the, from the contractors that I, from I hear from in the field, they are not rolling this out in the field either, you know, although, you know, companies like in situ will be running experiments out there, you know, at their, you know, Oregon test field, tracking the cars running up and down 80, um, you know, but that's, that's not, you know, this idea that you have a drone other than for the purposes of uh, surveillance being fully automated and fully autonomous. So there was an incident like the real, like the real world incident you can think of, I can think of that actually happened. that was sort of scary with autonomous um, drones was they had a, I think it was a PAV level drone um, by Grumand and it was uh, loitering in the airspace over Germany for a number of days and they had lost link to it. And so basically it just flew until it, you know, was low enough on fuel that it landed back at the base without incident. Um, but in that, you know, in that incident, you know, there, this is a fully automated drone. Um, on the other side, you, you ask about, you know, mitigation, you know, I, I've, I've actually submitted some, you know, foundational ideas into a cyber, um, funded program to get a university, you know, grad student to do research on drone mitigation technologies, which, you know, are not, um, are not passive or not signal. So I'm actually working in a direction of physical drone mitigation in the airspace, um, using a variety of different platforms and, um, novel technologies that I don't think a lot of people have thought of yet, but we'll see. But the, the biggest problem is getting anything picked up by, um, by either, you know, a government contract. I mean, cause they get, they're flooded with various ideas and they don't know which any of those will pan out to anything. And it, and it would be a dream if they could just run a simulation of the theoretical concept of any one of these things to see if there's, if they hold water rather than, you know, making us wait for five years to see whether or not the contract is going to be picked up. Like, you know, by the time five years has moved on, who knows, I might be building a platform and be like, you want me to go work on a defense contract now for three quarters the pay that I'm working on? Like, I, I would, you know, like kind of wonder about whether that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, 
but I mean, I, I've been thinking about this for a very long time. And yeah, there, this, this issue of uh, signals mitigation, you're not, at some point, these systems will be so shielded. No, you will not be able to take a drone out of the air using any kind of microwave or beaming technology or anything of that. You will have to do something physically and manually in that space to, you know, take care of that drone, which may actually lead to drone dogfights, but <laughs> that's science fiction. Yeah, if I could cut in your tinfoil, um, I have a lot of contacts. Um, I, my, I work for a government contractor. Uh, we make the FBI.gov website, um, and I have a lot of, like, my our business development rep has a lot of uh, relationships with uh, government agencies, and, and uh, you know, if we could talk on the back channels, I, I think uh, if you if the business development representative likes what you're saying, um, he could maybe share it with some of these agencies we work with. We're mainly on the technology side, not exactly on like um, running simulations like this, but you know, I'm sure he could get you in the right door um, for sure. Um, and I definitely understand the impact and how how powerful these drones are. My my dad worked for the Farm Service Agency for 32 years, and he talked about the technology of these drones used for for farming. Um, and it, it'll blow your mind what, what these drones are able to do and how they're able to help these farmers. Um, and so, so yeah, uh, thanks for bringing up this drone topic. It's actually very important. It could have significant implications on, on our society. And, and yeah, so. Is this, is this Josh that I'm, I'm listening to or because I, I can't yep. really tell. Yep. Okay. yep. okay. Thanks, Josh. I, you can uh, tin and I'll, I'll follow you in back channel. I'm going to assume it's my turn. I have my hand raised. Um, and I, I, whenever we're talking about these uh, drones and stuff like that, as far as like implementation in society, uh, how are we supposed to, as a general, you know, people, uh, supposed to combat against these, you know, very sophisticated, obviously able to, differentiate who is who like how are we supposed to how are we supposed to combat this combat this in the coming days i mean you really don't as a civilian if you're let's pick on the united states because i don't know where you live but in the united states you got protected airfield so you know right now the faa is passed where you have to have drone licensing even to pilot even private ones under certain feet and distance uh and so on. And you have to have line of sight and so on. If you break those rules, and if you're near a major airport, you, you can't even initiate most of these. Um, uh, I would say, you know, $500 US dollars and up uh, size drones. So, you know, there are some limitations, safeguards already in place there. Now, it doesn't mean somebody with skills can't bypass those uh, GPS, bypass the internal programming, and, and there's workarounds. So it's like you can jailbreak almost any device and find things out there. So, you know, from a consumer, I mean, celebrities have this problem all the time. I mean, you know, eavesdropping and, and so on. So they are constantly looking at uh, counter counter countermeasures, mainly just to, like we were talking about, divert those radio signals to where you're creating almost an invisible shield that causes you because know, if most of these fly by radio uh, transmission from a, a ground module or a unit or an individual so you know you would have to have uh you know so it's it's hard to say i mean we can really get into the conspiracy stuff i mean there's people that go down that rabbit hole they have 
shielding and thermal shielding and 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 and, and, and you know suits that don't put a signature out. But I mean, as as a U.S. citizen, technically using drones against ourselves, you, there's a lot of them for civilian uh, and and first responders. You know, use them for fires and surveillance and and so on. But that surveillance state, I mean, we could carry a whole other conversation. I mean, it does deal with AI and protection. I mean, I don't. I don't know if we want to go there tonight, but yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's at some point you got to trust some things, but you know, you got to keep an eye on it and research it, understand where the technology's at, where your local state and governments are, what, what privacy and protection you have. In other words, what do you have a right to go shoot that drone at? I don't encourage that. I'm not saying to go do that, but you know, you need to know those laws before you step out and try to, you know, apprehend one of those. Because it may be the local sheriff looking for an escapee or something. So, you know, I don't advise that in any way. But it's that's that's I know drones are another thing is almost as scary as AI. Trust me. And uh, 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 but they are a tool. They they're an amazing tool. And someone brought up farming. We we worked on a project with artificial intelligence where that drone could take off. And it could plant. It used an airsoft rifle, similar like a paintball, but uh, those, what are those, what do they call those? Uh, it shoots a little plastic pellet. But anyway, we use that to attenuate to plant seeds in the ground. And literally, one drone would go out and survey the soil because the soil's not all consistent. So it would look at the soil density and uh, soil patterns, and it would look at the crustacean and depth because these lidar systems and, and, and thermal sensors could detect it real easy. And then so one would go out and scan and the other would go out and plant. And so you literally could take a van out there with one operator and people used to do this by hand. Run it all day. I'm sorry. I just don't know why people aren't planting anymore. What do you mean planting by hand? Yeah, Ryan, are you kind of getting more gardens? I'm a big supporter of people with gardens and doing gardens. Just want to make sure somebody's not jumping in in the middle of something. If you have somebody that's it's speaking, just let them finish and then jump in. And we do have a couple hands, so go ahead, Biz. Oh, so, cool. I, was, we, I didn't mean to go off on the, the tangent. I wanted to come back to AI and how AI is used for and art and, and drones and tied to that to subject matter. So in that case, artificial intelligence used to better plant crops and stuff and reduce costs. So if you're trying to feed, you know, because food shortages are a big problem. I don't know if you paid attention worldwide. Some of these may or may not be a manufactured crisis, but you know, you know, we we brought up on other spaces, Adrian Hill, that like terraforming and going to Mars. You know, humans are going to do that. Robotics and and drones and other uh, other machines are going to do that for us and risk and not risk, you know, valuable human lives. So I see that in cases where, uh, I mean, Anthony, jump in here because you're in Dubai where they are just terraforming like nobody else and, you know, growing things in the desert like no one else. So places where there's harsh conditions and human factors, uh, it's just shift those, those personality. I'm not taking away jobs and I believe in, you know, uh, you know, green society and definitely, you know, I, I grew up on a farm and ranch. So I know exactly about how jobs are taken and big corporations coming in. But, you know, it's at some point that if you don't look at, you know, evolving or figuring out how to adapt to these things, you know, there's these are real world problems. We're just trying to address it. I'm not saying one thing's better than another. And I definitely believe in and, you know, uh, Personal farming, everyone should know that skill and know how to, you know, because 
the world goes to shit. Those are great skills to have for self-survival. Anyway. I just want to jump in here real quick. My hand's been up. Um, I, all right. So say that I was just a drone enthusiast at my house. Okay. And I just happen to be very good with programming and artificial intelligence. You know, and I could make my drone do anything I would want it to do. It could be a surveyor of, <clears throat> you know, a, a square mile of territory or whatever. You know, who are you or any other agency to tell me that I can't just fly my little drone with its artificial intelligence around my property? Uh, and how does that work with people like me that just want to fly the drones and just be left with their own devices? And it just happens to be aerial you know, uh, aircraft, you know, controlled by AI, but yet controlled by me. How does that work? I mean, FAA is there for safety. I mean, I've been around a long time. I would not, if I was on a passenger flight with a plane and you exceeded, you know, the 500 feet or whatever the threshold, it's been a minute since I've looked into this. I'd be very concerned at, at you taking control. I have no problem with you doing what you want on your own property and so on. They have these 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 safeguards in place, these no-fly zones, just like, you know, there's space portals that, that SpaceX and other rockets, uh, you know, launch from, and they stop all aviation, period, around there. So one one drone hitting a, a engine intake would take that entire could take that entire plane down or at least take that entire engine down so a lot of other safeguards so that's why if you're if you're within so many miles nautical miles or miles from an airport you're probably not going to fly that drone and there's certain, certain rates for that and faa has some very strict guidelines so all i can advise you is look in those if you're more rural area you probably have very little to worry about unless you're around a military uh, zone or areas with free uh, 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 no-fly zone spaces. But, uh, you know, regulatory is there. I'm not a big fan of regulatory, but I think there's also there's also give and takes there and checks and balances. I hope that answers your question. But, again, I'm not the expert on I mean, regulatory. Kind of it does, but it's just like, yeah, I do live close to an airport, but say I were to grab a property or know somebody that has some property very much away from the airport, whenever you institute regulations via the scope of, okay, you're around an airport and you could do this, you know, say I was uh, sufficiently away from that, you know, the regulations are more than likely going to be blanket more than they are pinpoint which is where this kind of stuff kind of gets into some gray areas. I had some input on that um, in regard to the, you know, the, the laws actually passed uh, through the NDA made a regulatory system where you if your drone is over 250 grams uh, effectively two sticks of butter it has to be registered and you have to fly fly on an ama flying field you are no longer lawfully allowed to fly on private property with a drone that is over that weight or a drone that is in a classification for the purposes of business or for the purposes of training related to business. You actually have to go to a special site 
if you are flying a drone for research and development, um, or you have to get a waiver from the FAA. If you go and you get your Part 107 license, I believe it is, uh, you can then apply for a waiver to fly, or you can fly under 400 feet in an area that is outside of five miles from an airport. But this is only if you have a Part 107 and also inclusive, you know, that your drone is over that specific weight or basically any drone, if you're doing it for a commercial capacity, can actually be a drone of a smaller weight class, which then you still need that 107. So I am unfortunately a, a drone regulation expert, not by desire, but just by the nature of having been trying to cover drone news and and uh, hoping that we would have the ability to make films with our friends without having to spend thousands of dollars uh, for regulatory costs. And it didn't unfortunately pan out that way. Um, literally, Hang on, hey, Tim. Lobbyist. Hey, Tim, could I ask you a question? All right. Say I sure. just had a bunch of money and I wanted to go buy a drone that I could fly five miles away from my house with the given antenna equipment. Would I be able to do that? Yes or no? And if no, then why, in regards to my own freedom, can I not do that? Well, the the FAA passed these regulations where if anybody spots you and reports you within a time frame that you're flying that drone, uh, the FAA will initiate an investigation. They will uh, look for cameras or information that indicate you where you were flying and or your vehicle they will look for cell phone videos or anything that you've posted on the internet or youtube and uh you know you will eventually if if they are effective effective at their job be traced down and they'll find out that you are you know your home is five miles away and you bought this drone at x store and uh yeah it will be a very right but why can't i fine why can't I? It doesn't, as a, it doesn't as a, matter. As a, free Ameri- as a free American citizen, why can't I go buy a drone and fly it at my house today without w- fear of regulation to shut me down and arrest me? Right. Well, that's a class action lawsuit that hasn't been initiated yet. That's all I can say about that. I'm just saying, I mean, I'm a free American citizen. I should be able to go you, buy you, my you're own not, drone. You're not I should be able to fly it. You should. I mean, why yes. Why do I have all these regulations? I need to, whatever, just go buy a commercially because available item to, to have it regulated while I can't fly in my backyard. It might be China five hired. miles away from me, but you know what? Thank you, technology. It's 2023. Right. Can I post China hired. Some, yeah, go ahead, please. What, are you a commercial uh, truck driver? Do you have a commercial uh, CDL to drive a truck, a semi truck? I happen to also have a commercial license as well, so I can communicate so with you your, Okay, beautiful. So what's your thoughts about, say, something like an 18-year-old getting behind the wheel that's never even driven one of those rigs that are very detrimental on the road? You know, from a safety record, you know the regulatory pattern. You can only drive so many hours, and you got to have books, records, and, and, you know, insurance is a pain in the ass. They put a lot of pressure, regulatory on truckers. I'm not for some of those things. It made it very hard for truckers to make. Uh, money and somebody with CDL. So I'm not posed against that. But do you believe there's some certain safety measures and regulatory things around getting a CDL 
that puts a benchmark to make it safer for not just yourself, but others on the road. And I think that's where this FDA regulation, it's not really trying to take away your freedoms, but it's a give and take. So they know that if they don't impose these, people could create threats to others on the road, similar to like a CDL and a truck driver uh, and just issuing these out to anybody to get behind this, you know, 18, you know, how many pounds are they? 60, 50, 50,000 pound vehicles, you know, and, and going down the road. And so I think a lot of it is from that standpoint. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, freedom is not always free and in the sense that regulatory things are there. Uh, yeah. It, it's not always fair. And trust me, I'm, 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 well, I'm definitely uh, uh, quick. There's a bit of a problem here. In this instance, the FAA unconstitutionally and illegally annexed uh, about, well, a thousand feet worth of airspace from every private citizen in the United States. Uh, under Cosby versus United States, it was established that the homeowner has from zero feet to about 900 feet um, of airspace to, for their enjoyment. And the FAA declared that all national airspace then laundered that through Congress and then put it into an Air Force reauthorization bill and then turned it into federal law. All of that was actually a criminal conspiracy to basically annex all of the property for a future con commercial drone operation. So, um, yeah, that's like I said, this is an outstanding uh, lawsuit. And, yeah, I mean, there's there's risks involved um, with where you fly your drone and what you do with it. Um, just like there's risks with your RC car. You don't drive it on the highway, but you don't need a license for an RC car. You just need to know not to drive it on the highway. Well, well I, I know guys that actually dabble in RC cars and those things can go 140 miles an hour and outrun almost anything on the highway if they so chose to. And as far as the, uh, you know, commercial versus drone, you know, commercial drivers, as far as big trucks versus drone flight, that's a horse of the same color, but they're a little bit different spotted. <clears throat> Me as a commercial driver, yes, I understand. Now, from my blue collar aspect, just leave me alone. I'll run my own logs. I'll go and work, make my own money and whatever. And I've been driving trucks long enough to be like, okay, I know my limits. But there are plenty of younger drivers that come to the space not understanding the responsibility they hold being the biggest trucks on the road that might need to have a little bit more schooling in regards to that. I grew up in a time where it was just like, okay, well, you, you, you're the biggest on the road. <clears throat> and I happen to drive some of the most dangerous, <clears throat> dangerous trucks on the road. But so definitely there needs to be some regulation, but at the same time, my blue collar is coming through and be like, just leave me alone. You know, that's why I don't want the regulations as far as like, you know, big trucks and things like that. I, I understand fully the uh, repercussions they have on the general public. Uh, but drones are not that same kind of thing. Okay, you know, I, there should be a reasonable limit. Say I was to go get a drone that cost me $5,000 and I could drive it, you know, five miles away from my house and do just jack whatever. Well, I mean, there there should be a, a, a limit there. It's not like I'm interfering with somebody, you know, going over their heads as opposed to a commercial vehicle. Yeah, the, you were regulated in the same way that whether you had one drone or 500 drones, that's basically... uh how you were regulated because the way the FAA approached it was that all operations are commercial operations. 
and therefore there was no lower threshold. And that's how we are where we're at. It sucks. But this is the year 2023, and eventually things will circle around and we'll, we'll get it resolved. And I look forward to the, um, the big solve on this will be uh, law LLMs. That will be a really fun way to untangle the very complex web of overlapping case and law precedents that created this mess. Guys, that's intriguing. Definitely didn't know. I appreciate you guys sharing that. I mean, that uh, that's something that the everyday American doesn't think about. But you know, you're right. I mean, it. it uh, so let's. I mean, with the subject with AI, have you guys got any thought about regulatory aspects? So you know, coming back to the subject at hand, I noticed there's a new bipartisan bill. They just denied twenty section twenty thirty to protect for AI. And for those that know, Section 20, 2030 and how it protects companies like Facebook, Google, and others. So this will be interesting. This one's dated June 14th. So I'm just reading up on this. I'm not an expert. I don't know if anybody on this call is. There's also another thing about uh, these, these groups that come in and, and nonprofits and universities. My concern around AI and safety and watching the watchers like the Fox Guardian and the Hen House is, okay, who who's funding these projects and what you know follow the money trail and and are are do they have best intentions with ai so anybody want to take that subject or dive into that a little bit more well if nobody's going to go i'll open the conversation up based on that uh, uh, quickly um how, how comfortable are you guys with continuing this on for a little bit longer because i could uh probably shut this down maybe in seven minutes or so. Like if, if, if you guys want to continue, you can, but uh, just, just let me know when you're. I mean, we've been going for uh, some time now, Adrian. I know you got to jump another space. So uh, that's your call. I, 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 uh, I'm glad to stay, but. Uh... Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, like it's, as, as long as you guys are comfortable with this, like if you're starting to burn out, just let me know and I can, you know, close out the space. Yeah, well, the hands are slowing down. Yeah, we're, I think if, you're at a lull, so. If yeah, you're, yeah. if you're, if you're going to disappear, <laughs> I get nervous, you know? So, because if something happens and like, then, you know, 18 hours later, you guys, this goes back to the very first space. I have like PTSD from that day. I think we could like <laughs> shut this down in... Like maybe maybe you could shut this down today, like right now, and everyone can you know continue on what they were doing because otherwise this goes for, on for too long. Uh, we've been going for about five hours now, which is the longest space I've held in the last couple of weeks. And I think I mean there's there's off, there's obviously a lot more content that can be brought out when it comes to AI, but I think we could maybe put a put a pin in this for today, and we could have a part two to the space at some other time. Also, if you check in the pinned tweet in the space, I have put out a vote such that I can see by popular opinion when I should host my spaces um, because I've been planning of shifting it from Thursday to Friday, uh, EST. And so I was basically thinking, hey, before I make the shift, I better do a vote because otherwise I'd have to reschedule a few spaces and I'll have to contact quite a lot of people. The space, I have a space on uh, Starship that's going to happen on the 30th, I think. Yeah, it's going to be on Friday. And so it's, it's, it's a while out. I'll have to reschedule a whole bunch of spaces. Um, major apologies for anyone who, like, you know, 
yeah, I'd have to do that. So do vote. Uh, tell me what you guys think because it's up to you. And yeah, definitely, yeah. It was uh, a lot of fun today. Space was, uh, we got a lot of good content out there and we'll definitely have a part two to this. Specifically, like if um, any one of you could reach out to um, Robert Miles, I would love to have him on the show. I've reached out to him via DM, but there's been, a quite, there's been one response and then it just ran cold after that. So maybe if you could assure him that there's in fact interest and people would come to listen to what he has to say and that, you know, all of this is, you know, there's an agenda so such that, you know, you can stick to that and you can prepare ahead of time such that you're not basically thrown into the deep end of a pool or the ocean, whichever you prefer. But yeah, I'd love to have him on specifically as I'd like to address the concept of AI safety a lot more. But yeah, it's been absolutely great, you guys. Um, I've, I've, I've enjoyed the space a lot. Uh, thank you all for coming today. Uh, would anyone like to say a few more words? I just want to thank Anthony and the other speakers coming up. This has been fun. I know AI is a, a hot subject and look forward to the other spaces. Anthony, do you want to close, give any closing remarks? Uh, hmm. Well, I mean, today has been a, this, this is a really, really big space. There's a lot of information here. For those of you who will re-listen to this, um, if you've made it to the end, if you've made it this far, I truly applaud you because this is five hours of material. So it's like basically a, co a, a big podcast. So we've gone through an entire timeline of events, uh, quite a few shaky uh, pieces in between. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Do follow all the speakers here uh, and tune into the next one. I will be hosting a space in a few hours from now, uh, in about four hours from now, in fact. I'll be hosting a space on the Satributes art collection such that you can you know, understand how art is being put on the blockchain, Bitcoin specifically, and why this art specifically is so meaningful to me and why it is also meaningful to very many other people out there because it is more than just art. It is an ode to Bitcoin history and an ode to anyone who has been very influential in this space and has generally contributed a lot to the construction of such a space. Thank you so for really having quick. me on. Oh, sorry, Anthony. Sorry. I just wanted to say really quick, um, you know, for the people that are in here listening uh, to try to learn about the AI stuff, um, you know, I'm always a work in progress. Like he knows crypto and me, like don't go, like my brain just doesn't get any of it. Um, so anytime you have questions, you can always DM them, put them in the chat. Uh, don't ever feel intimidated to come up here because we are all learning um, different levels, different um, expertises. You know, I'm very low on the totem pole when it comes to this stuff, but you know what? We have to have people that know stuff, and we have to have people that are still willing to learn stuff. Our brains all work differently, and um, we have to work together to get through this. In one of the first AI spaces back in the day, um, we were talking about creating a glossary, a term, so people would understand. Because sometimes at some point, I think people just feel, like, intimidated um, and they're like, oh my God, I can't ask that question. That's a stupid question. There's no such thing because without you asking, you're never going to learn. So just keep that in mind moving forward. Um, and always DM if you, if you don't want to ask up front. So it's all groovy and uh, yeah.
Thanks for having me here, Adrian, and uh, nice to meet all the people I haven't met before. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's the goal of these spaces, really. It's to be as abstract and as general as possible. Because I personally believe that in order to be the the best version of yourself, like to be the best of what a human can be, you have to expand upon that which makes you human, and that is to be so general, and that is to take that and turn it into something amazing. Like the way you interact with other people is very important. And the way you do this the best is by being as general as possible because you will know yourself a lot more through that and through also seeing parallels of yourself and other people. It's like to discover what is within, we often look at that which is without. This is why AI also you know, is so fascinating to a lot of people because it looks similar to us in a sense that we recognize these traits and we think it is something based on that recognition even though it might not even be this way. But like, that's, that's something that I thought personally was something that was important. And we'll continue to explore this. And there are very many spaces coming up. I think I'm having one on tokenomics next week, perhaps, uh, so, such that people can understand what, you know, what, what the difference is between a token that is made on ETH and a token that's made on Bitcoin, why one or the other might be better from any utility standpoint. So yeah, but I, might, I might do that or maybe I'll just shift it around, but we, we shall see, we shall see. Other than that, we will continue this again at some other point. Uh, do follow me and all the speakers as well as those mentioned in the tweet and turn notifications on such that you can be notified whenever I put something out because I do put some really <laughs> strange things out from time to time because I, my tweets have what is called recursion. So I always have little Easter eggs everywhere. Maybe you, can, you guys can find them. So whenever I put something new out. But yeah, thank you so much for coming. Also, it's it's interesting interesting to see that Zach Voorhees was on here. Very nice. Glad to have met you. And yeah, we shall continue at another point. Tune in for the next space in a couple of hours, which is going to be on Satributes. Thank you very much.